Welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tar and Rama's The True History, History, and the Sarah and Galactic Origins program on BBS Radio on Saturday afternoons. We're so grateful that you are here and joining us today. Cheryl is resting her voice, and uh, so... We get to work with the Kimi drum today, and this is the first day of the wave of Kimi. It's a white magnetic linker of worlds or world bridger day. So we've got that magnetic energy, that new beginning, and the Kimi drum to celebrate that with. So let's take a few moments to go into your heart, heart space. I'm going to... Bring the heart call down deep with Kimi drum. Take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently. Go into your heart space. And gather there with your guides, your guardians, your spirit team, your human teams, your ancestors, whoever you like to journey with the drum beat with. And there's a castle fire in the center. So let's come in close. Make that virtual circle around that castle fire in that virtual way we know how to do as we call in the seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition. All you spirit keepers of the East, come this way. We give gratitude for this new beginning. Clarity of mind and the openness of heart to learn and to grow. We welcome eagle, condor, hawk, you high flying ones, for your gift of insight and that ability to look at our lives with a benevolent eye for this new day, for this opportunity of the human mind. Truly experience the joy, the humbleness, starting anew. We invite divine masculinity, that solar energy and that power of protection to be with us now as we begin this journey. All you spirit keepers of <clears throat> with this tone. We I want to start with the tone and I forgot. So let's do the tone uh, for the east, which is ah for purification. Ah. 
now let's turn and look towards the north. And I like the Greek direction for the hand that was the palm up towards the north. We do this. So. And we're going to tell it again now. I like to do it. So this tone for the north is O. And it's for Edna. Feminine 
Now, reach down with both your hands and put them on the earth. This is oddly wherever you are, show your direction. As we welcome all you spirit keepers below the earth, come, look this way. Watch Obama, Mother Earth, Gaia. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for all the children of the earth went. You creepy crawlers, green ones, thin ones, four-legged, pollinators, the regenerators, the keepers alive. Any gratitude for the diversity of life, for that interconnectedness of life, the web of life, and the equality of each member of the planetary family. Thank you, Mother Earth. For teaching us how to take care of you, honor all life forms, and to walk gently upon you with love and respect. Thank you for joining us here today. Now we're calling in the indirection. Which is for carrying, in carrying. So looking at that fire with it in the center and maybe put your hand over your heart inner sacred sound space. So what's going to Keepers within, come from this way. Medicine ancestors, personal ancestors. Thank you for the wise choices you made in your lifetime to sustain and nurture, to pass down the wisdom and the knowledge so that we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. We give thanks to the next seven generations. Reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom game, and to create beauty and balance on the earth. Thank you all for joining us today. Why not? All the top of the afternoon. And guests. Thank you all for participating with this calling in of the directions. And let's take a, I'm going to change my hat and become the housekeeper now as we are a listener supported radio program. It's each of us that makes it happen. And so each week we need $300 for our radio expenses for the services there. And we're grateful to say that that's what we need this week. So lots of gratitude for being even seasoned with this. So thank you for making that happen. 
Here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio. Our account there can be reached by going to bbsradio.com and then <laughs> click on the radio station 2 and scroll down. You'll see there are different programs for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday and night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon. That'll take you directly to our account as you do so, or you can make a donation using any bank card. So, thank you. And then on Fridays, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night. That icon there at the 6 o'clock hour, and these are Pacific time, will take you directly to our account. And then for this program at the 1.30 hour, the true history of Hershey and the Sarah and our galactic origins, uh, you can click on that icon as well. So either one of these works, two off three. <laughs> We've got a lot to do this week. No, it's great. So thank you for taking care of business with our BBS commitment. We're grateful for all the support and coming together as a family this way. So we're also uh, assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And so the what we need this week for Tara and Rama is, oh, this is rent week, as next Sunday is the last day of the month of July. So with that said, there's $1,150 needed for that, another 450 for Bill, and then another 300 for the living expenses. So it's generosity time. Thank you for all of you who save your pennies and make sure that this one happens, because this is important. <laughs> And thank you for your participation again. Here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And there, as you click on the menu, a window, uh, um, a menu, of, and, the, and the, on the menu grid, the uh, <laughs> I'm not even saying anything right. Sorry. <laughs> a list will drop down with the word donate at near the end of it. That's your link to Rama's PayPal account. That'll take you to the Rainbow Roundtable account as you click on it and go there. You can make a donation in any amount right there. And if you have your own PayPal account, the way to access the friends option is to go into your own account and not don't use that link. Go to your own account and then put in Rama's email that he uses at PayPal. And that email for PayPal for Rama is that you would want to in, insert as the send to person, the receiver, is Koran, K O R A N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And that that links you to the friends option that way, and that way you just eliminate the commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your gifts and donations and all that you do and all the ways that you show up in your life. So lots of gratitude. Um, as we're sending something, you want to send an email to Rama at this email address and make sure he knows when you sent it and what you sent. And that email for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, Rama's uh, mailing address is as follows. It is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280, 280, 
and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip 87567. And I will repeat, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So thank you for taking that action. And we're so grateful for all your gifts. And 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I have two websites I want to give you. These are for joining Shop Free Mart and for joining New Gen Coin options. <clears throat> so this is it. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart three four letter words dot com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M and that takes you account 7,000 the rainbow round table account with that perfect number on there and then also the new gen coin opportunity is still where you can buy coins not that one but the one in the back office so if you register there you want to go to join by going to HTTPS Colon forward slash forward slash www dot newgen coin n u g e n c o i n newgen coin at oh excuse me newgen coin dot com newgen coin dot com forward slash in the rainbow roundtable site t a r r a n or forward slash M-A-R-N-O-R, Marshall Norris site, who brought this amazing program to us, and that's our way of doing back, so let's do it. So, lots of opportunities still there. It's always time to join when you consider something that <laughs> that can be as prolific as this one. It's uh, an inspiration to get in on the ground floor, which is where we're at. So, uh, Anytime is a good time to join at this point. So, <laughs> lots of gratitude um, for that being part of our lives as well, bringing the abundance that it does. So, what else? That's it. So, oh, it's talking sticks. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> still got that dragon on it, breathing the fireworks for the new year coming this week, which is the day out of time is on Monday, and the new year starts on Tuesday. So just so you know, keep abreast with spacestationplaza.com. There's a party in Barnardsville if you live anywhere near where I do. The Space Station Plaza is having their party for the New Year's there. <laughs> anyway, um, what is it? Uh, it's... Um, Yeah, it's got all those fireworks. It definitely has that sort of truth that Excalibur is with it and lots of fairies and feathers and all those healing rays. And I know if Cheryl was here, she'd put every one of the healing rays in there and, and the and the transmutation and the, the healing and all all the, the green and the yellow, the platinum, the gold. Uh, you, you got it. They're there in the rainbow. Every color, 144 and more. And all these fairies and all these feathers of every color and description and lots of little people, the hobbits, the gnomes, the, the menahunis, and um, yeah, all the elementals are here. So greetings, Tarn Rama. Here comes the stocking stick. 
And I'm seeing those unicorns coming right up. They're they're just ushering us into the fifth dimension, I believe. So greetings. Here it comes. Greetings. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles and angels. And again we send extra good vibrations to our sister Cheryl for a complete transformative Transcended experience. Yeah. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and cosmic light body. And we speak to that to all beings on this planet. We send love to those that are confused and lost on their way home. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, I just have to say that Everything is in process of transformation now. I mean, uh, Rama, why don't you share a little bit? We're going to get started pretty soon, but. Oh, I got to talk to Rana Moo for a couple minutes today, and she said, stay in the oneness, the great silence of the energies there, sky high, and these characters are playing out their final moments, and I know I've said that a lot, and we're watching it unfold, and stay in the high vibrations, because that's... (laughs) Anywhere else, things get a little sticky. To say the least. Yeah. That's why I go and talk to the trees and the deer and the ravens and the crows. They don't have the issues going on. Yeah. The other issues are climate disruption. Because that affects every single one of us. Yeah, today in Kansas it was 100 degrees, yet with the rest of the circumstances they said on the TV that it feels like 107 there. Chicago, 91 degrees, feels like 98. Cincinnati, 90, feels like 95. Memphis, 97, feels like 103. Albuquerque's 100 today. Oh, that means it feels like 107 there, too. Mm. Washington, D.C., 98, feels like 101. Raleigh, uh, 95, feels like 102. And we are grateful to be in Espanoodle. (laughs) And we have our swamp cooler going. And the door closed. It's a massive heat. That hits you when you go out the door. Um, so, Rama, when you asked them about this climate stuff, they said they're not going to let it go by anymore, right? Yeah. They're going to get something done here. There are folks already in our midst mitigating things, and I don't have details. I just know they're here. Okay, and uh, anything else? 
Not that I can think of. All right, so let's do this. Let's get started. That's a good idea. Okay. Okay, the first thing we're going to play is Billy Carson and the Emerald Tablets. And you want to say a little something about those things, right? Um, Billy Carson, I, I could say he, he knows his stuff and he has been in and out of portals and he's met many folks from the different realms and uh, what he's talking about is uh, real and at the same time it's about expanding our consciousness to grasp the higher wisdom that's happening because the quantum physics comes into play with the stories that are related to the Emerald Tablets. Thoth was Lord Katumi, or Lord Katumi was Thoth in that lifetime. And um, these are part of these Ascended Masters, Wise Councils of Elders that are showing up right now on the planet. And um, I could say for one, Chairman Archibald has met many of these Wise Councils of Elders. He's not told me who, where, when, or how. Just suffice it to say, they're in our midst. And as Rainbird, you know, describes, when we come to these council fires, they show up, whether seen or unseen, and they make themselves visible as we, you know, are open to the infinite realm of infinite possibilities. And it's... um Thinking with your heart, right? And now said. <sighs> and the former Minneapolis police officer was sentenced to two and a half years for violating George Floyd's civil rights. That's just one sentence. There's some more. Uh, I, I, I'm just saying we're doing something now with Mother where... They're going to take these folks off the planet and deal with them elsewhere so that we can get on with life, the universe, and everything. Right? Yes. All right, let's get started with this. Here we go. This is an hour and 13 minutes. What's up, what's up? Billy Carson here, and welcome to another... Forbidden Knowledge Podcast, Forbidden Rant. Today I'm going to really talk about the Emerald Tablets, though. I'm going to talk about the Halls of Amenti and a few other things. Right out of my book, Compendium of the Emerald Tablets, still a bestseller. I just wanted to say the Halls of Amenti are absolutely real. I have been going there for years. And, I mean, I used to be taken there in the 60s. And I wasn't on any altered substances. I would just <laughs> go at night and ask the guides, the teachers, the masters. And I would see Ashtar, 
there. I would see Athena. Uh, I would see uh, DK, uh, Sanat Kumara, Lord Maitreya. Enough said. Let me see all who's in the chat over here. If you guys are in the chat, let me see who's in here. And also let me know if you guys can hear me as well. Okay. Let's see. I see the chat's filling up as we are now live. Let me get a mic check. Let me know if you guys can hear me in the chat. All right. All right. What's up? Loud and clear. Thank you, Brand Muffin 5, Nikisha Morton. Please wake up, folks. Buffalo Soul 222 Bree. All right. Bella the Real One, Jennifer Rowland, Seventh Son, Kadeem Alexander. All right. Let's go. Hey, guys. Welcome to another podcast. I'm doing it live today. All right. Every now and then, I like to do a live podcast and, uh, Today is going to be about the um, the halls of Amenti that Thoth talks about in the Emerald Tablets. If you don't know what the Emerald Tablets are, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the plural tablets, are a um, it's a set of tablets that were written by and authored by Thoth himself. In other words, Thoth, the Atlantean priest king who ruled over the land of Kem for fourteen thousand years, according to the Egyptians. Not according to Billy Carson, not according to my hypothesis or nothing like that. According to the Egyptians themselves in their own records, he ruled over the land of Cam, which is ancient Egypt for, for, for 14,000 years, um, dating all the way back to 50,000 BC. We're talking about a long time ago, long, long time ago. So this gentleman named Phil, and I do mean gentleman because he's not a god. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I like writing about this uh, person is because he has never claimed to be a god, whereas some of his relatives actually masqueraded as gods because they saw the weakness in humanity and realized that, wow, because of our advanced knowledge and our advanced technology, these people think we're God. So you know what? We're going to go ahead and let them believe that so we can manipulate them. <laughs> but Thoth actually never did that. He actually said, you know what? When people would bow at his feet and stuff, he'd be like, hey, stand up. He'd say, I'm a son of Atlantis. That's what he would say. He said, I'm a son of Atlantis. And sometimes he would call himself the son of man. Sound familiar? The same thing Yeshua would say in the Bible, right? The son of man. Not the son of God. The son of man. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting stuff. So, you know, it's pretty interesting that when you look into these emerald tablets and you start reading them, you find out how powerful the information is in these tablets and that they're talking about different levels of advanced technology that we just don't have today. We just don't have it. We're not even close. Now, we're getting close. But some of the stuff that these people were capable of doing is just mind blowing. It's boggling. It's mind boggling. Okay. Extending lifespans for centuries for eons, actual eons. Some of these people have lived for multiple thousands of years, right? Which is incredible. Um, both himself lived for thousands and thousands of years, not a couple of hundred years, not a few hundred thousands. 
And he accredits his ability to for his extended lifespan to a couple of things. One thing is, uh, in terms of the elixir of life, would be the monatomic gold and mm. the colloidal silver. Yeah. Uh, they also used to mix uh, the oil from the uh, marijuana, the cannabis plant, with something else, that, which they never particularly specified, and create this other elixir that they would drink and use to... It was, it was called the elixir of life to heal the, the heroes, cure the heroes. And then, uh, of course, he had the rejuvenation chambers in the halls of Amenti. And I'm going to show you something amazing tonight, something that I had, uh, you know, a, a blessing to even be a part of and go inside of in Africa, inside of Egypt. So it's going to be amazing. Amazing talk tonight. All right. So let me start off first by doing a little bit of housekeeping. You know, we got to do the, the beginning. I'm starting, starting off a little bit differently now. So I'm going to do my intro and I'm going to give you guys a, a brief um, I don't want to call it an ad because it's really my own business. I'm not advertising for anyone else. But when, you know, uh, one of the things I want people to know is that we are still in round two of the shares of forbidden knowledge. But round two could be cut short. Normally, round two was supposed to be a 90 day round like round one was. However, because of some new developments, we could be moving into round three ahead of schedule. And round three is going to be dynamic because we have to get something called a PCAOB audit, which is a high-level audit. Now, most companies that get that kind of audit, it's because they're going for an IPO or they're going to go to NASDAQ. Mm. So we have to get a PCAOB audit. So watch my careful words, what I'm telling you here. It's very interesting. So we may cut round two short and move straight into round three very, very soon. So if you haven't gotten shares of forbidden knowledge, now is the time to take advantage of a golden opportunity. I know a lot of people in here have participated in round one and round two already. The more shares you have, um, you know, potentially the better you can be. I'm going to drop the link in here again real quick for you guys before we move on to talking about the animal tablets. And uh, I'm going to put the link right here in the live chat and give you guys an opportunity to go back and look at it later on. It's also going to be in the caption of this video as well. On to ending soon. I just drop a link here in the chat for you guys. Uh, you have something there um, uh, to check out. And I also will put it up here on the screen. Now, The Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. This book is currently a bestseller in multiple countries right now. Multiple countries. It's a bestseller in New, uh, the Netherlands. It's a bestseller in Australia. The UK, America, and um, I think it's Japan, believe it or not. There's one other country, which is, you know, oh, and also Canada and Canada. This book has been riding the bestsellers list for three years consecutive, staying and hovering in that top 100 bestseller status on Amazon. There's a reason for that, because the majority of those people don't even know who I am. They don't know who Forbidden Knowledge is. Until they read the book, then, they, you know, if they look me up, then they'll know who I am. These are people seeking knowledge and wisdom about ancient civilizations, right? So that's pretty cool and pretty impressive. And I'm very, very happy about that because the power of writing a book, this book contains a fractal of my knowledge. This book literally contains a fractal of my knowledge. So what happens is, is I transfer my light wave energy into from, from a multidimensional platform, right? 
where I'm, where I'm using conscious thought and transferring it and converting it into a two dimensional form, which is written in a book, right? Black and white letters on paper, one and two dimensions, right? Lines and, and, uh, and cubes and connected lines that creates one and two dimensions. And so what's happening when you read this book and also when I read the work of anyone else's book, you're actually uploading from the book into your mind a fractal of my consciousness, just like I uploaded into my mind a fractal of thoughts consciousness, right? So it's pretty powerful stuff, pretty cool stuff. Um, you know, when you really think about it, I mean, you, it's, it's a way of downloading and uploading information through books, just like you can download a file from the Internet and then upload it to uh, an email and send to somebody else. It's the same thing. There's nothing different. It's the same exact thing. It's the same exact thing, guys. You know what I'm saying? Same exact thing. Okay, now, let's see here. <clears throat> I want to go to the section here about the halls of a menti. All right. Emerald Tablet 2, the halls of a menti. Deep in Earth's heart lie the halls of a menti, far beneath the island of the sunken Atlantis. Halls of the dead and halls of the living, bathed in the fire of the infinite all. Far in a pastime, lost in the space-time, the children of light look down on the world. Now, think about this for a minute. The children of light look down on the world. Let's look at this. Let's analyze this. The children of light. Now, they're referencing these Atlantean people. These Atlantean people are looking down on the world. Why are they looking down on the world? They're looking down from a higher perspective. Now, this could be esoteric by nature, meaning they're looking down on the level of consciousness of the, of the people here. But why are they called the children of light? Okay, that's pretty interesting. The children of light look down on the world, seeing the men in their bondage, seeing us human beings in bondage. Mental bondage, bound by the force that came from beyond. The Matrix. Knew they that only by freedom from bondage could man ever rise from the earth to the sun. So they're talking about a couple things here. These Atlantean people that are looking down on mankind, realizing that we are scuffling around on our bellies. We haven't even learned how to crawl yet at this point, at the time that this was written. Uh, and living in this mental bondage, this consciousness bondage, because we aren't even aware of who we truly are and the power that we truly hold. And uh, But what they're saying is that if they don't intervene in some way, shape, or form, we may never rise back to our true potential. All right? Pretty interesting. Now, according to Thoreau, only free-thinking individuals using their own conscious thought can be capable of rising to a higher level of consciousness. Say that again. According to Thoreau, only free-thinking individuals using their own conscious thoughts can be capable of rising to a higher level of consciousness. And what Thoreau is saying is, in order for you guys to rise to the higher level, you got to change the way you think. You got to change the way you see the world. You got to change the way you see yourself. And only a free thinker breaking the bondage of the of the normalized mainstream thinking, for example, a person that sees outside of that and is able to see around and maneuver through that, 
only that person that can make its own mind up and its own decisions based on its own conscious thought and not download the programming code that's given to us by the teachers in the school, the mainstream media on TV, on the news and everything else, right? The pastor at the church and all this other stuff, what your parents are, what your parents feed your brain 24 seven mm-hmm. that they've been handed down from millennia to millennia. Only the person that can break through that and actually see it for what it is and think for themselves, ask questions for themselves are the ones that can achieve a higher level of consciousness. By the way, I have a song with Donnie Arcade and Richard Bagger and Cruz called Halls of Amenti. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, and all those other music platforms. Halls of Amenti. Check it out. <clears throat> so here's, here's what's interesting now. Both says, down they descended and created bodies. This is pretty interesting. Down they descended and created bodies. Now think about it. This is 36,000-year-old text I'm reading. Right. These people are talking about coming from a higher plane of existence and creating bodies, taking the semblance of men as their own. Now, they didn't steal any bodies, any human bodies. They didn't body snatch anybody. They created their own sleeves and then and then transferred their consciousness into those sleeves. The masters of everything said after their forming. We are they who were formed from the space dust, partaking of life from the infinite all, living in the world as children of men, like and unlike the children of men. Think about that. So they're living in the world amongst us and walking amongst us like a man, yet unlike a man. Because why? They're not really homo sapien. They are, you know, if you saw the movie Avatar, you have a good idea what they're talking about. In Avatar, you know, basically, they went to another planet. They looked down on these people, just like these people look down. They, but these people saw an opportunity because they said, oh, these, these are some indigenous aliens, and they don't even know what they're sitting on. We can make trillions of dollars. We can make quadrillions of dollars off of these ores on this planet. So they decided to create bodies. Sounds like the Emerald Tablets to me. Mm-hmm. And transfer their consciousness into those bodies so they can walk amongst those aliens on in the movie Avatar, but unlike the real person, like unlike the real indigenous. So they will walk amongst them. Matter of fact, even the uh, in the movie, I know it's just a movie, but it has a lot of similarities, which is why important. A lot of these movie writers, they read these tablets and stuff to get their ideas. Notice that they walk amongst the people in the movie, right? They walk amongst them, but the, the true indigenous can tell, can sense that that they weren't really uh from the planet and that they were sleeves in some way. In other words, they were they were um artificial, yet they had the same look in the body, but they really weren't them. During later ages, the ego of folk passed into the bodies of men in the manner described in the tablets. As such, he incarnated in his last being, known as Hermes, the thrice born. So his last incarnation out of all the dozens that he's that we know of that exist, because he's got many, many names, Thoth, Dehudi, Tehudi, Jehudi, uh, Lord Pakal, Kukulkan, Veracocha, uh, Quetzalcoatl, many, many, many names. Thoth, uh, 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 Thor, Odin, uh, Wang Di. I mean, this guy is everywhere. Thoth, Amabi. Mm-hmm. No matter where you're going around the world, you're going to find a reference to Thoth, right? Mm-hmm. 
But during the later ages, the ego of thought, in other words, that's his con- they're saying his consciousness would transfer into new bodies using the manner above. The 2045 initiative, let's take a look at what we have technologically. The 2045 initiative is a nonprofit organization that develops a network of community of researchers in the field of life extension. This is now on earth right now today. The main goal of the 2045 initiative as stated on its website, 2045.com, is to create technologies enabling the transfer of an individual's personality, ego, to a more advanced non-biological carrier and extending life, including to the point of immortality. We devote particular attention to enabling the fullest possible dialogue between the worlds of major spiritual traditions, science, and society. That's 2045, 2045.com. That's run by Ray Kurzweil, the billionaire. They're transferring people's consciousness into other bodies. Now, they started a while ago, back in 2013 or 14, they transferred a monkey's consciousness into a computer. The monkey is dead, body's gone, but but the monkey thinks it's still alive. It's in there eating bananas and climbing trees inside of a computer. By 2015 or 2017, they were supposed to be able to transfer the consciousness of a person into a robot, which they've already done. And so as America, they have something called the DARPA project, the Avatar project at DARPA, where they transfer soldiers' consciousness into a field robot. So that's already been done. Mm. So we have the 2045 project. The milestones are 2015 to 2020, robotic copy of a human consciousness into a robot. 2020 to 2025, an avatar which... Uh, has a human brain transplanted at the end of one's life. So they probably use some type of positronic brain that can hold the consciousness of the original owner into a brand new body. And by 2040 to 2045, a hologram-like avatar, they perceive by that point that they're just walking around in a, in a hologram. They've perfected holograms almost to the point now where holograms can touch and pick up things, maneuver things. By 2045, holograms will be able to walk around and feel like real things, what we, or what we consider to be real. Why? Because we ourselves are even holograms. And so they've now perfected this technology, or they're on the way to perfecting it. They've got holograms now that can actually pick things up in laboratories today, today, that can pick things up, holograms, physical things that we consider to be physical objects, right? (laughs) By 2045, what they're saying is they'll create a hologram which is a lot easier than cloning your body. And then they'll just transfer your consciousness into a holographic body that you can walk around in and live for forever, right? Or until the planet blows up, whatever. Now, interesting stuff. This is all coming out of ancient text, guys. Think about that for a second. Ancient text. As evidenced by the information provided at 2045.com, it appears that we are following in the footsteps of the Atlanteans who are seeking eternal life in the physical form. Take a look at some of the goals and initiatives being planned by the group of 2045. We just went over those, right? Pretty crazy stuff. Incredible. According to the 2045 initiative mission statement, the challenge for the immediate future is to prepare humanity for its greatest intellectual Transition in history. Today, it is hard to imagine a future when bodies consisting of 
nanobots will become affordable and capable of taking any form. It is also hard to imagine full body holograms featured featuring controlling controlled matter. One thing is clear, however, humanity for the first time in its history will make a fully managed evolutionary transition and eventually become a new species. This is what they're working on guys in these laboratories. While we're out here trying to figure out how we're going to pay our bills and, and what, what uh, you know, what we're going to eat for dinner. These people are working on this kind of stuff. Ooh. This is what they're working on. You know why? Because they read these tablets. That's why. Darla reveals the Avatar program, right? The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's what DARPA stands for. That's what the acronym stands for. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency is an agency of the United States Department of Defense responsible for development of emerging technologies for use by the military. According to Sebastian Anthony of Extreme Tech News, Avatar goes to work on interfaces and algorithms to enable a soldier to effectively partner with a semi-autonomous bipedal machine, a robot, and allow it to act as the soldier's surrogate, just like in the movie Avatar. Nothing different. DARPA wants to develop the walking equivalent of an uh, an unarmed aerial vehicle, a bipedal robot drone, where the controlling soldier is hundreds or even thousands of miles away from the war front, sitting in an underground bunker connected to a computer with a, with a, uh, with a cap on with sensors on his brain, sending a symbiotic link directly to that field robot and then fighting a war without ever having leaving the bunker. That's what they're working on, guys. That's what they're working on. Where do they get this information from? They get it from the tablets. All these ideas come from Emerald Tablets and other ancient tablets. They come up with no new ideas. They read these ancient books. When Hitler was out there making all that advanced technology, the one, the, the Wonder Weapon and the, the Die Glock and the, uh, and the Hanabu craft, those anti-gravity craft that he created That's starting back nice. in the thirties, he got all that information. Hitler sent his people scouring around the planet looking at all the ancient sites and getting all the ancient tablets and texts he can get his hands on. That's how he learned a lot about what he developed in, in his military. It all came from ancient texts. Raiders of the Last Star. <laughs> this appears to refer to the history There's of nine. the two masters and the plan they executed. They left their base reality and entered into the holographic simulation we call our universe then proceeded to transfer their consciousness into avatars and build a great deep underground base of operations. The underground base was blasted out by superior earthborne technologies and then protected by a force field. Within this home base, they built the halls of Amenti, which appears to be powered by a crystal that directs energy emanating from the flower of life. This is the Emerald Tablets, guys. This is the Emerald Tablets I'm reading right now. Yep. The crystal structure used is most likely the eighth dimensional quasi crystal. Now, this is my interjection here with my physics, quantum physics. The crystal structure used is most likely an eighth dimensional quasi crystal. By this method, they could project a three dimensional hologram of our entire universe. The following link provides an in depth explanation, and I even give you a link to an actual full science article on what a quasi crystal actually is. And so, a quasi crystal is an eighth dimensional crystal, which we now know how to replicate. Even though we're in the third dimension, we figured out how to replicate a third dimensional, a uh, eighth dimensional quasi crystal. Now, the eighth dimensional quasi crystal projects a shadow 
to a fourth dimensional cube. And that cube then projects a sphere. And that is the holographic the holographic universe that we're actually living in. We're living inside the shadow of an eighth dimensional quasi crystal, a light, a shadow of light, a light matrix. Okay. A light matrix, which we know how to duplicate ourselves rudimentarily, a rudimentary uh, version of it. We can, we can create now in the third dimension. Look up eighth dimensional quasi crystals or get my book. You know, all, all my sources are in here. Pretty interesting. Emergence theory. Emergence theory is a quantum gravity unification theory that brings together quantum mechanics, general and special relativity. At the root of emergence theory is the idea that the whole of reality is made of information that must follow rules and be enacted upon by a user. According to the theory, information is defined as symbols that convey a meaning. Codes and languages are examples of symbols that convey meanings. These symbols and meanings must then follow the rules. For example, words must be arranged in a certain way to create communication. Mm-hmm. Lastly, a chooser or some form of consciousness must exact must exist to interact with the information to choose how it is actually used. Speaking of language and codes, science has observed that reality is geometric at all scales, quasi crystals. Additionally, some scientists hypothesize that all meaning in our physical reality is expressed through an entirely geometric language or code using symbolism, bringing the mathematics of quasi-crystals into it and more complete the picture and it can be finally seen. Guys, you got to get the book, uh, (laughs) Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. Let's go back to what Thoth says. I'm getting a little too sciencey. Let me get back to what Thoth is talking about. Side by side, then, place other spaces. Fill them with life and fill them with light from above. Build they then the halls of Amenti. He's talking about the construction of this place where he would put his bodies to get them rejuvenated for, so he can have his life extension. We're talking about building a facility which we found underneath the Great Pyramid. The halls are there. It's all in the book and the halls and the, and the link to the sources. They found these halls underneath the Great Pyramid, extending out one mile underneath the sand. The halls are empty now. There's no technology there, but the halls are there. But we found another halls of Aventi, which his dad owns. And whoever goes to Egypt with me in October, I'm going to take you to the halls of Aventi owned by Enki. Okay? Incredible. Whoever's coming, I know there's a, there's a lot of people, probably some of you guys here on this live are coming to Egypt with me in October. And we're going to the halls of Aventi. <clears throat> so, build a day then the halls of Aventi that they might dwell eternally there, living with life to eternity's end. Thirty and two were the children of sons of light who had come among men, seeking to free from seeking to be free from the bondage of darkness, those who were bound by the force from beyond. Deep in the halls of life grew a flower. We're talking about the flower of life, which the flower of life is literally the the face of God. Flaming, expanding, dividing backward in the night. Now, the flower of life that they're talking about here, they're drawing source of energy directly from the flower of life. Now, what is this flower of life? Okay. The flower of life symbol, as we all know, is uh, is these intersecting circles, right? Let me see if I can put one on my screen for you guys real quick. Flower of life. We're going to school today. If you can keep up. 
me pull up a flower of life image and uh and then I'm gonna break it down for you here. Uh, let's see. Okay, here's one. Boom. Now let me just share my screen so you guys can take a look at this. I want to make sure I know some of y'all know, but some people may not know. So let me show you what this flower of life is real quick. Now let me go back over here and I'll share my screen so you guys can see what I'm looking at. Boom. Share screen. Okay. This symbol right here is the flower of life. You may have seen me wearing a necklace that looks just like this. These intersecting circles uh, incorporate many geometric shapes and figures, and also it also incorporates something called the vector equilibrium. Now, these intersecting circles are very, very important because you're talking about they incorporate the seed of life, the, uh, the, the fruit of life, the tree of life, it's all incorporated within these circles. Now, if you were to take 64 small pyramids and put them inside this uh, this circle of flower life pattern, you would stack them in a way that would fill up this that would fill up this entire circle, this entire sphere. Now, these when you take it to a three dimensional substructure, you realize that the 64 grid tetrahedron that sits inside, which are pyramids by the way, that sits inside of this uh, of this geometric shape. They house something called the vector equilibrium. And, and the vector equilibrium is a point at which unlimited amounts of energy exist at every Planck unit in space time. We're talking about zero point energy. We're talking about the zero point energy field, which is one of the things that I research at my tech company. And so what we found is that these, uh, these people that wrote these tablets, both in particular, He's talking about building a uh, a base that has a force field, and then he's talking about building these the halls of Amenti and his chamber, the, his rejuvenation chambers, and tapping in his energy source is the flower of life. Thirty-two people helping him build this thing. Placing in the center a ray of great potence, life-giving, in the center, in the center of the of the flower of life, which exists. All around us, the flower of life is 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 beyond microscopic, but it exists at every Planck unit in space time, and in the center of each one is a zero point energy field. Place in the center a ray of great potence. It's unlimited power, unlimited, life giving, light giving, filling with power to all who came near it. Place they around it thrones, two and two, uh, two and thirty places for each of the children of light. Place so that they were bathed in the radiance, filled with the light from the eternal light. So I say, open your eye. These are the flower of life representations, which are encoded with the 64 grid tetrahedron parallax. However, these are actually two dimensional representations of a three dimensional structure. The structure is actually a shadow being laid down by the eight dimensional quasi crystal. This shadow is what we call the entire universe creating a matrix in which we all are fully immersed. Ancient civilizations left us this pattern to show us all over the planet. All right? Let me kind of current comment. So see what we're talking about here? See these ancient cultures all showing the flower of life? Ancient cultures from all around the world. All around the world, guys. 
Because why? It's the secret to zero point energy. It's the secret to not having to plug anything into the wall anymore. Oh. Cell phones. Yes. They shouldn't have to plug into anything. You literally just have your phone tap into the existing energetic field that already exists all around us. There's no need to plug in anything. These guys were tapping into that for energy sources. <clears throat> and then Thoth says, their time after, time, place, they, their first created bodies. So he's saying after this thing was constructed and built, finally, they created some bodies and put them in these in these chambers so that they may be filled with the spirit of life. So they energized these bodies and gave them life. Even though they didn't have consciousness yet, they gave these bodies life. Okay? Thank you for the sticker. 100 years out of each thousand must the life-giving light flame forth come forth on their bodies, quickening and awakening the spirit of life. 100 years out of each thousand. So every hundred, these bodies would sit in the chamber for a hundred years out of every thousand years before. So it would rejuvenate for a hundred, then he would walk around in it. Then he'd put it back in for a hundred again and walk around in it again. So if he'd walk around for 900 years, put the body back in the chamber again, rejuvenate it all over. So he'd have to keep making bodies all over, all the time. They're in the circle from eon to eon, sit the great masters, living a life not known among men. They're in the halls of life, they lie sleeping. Free flows their soul through the bodies of men. They're talking about they have the ability to transfer their consciousness to different bodies and walk around people. Time after time, while their bodies lie sleeping, incarnate they in the bodies of men, teaching and guiding onward and upward out of the darkness to the light. So what they're saying is they would take these bodies, create these sleeves, put them in these chambers, and they would take turns walking around and, and, and guiding civilizations on this planet, trying to help man regain his full and true potential. And then, you know, while they were walking around, the other bodies that they had would be sitting in these sleeping in these chambers, completely, uh, you know, null of any consciousness, uh, just sitting there and, and rejuvenating. Uh, pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Incredible. So I'm going to take a break here. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you part of Enki's Halls of Amenti. I'm going to show you a picture of me down in there. I got to find it right quick. So give me a quick second. I'm going to pull it up. And uh, let's see here. Okay, kind of had it up. I was on Jimmy Church's show last night. I think I had it. Yeah, I think I can find it pretty quick. Oh, yeah, thanks, goodness. Here we go. All right, let me get it up for you guys. Hang tight. I'm going to share my screen again. Whoever goes to Egypt with me this October... If you, if you don't know about this Egypt trip, I'll drop the link. There's only a few seats left. I think we got about five seats left and that's it. The whole trip is full. It's about 50 of us going. Um, this is a, <laughs> uh, 80 ton, uh, granite box sitting inside of a hall, inside the halls of Amenti, Enki's halls of Amenti. This area that I'm standing in is in an alcove of one hall. 
And this box that I'm sitting next to, this gigantic, quote unquote, sarcophagus is not actually a sarcophagus at all. Now, what's interesting about it is a few things. First of all, there's 12 stargates etched into this black granite box. 12. Three on each side, on the smaller side, and, and, um, uh, what is it? It's, it's, uh, actually more than 12, 16 actually, because you have the ones on this side, you have the ones on that side, and you have the ones in the front and the back. So actually 16 stargates. These squares, these rectangles, I mean, they're actually stargates. This is what the hieroglyphs are talking about. These are gates for transferring to other places. It's the only one there that has these stargates on it. Now what's interesting is, you see where my hand is. My hand is literally sitting on top of warped granite. You cannot warp granite. You can't warp granite, okay? Not with any conventional means. You can't hit it with a hammer or throw a rock at it and bend, make it warp and bend like it was like it was water, like it was wet. When you go there, whoever goes with me, you will go down into this. We'll get you to climb over if you have the capability to move to to climb like that, and get you in back of this because I'm actually in the back of the uh, of the uh, hall, this little alcove. Now, what's interesting is if you were to take a line and draw a line from my hand straight to your chest, there's a wall there that you can't see because from the perspective this was taken, it's taken from the perspective of the wall. That wall has a circular hole that looks like it was blasted out by an energy beam. And it, the beam obviously went through the wall and came and hit this granite. And whatever it did, it altered the atomic structure of the granite. And this is... uh it looks like an opening of a, of a gate opened up. Somebody came in through a portal right into this room Ooh. and their beam or their energetic force from that beam or whatever that, whatever that portal energy is called, it warped this granite like this. So when you go with me in uh, October, I'm going to take you and you'll be able to see this and you'll be able to touch it. I actually climbed inside of some of these chambers. There's actually quite a few in there. There's over a dozen of them in there. I've got inside of some of these these halls of Menti uh, rejuvenation chambers. If you have enough strength, we'll help you get inside of one. You'll feel the energy when you get in it. You will feel it. I guarantee you will feel it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So this is Ea Enki's halls of Menti. Who's Ea Enki? He's the father of Thoth. He's a, that's his dad. He's also known as Thought Me inside the Emerald Tablets. T H O T H M E Thought Me. So he's Ea Enki. He owns. Uh, this particular chamber. All these individual quote unquote gods or these ancient Sumerian Anunnaki landing people, the ones, you know, they all had their own chambers in different locations. This was Enki's chamber location. So these would all be full of his own sleeves where Thope had his own underneath the Great Pyramid because he built the Great Pyramid and Lil had his somewhere else. So they all, you know, they had their own chambers. So we'll go to the halls of Amenti when we go to Egypt in just a few short months. It's going to be amazing. All right. Crazy stuff, man. Crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy. Um, when you get inside of one of those chambers, you're going to feel the energy. That's all I can tell you. It's, it's mind blowing. And the fact that it's so deep, the lid on that thing weighed about 40 tons. You didn't even see the lid. The lid weighed about 40 tons. Let me see if I can go back and show you the lid right quick. Hold on. Let me go back for a second. Let's see if I can find that lid. Let's see. See the lid up here? It's angled off. 
lid weighs about 40 tons. You put a body in there and put that lid on it. Ain't nobody coming to move that. First of all, <laughs> these gigantic granite boxes could not be a drug or you put into these alcoves inside these halls of Amenti. You haven't even seen the full hall yet. It's bored with vitrification. It's an amazing technology that's used to create this hall. But uh, they have to be teleported into these locations. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to get them in there. To te- they're teleported into these spots. Okay. Crazy stuff. There's another p- picture. You can see the lid up top. I'm six foot four. So that means that this box is approximately six feet tall from the ground up because there's only about four inches of my head left above the, the height of the box. Uh, yeah, it's just wild. It's just crazy. Crazy stuff, man. You can see the pyramid priest here, my good friend. Well, that's my black card uh, company that I market for. <laughs> Let me go back this way. You see here I am inside of, uh, I'm inside of the bent pyramid of the shore or either the red pyramid, one of the two pyramids, I'm inside of a shaft. In those shafts you crawl, you know, kilometers, you know, a half a mile, a mile this way, a mile that way, a half a mile this way, a third of a mile that way. I climbed about 1.5 miles in one day inside of a pyramid, inside of the pyramid. Whoever comes to me in October, make sure you've been exercising because we're going to do some, some exercise. You're going to be climbing. Oh, it's a commercial. I was hoping that wasn't the case. I'm inside of Nefertari's tomb here. You can see the quality of this tomb and the amazing colors. And you can see what I'm standing between. These images on the left and right of me, those are Jed pillars. Those are technology. The Jed is the source of power. It would literally tap into wireless electricity, and they would have plugs at the bottom that would plug into devices that they can power up, like light bulbs and so forth. Crazy stuff. Tesla coils. All right, let me go back to where I was now. Let me get back to the screen. Amazing. Amazing stuff, guys. So, anyway, hope you guys are having a good time. Halls of Amenti. Now, let me go for one more thing here. Let me wrap this thing up. Was it here? Okay, hold on. Oh, that's a good one for a second talk. It goes into cymatic frequencies. Um, that would be a good one for a second talk because I want to spend a lot. I don't want to rush that one. I want to spend a lot of time on that one. Yeah, I want to spend a lot of time on that one. Yeah. Check this out, guys. I'm going to read this to you. <clears throat> so, when Thoth is getting sent to the land of Kim by his father, Anki, also known as Thotme, he gets into a ship. Okay? Now, let's take a look at this ship that he gets into for a second here. Let's read this. We're going to start here. 
pretty crazy stuff. Okay, here we go. So here's his dad talking to him now, right? So, so, so Anki's talking to Thoth and he's telling him that there's been a catastrophe on Earth, that you need to go back to Earth and you need to help bring them back to a high level of civilization, right? So, uh, he says, take them by the arts ye have learned far across the waters until you reach the land of the hairy barbarians dwelling in the caves of the desert. <laughs> Follow there the plan that ye know of. Gathered, gathered I did not focus speaking. Gathered I then my people. So he's going in a ship with people, his crew. Gathered I then my people and entered the great ship of the master. He entered the, the what are you saying? The great, remember the way that they're speaking, they speak like Yoda, or I should say Yoda speaks like them because, because George Lucas copied the, the, the dialect from this, from these tablets. But what he's saying is we got into a mothership. In our modern terms, we would say a mothership. Gathered I then my people and entered the great ship of the master. Upward we rose into the morning. Upward we rose. He said upward we rose. He didn't say we got into a ship and sailed out. Upward. We went up. A ship that goes up is a flying ship. Dark beneath us lay the temple. So beneath them, they could see a temple. That's the temple that they took off from. Suddenly over it rose the waters, vanished from the earth. They got so far, they went into the atmosphere. They call that the waters, the separate waters. That's the atmosphere. And then they vanished from the earth. In other words, they went into space. Until the time appointed was the great temple. In other words, they, they finally reached, reached their destination at an appointed time. Fast we fled toward the sun of the morning until beneath us lay the land of the children of Kem. Beneath them lay the land of the children of Kem. In other words, they were flying in a ship that left and went into space, found their target, came back down until they found the location that they were going to have their mission. And it was beneath them. It wasn't, hey, look, ashore. No, it was something below them, which means they were descending down on people. In that ship. When they landed. Thoth says raging they came. With cudgels and spears. Lifted in anger. Seeking to slay and utterly destroy the sons of Atlantis. These people were going to attack them. These people were scared. Like what is this thing landing. In our you know where we live. On our property. We got to attack this thing. We don't know what this is. Then I raised my staff. Thoth says. And directed a ray of vibration. Striking them still in their tracks as fragments of stone of the mountain. He hit them with a stun gun and froze them and stopped them from attacking. Those provides us evidence of a weapon unknown. <clears throat> Those provides us with a weapon of unknown technology. Is it a ray gun or some type of a stun gun weapon used that uses sonic vibration? Let's take a look and see. The U.S. military has one. It's called the active denial system. Let's see what they do with it. The active denial system uh, is a needed, uh, uh, the active denial system ADS is needed in light of the fact that non-lethal and counter workforce systems are needed. Much more than the present day lethal weapons, 
are, are no good. So the active denial system delivers the effects of a non-lethal weapon that has a similar impact on every single human target. So the not the, the active denial system, this is from military.gov, what it happens is if um if there's a crowd of people coming to attack, this beam can be sent from that array and will strike that crowd that that, that those attacking people and they have several modes of frequencies. One frequency will make you feel like you want to vomit. One frequency will stop you in your tracks and put you make you feel like you're in pain. The other frequency will make you feel like you're on fire. And even they have another frequency that can make you hear voices in your head. All from an invisible beam coming from this, this device right here on top of this truck. Mm-hmm. Sounds very similar to what Thoth did when he says, I raised my staff and directed a ray of vibration, striking them still in their tracks as fragments of stone in the mountain. So we have more evidence of advanced technology being used 36,000 years ago. He says, then I spoke to them in words calm and peaceful, telling them of the might of Atlantis, saying we were children of the sun and its messengers. He never said he was God. He never, not once said he was God. This is why I respect this guy. Because some of his relatives did. He didn't. <clears throat> Both never said that they were gods. He always referenced himself as the son of man or the son of Atlantis. And Thoth said, cowed I them by my display of magic science. What he's saying is, I'd be, I'd be, I, 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 I had the people tripping. I showed him my, my little doodads. I showed him my little watch. You know, I showed them my cell phone and my little gear, my little technology stuff, and they were like, whoa, this guy's, this guy's a god. Until at my feet, they groveled when I released them. So long dwelt we in the land of Kim, long and yet long again, until obeying the commands of the master. In other words, we stayed there until we did what the mission was, which was to bring them back to a higher level of civilization. He literally listened to his father. He stayed in the land of Kim. He went to go see these people who didn't know who he was because they had been, their civilization had collapsed after some kind of global catastrophe. And by that, by the second or third generation, these people are just like barbarians again. He, he talks peace with them. He shows them that he's more advanced than them. But then he says, Hey, I'm here to work with you guys. And he begins to help them build a civilization more advanced than it was before. <clears throat> Pretty cool. Then he says, um, Who, while sleeping, yet lives eternally? I sent from me the sons of Atlantis. This is important now. I sent from me the sons of Atlantis. Sent them in many directions. That from the womb of time, wisdom might rise again in her children. What he's saying here is, the people that he brought with him, the crew that came with him from the original location that they, that they, that they ascended from in that ship. He took them there. They worked together to build the land of Kim, rebuild it, rebuild it. It was already built before, but many millennia prior. He went to rebuild the land of Kim and bring it back to a high level. Once they accomplished that, he told his crew members, okay, guys, you guys spread around the world. Go everywhere on this planet and duplicate what we did here. I sent from me. I sent me, go, the sons of Atlantis. You guys go out. I sent them in many directions. 
that from the womb of time, wisdom might rise again in her children. From the womb of time, that in time, over time, as they develop and build these civilizations based on my architectural floor plan and my system and my structure, that mankind will rise back to a high level of civilization globally. That's what he's saying. Then he spent a long time, he dwelt in the land of Kim, doing great works by the wisdom within him. Kim, by the way, is where you get the word chemistry and alchemy. Those two things came out of the land of Kim. That's where it originated. Both sent his crew to all continents to kickstart new civilizations based on the same basic architecture and sciences. These Atlanteans were global, and each ruler put a genetic marker on their humans, which created the different races we have today. Black people are not black because our ancestors were in the sun. Don't believe, don't believe that garbage they teach you in school. Okay? If you go to study genetics in university, you'll learn something totally different. We found that in genetics, we found that Caucasians, uh, Africans, indigenous Mayans, because there's no such thing as a Mexican, right? Aztecs, uh, Asians. The reason why we're all different in terms of what we call a race, and we look a little slightly different, we have different facial features, and we have, uh, you know, different eye eye structure and so forth and, and skin color, is not because of who was in the sun and who wasn't in the sun. That's dumb. It's because of a 2% variance in, in genes, which, by the way, we now know by peer-reviewed science is impossible to happen in only 200,000 years. We now know that this 2% variance in races that makes people slightly different from one another is done by artificial means. In other words, somebody, someone did this. It's a marker. And what I'm telling you is the marker is in the Emerald Tablets. Read that again, guys. What was that? Both sent his crew to all continents to kickstart new civilizations based on the same basic architecture and sciences. These Atlanteans were global, and each ruler put a genetic marker on their humans. In other words, those sent me over here to um, to rule over the Mesoamerica area. So I'm going to put on these Mayans, these are my people now. And because I look like this, because the people that both left with all were from different planets. They all look different, every single one of them. So he said, you know what, these are my people, so I'm going to make them look like me. Boom, I'm going to tinker with their genetics. Now they all have my skin tone. They all have my basic my basic looks. And so now when people, my, my other people, my other, you know, from all around, you know, these are my people. Don't mess with my people. These are my people. And all around the planet, they did this. Okay? They put genetic markers on people. It's like branding a cow. Oh. <clears throat> Another Bible verse apparently copied from a much older text seems to resonate with the words of Thoth in Ephesians 2.10. <clears throat> For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for in advance for us to do. <clears throat> very, very similar statement there in what they had been given, the, the workload that they had been given to do by Thoth and, and his father Enki. <clears throat> Upward grew into the light of knowledge, the children of Kim. So now what he's saying here is these people in the land of Kim, by the way, the original people and the inhabitants of the land of Kim after this great flood when Thoth returned 
to re-kickstart civilization? These were the Dogons. These wow. were the Dogon tribe. The Dogon tribe were the original uh, post-diluvial rulers of the land of Cam before they moved out to Mali, Africa. Well, they didn't want to move to Mali, Africa. They were overthrown at some point. <clears throat> That's a whole other story. Whatever grew into the light, the knowledge of the children of Cam, watered by the rains of my wisdom, in other words, based on my teachings, blasted I them a path to immensity so that I might retain my powers. Once I got these people set up and working right and understanding what to do, man, I went back to the Hall of Immensity so I could change out my body because my body was getting worn down. Time to get a brand new sleeve. That's what he's saying. Living from age to age, a son of Atlantis, keeping the wisdom, preserving the records, great grew the sons of Kim, conquering the people around them, growing slowly upwards in soul force. Okay? Those are the original people that came post-alluvial out of the land of Kim and helped to rebuild that civilization and dominate predominantly almost most of the planet at that time with the help of folk, the Atlantean. Okay? It's already been uh, about an hour here. A uh, lot of information, guys. <laughs> I, you probably can see why this book is, is so, you know, it's a bestseller. I mean, I'm barely even tapping into the, the information in this book. It's just so much information in this book. It's mind-blowing, you know. And uh, I wrote this book in 15 days. I literally just blocked everything. I shut everything down. It's 15 chapters. I said I'm going to do a chapter a day. I barely slept. I took power naps. And all I did for food was Uber Eats. That was it. 15 days, I locked and closed everything, put my phone on, do not disturb. I didn't hear, see, feel, talk, taste, nothing. All I did was focus on writing and decoding this information and uh, created this book, which is, to me, a work of art because the passion, I poured my I poured my whole life into this information. Now, keep in mind, I had been studying animal tablets for over a decade before that. It wasn't like I just read them that day. I had all this knowledge in my brain for so long and I finally said, why am I keep talking about writing this book and I haven't written it yet? What am I doing? That's procrastination. So I said, oh, I got, I see what's happening. This is a test. Okay, I'm shutting down everything. Everything off. I got to go to work. And I went to work. I went to work, guys. So I'm telling you, Compendium of the Animal Tablets, I'll drop a link to it here for you guys. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, who, who don't know where to get it. I saw somebody earlier ask about an autographed copy. I will, I don't know who that was because I saw it just from the corner of my eye as I was reading. <clears throat> somebody asked about an autographed copy in the chat. Uh, Rainbird, we can hear you. Can you mute your phone out so, oh, so we don't hear you? Rainbird? Rainbird? Oh, I don't think she can hear us. I I, I heard you. I, I, I accidentally came unmuted. I'm sorry. I apologize. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Here we go. I do. I used to have a lot of autographed copies. I'm going to bring them back again soon. I will probably say uh, in about a month, I'll order maybe like 500 books or so. <clears throat> And then I will sign them and put them in the, uh, where's the shop at on this thing? Move my website. I'll shop. I'll put them in the, uh, in the forbidden knowledge store as signed copies. In other words, some will be unsigned, some will be signed. And, 
And so because I have to sign them, it means I have to ship them twice. So the price has to be a little bit more because I have to ship them to where I can sign them. And then I have to ship them to back to the warehouse so they can be shipped to you. That's double the shipping cost to have a signed book. But a lot of people like to sign books, so I don't mind doing it. I'll probably sign a couple hundred of them. I'm going to drop the link to the book right now into this live chat for you guys. Rolls. Just drop the link to the chat. Boom. All right. Yankee was the good one. And love was the bad one. I saw somebody asking in the chat over here. <clears throat> Kimberly says, what about an audio book? So as far as an audio book, I have, um, I'm doing it a little bit differently. And the reason why is because once you put your book on Audible, your value of your book drops significantly. It drops to nothing. And uh, so what I'm doing is I'm doing an audio version, which I've already got the book completely read in a professional voice, but I'm doing it in TV shows. So there'll be a TV show. It'll be on Forbidden TV. It's all being produced right now, where it's going to be more of a theatrical audio, where there'll be some slight reenactments with some graphics moving around in the background, some images and video while it's being read to give you an idea of what's kind of going on and make it more than just an audio. And it'll be set up in episodes and chapters, uh, episodes and seasons. I'm sorry. The seasons will be the chapters and the episodes will be inside of each chapter. And if you just... Log in to Forbidden Knowledge TV. That's what it's going to be exclusively on Forbidden TV. And you press play. It'll go from show episode to episode to episode to episode all the way down. So by that method, you can listen to it through Forbidden Knowledge TV on my app or on Forbidden TV on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, uh, the iOS app store, Google Play or the web. So that's how I'm going to do it. That's probably not going to be out for like another five months or so, but that's how I'm going to do the audio version of the book. Where I have control over my own content. All right. So it's going to be pretty cool, like a theatrical visual going on at the same time. So I'm going to do it. All right. Pretty cool stuff. Um, but yeah, guys, thanks, man. I appreciate y'all guys hanging out with me tonight and for this uh, live podcast. Um, I'm going to drop the link again in here to the shares. I can't tell you enough. If you have the capability, I know everybody does it. But if you have the capability, make sure you get the shares. Because round two is going to be ending very soon. And uh, it's a ground for opportunity. Um, and people who have gotten round one, their money went up 50% because they paid a dollar share. The shares went to a dollar 50. I don't make the share prices. That's not regulated by me. And now round two, our pre-money valuation went from 20,000 to 30, uh, 20, 20 million to 30 million. And our next pre-money valuation going into round three is probably going to be higher. Now, what drives the valuation of the company? What drives it is revenue. How much revenue is the company bringing in? Forbidden knowledge, and you can download all this from the, from the link I just dropped to you. It's all available on the link, okay? Forbidden knowledge uh, is generates significant revenue in many different areas. So we have the TV streaming, it's the streaming TV platform, right, which is Forbidden Knowledge TV. Somebody asked for that link, I'll drop it to you real quick. What I'm talking, right? Three three little letters. Four B A dot TV. That's how you get to it. That's the quickest way to get to it. Four BK dot TV. So we have the streaming revenue from the streaming TV platform with thousands of subscribers paying seven bucks a month, which is very a very low number. Very, very small uh fee for streaming TV. 
Uh, and then we have the, uh, the books, right? This book has sold 88,000 copies so far. If you add the, the, my other book, Woke Doesn't Mean Broke, another 40,000 there. You know, Elizabeth's book is now a bestseller, Recipe to Elevated Consciousness. And then my son's book, you know, Manifest Destiny Journal, which is doing phenomenal still. So we have a book publishing company. Forbidden Knowledge is a book, is its own book publishing company. We just gave out two book deals. We're giving out book deals now to people. Cruz, uh, you know, he just got his first book deal from us. His book is now going into editing. And then we actually signed a TV producer who's writing a book on esoteric knowledge. And her book is going to be going into editing probably in about three or four months. So we're giving out book deals. Books generate a lot of revenue. If there are books that have high quality content that people obviously you know, actually want to buy. And um, so, of course, we know the niche and we know where people's minds are focused on on books and for book sales. So we're already in the right pocket in terms of the, the, the type of market. And we have already built the following that wants to buy this kind of content. And so we have the books. We also have, don't forget about the music, okay, 340 songs in global distribution, which brings a royalty every single month to Forbidden Knowledge, of all the music that I've done, including songs that have been on Billboard and uh, been on the charts. Right now I have a song on the charts, Woke Don't Mean Broke, the remix. The music video just got produced and just got accepted by MTV, Yo, and, and Revolt, Revolt TV. So in about two or three weeks, you'll see us promoting Revolt TV and MTV. Our conscious music talking about financial literacy is going to be on Revolt TV and MTV. We're breaking through, guys. We're, bre- we're breaking through the ma- we're breaking through the mainstream. They can't stop us. They can't stop us. We're breaking through the mainstream. Uh, and yet, you know, set generation residuals. I have TV. I have music license to TV shows. Music license to TV commercials. Music license to department stores. Um, you know, and so. And sometimes I make more money than rappers because I don't, I, 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 without having to go to nightclubs and party and, and do drugs, I just sit in my house and produce tracks and make sure it's stuff that can be played in everywhere. Simple, not too hard. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about that. So we have the music. We also have our own social media app, Unite the 99, which is a private social media app owned by us, owned by Forbidden Knowledge. And in that app, there's a dating club called uh, date conscious. It's only $4 a month and it's filling up fast. People are starting to talk and interact really great in there. We're looking at building that to a million to 2 million people inside that dating club on our private app, Unite the 99, available in your app store, which is a free app download. And then a dating club, whoever wants to join the premium club for, for conscious dating, dating somebody who's on the same frequency as you, uh, that generates revenue as well for Forbidden Knowledge TV. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we used to have all the, uh, uh, all the, uh, the, the events. So what I've done is I've converted the events and put the events into the streaming platform. So all the events are free now. You just have to be a subscriber, but that drives more subscriptions, you see? And then my public speaking, which drives revenue and that goes to forbidden knowledge directly again. And also, uh, my TV appearances also go towards forbidden knowledge. And so it's, it's a multifaceted company with, with legs and arms all over the place. You know, now we have the NFTs and the crypto. There's just a lot. And so all this is synergistically feeding forbidden knowledge and just making it grow and grow and grow. And ultimately what we're going to be doing is going on NASDAQ and getting a ticker symbol and going public, taking the company public so that the people who have shares, we're taking you guys on a ride with us all the way to the top. 
something that a lot of companies will never do, give you an opportunity to get in in the beginning and ride to the top. All right. So that's what it's all about, guys. So if you can get your shares, get your shares. It's going to be phenomenal. Uh, this is going to be an incredible, incredible year. This is going to be probably one of the best years in Forbidden Knowledge. We have the Black Knight Satellite documentary coming out June 5th, airing in some theaters. The first theater will be Imagine and uh, Imagine Movie Theater in Detroit, Michigan, or just outside of Detroit, Michigan. You can get that ticket on Eventbrite. It'll be a red carpet event. I'll be dressed in a black tie. You know, we take pictures, walk the red carpet. I'll be speaking, and then we're going to show the actual movie. Uh, and all that good stuff. It's going to be phenomenal. Some of the cast and crew will be there. The producer will be there. It's going to be great. And uh, we'll be doing a little mini city tour with that. After we get done with that, it will air exclusively on Forbidden Knowledge TV, where it's going to do phenomenal. And another revenue source is we just signed our first deal with Netflix. So we had Netflix. And it's in post-editing right now being wrapped up. And when it comes on, you're going to see the Forbidden Knowledge intro, a new one, a nicer one that we have now. I mean, we keep getting better and better and better, but you'll see the Forbidden Knowledge intro and you'll see my name uh, on that Netflix documentary. So pretty cool stuff. So we're, we're moving on up in the world, getting a lot of things done, working on producing two high-end movies a year and 10 to 12 brand new TV series every single year. We have right now 10 new series in post-editing. It's a lot for the editors to work on. That's why... You see new things popping up. This thing and getting it to this high level, way above where it was before. High production quality, high standards, the whole works on Forbidden All. So I'm pretty excited about it. And we're looking eventually to start acquiring other companies, other media companies. We're going to start buying companies up like crazy. So this is going to be a wild ride, guys. I hope you buckle in and, uh, you know, get ready for this ride and enjoy the ride, too. Smell the roses a long way. It's going to be amazing. All right? It's going to be amazing. Looking forward to it. A premiere. Let me see. I'm going to drop the link to the movie premiere for you guys real quick. I see people asking about it. Let me get the link to you from eventbrite.com. Uh, let me see here. Okay. Let me get you this link before I sign off. <clears throat> All right, let's see my events, and let me get blank. Oops. My events. Okay. Actually, there's a lot of events coming up. You know what I'm going to do, guys? I'm going to give you the link to all of my all of my events at once, upcoming events. Here's the movie premiere. Actually, I thought I, I thought we had a link broken out, but we don't, so I'll have to do it this way. Here's the movie premiere. I'd like to see as many of you there as possible. Just drop the link in the live chat for you. And workshops. We'll give you all my free workshops. Drop this last link and then I'm out. Free workshops. I think I have nine more, eight more free workshops this year. If you can take advantage of them. You don't have to even travel anywhere. Just turn your TV on. <laughs> turn on your computer, your laptop, your tablet, your computer. Just dial, just log right in. Forbidden TV. Okay, sign up for those free workshops. All right? <clears throat> all right? And they're all on Forbidden TV. I have another one coming up here very, very soon. Juneteenth, I'm doing a free workshop on inventions by the top 20 inventions by black people. 
really super unique inventions that hardly anybody knows about. I'm going to be covering those on Juneteenth. If you don't know, if you don't know what Juneteenth is, that's the day that blacks, uh, you know, actually got their freedom long after the, the Independence Day thing, which is nothing to do with us at all. So I'm doing something special on Juneteenth and, but there's many more. I have a crypto, a, a cryptocurrency masterclass. I have, um, spirituality, spirituality versus religion, uh, workshop. There's just a whole list of workshops in there. Just check them all out. Sign them up. They're all free. It doesn't cost you any money. All right. And uh, thanks again, guys, for joining me on another great night. I really appreciate y'all so much. It's been a long journey, but, man, we're getting there little by little, just little by little. We're just taking that shoulder, and we're getting there. We're taking forbidden knowledge and making it mainstream knowledge. This is what people are going to be talking about. People are getting tired of looking at TV and, and getting all the fear-mongering, all the hate, all the divide-and-conquer garbage, all the politics, all the religion garbage, all that junk. They're tired of it. They're just frustrated. They're tired. They did a scientific study. I'm going to say this before I go. On people. But what they did was they put them in front of a regular TV, right? Regular TV shows and connected the little cap, the little electrode to a computer. And also they put this other sensor on their skin to detect the emission of cortisol. They found that by watching the news and these other shows, it was spiking cortisol and making their nervous system go erratic. Just watching regular TV. We want to change that. We want to have people feel good when they get done watching a, sh- a series or a show on our network. We want people to walk away feeling fulfilled and happy and empowered and enlightened, not disheveled and downtrodden and fearful and hurt and PTSD. <laughs> See, the opposite. Yeah. That's why I know what I have is golden. What I have is golden because we can actually cure and heal people and make people feel whole. And we can have a living at the same exact time. There's no other better way to live on this planet. All right. So anyway, I appreciate you guys. Love you. All right. And I will catch you guys later. Peace. Okay. It's the number four bidden, B-I-D-D-E-N, knowledge, K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G-E.com. The number four bidden knowledge.com. All right. We're going to jump to the very next thing here. Let's okay. do it, Karma. This is, um, you need to hear this. Our history is not what we are told. Ancient civilizations. Graham Hancock. And there's all kinds of folks in here from the Asian Alien series and Greg Braden. Here we go. The fifth kind. This video is in association with Gaia.com. Go to Gaia.com forward slash fifth kind for access to thousands of thought-provoking documentaries and original programs. Follow the links in the description below. The Nazca lines are still being revealed. Only recently, Japanese scientists discovered another 70 images in the Nazca Desert by using drone technology. It is very possible that the knowledge of our relationship to the stars existed much earlier and was transmitted to the people of Nazca. Le territoire irakien comporte de nombreuses portes stéréo. 
I believe there are many stellar gateways on the Iraqi territory. Gods can travel through stellar gates like the ones that we see in Stargate. I think this is the reason behind the problems that occur there. Indeed, we know very well that today, most archaeological studies all over Iraq have come to a halt. Maybe we could find something. The day when it is actually possible to conduct excavations again in Iraq. Once again, we are far from scientific proof. One simple but brilliant trick to cool your home in 90 seconds. Tired of hot and stuffy rooms during supper. Why would the military, or even the Americans, focus on this particular spot? Are they using stellar portals? I had a long conversation with Gary Zeitling about this before he passed. There were things he knew that he didn't tell me. His wife had worked for the American Secret Services, and he worked on the SETI project for a long time. He also collaborated a little with NASA. But the fact that they got involved in and supported my work so much over several years makes me believe there is some truth to it, or at least that they had access to information which coincided with what I had translated. Anton Park's research on the Sumerian cuneiforms not only attracted the attention of those in curious fields, but it also opened new doors at looking at older evidence. The basis of our modern scholarship on Sumer comes out of the library of Ashurbanipal that was found in Nineveh. And in this area, there were metallic sheets that had patterns and little illustrations etched into them. And there are several illustrations. In the Sumerian text, there are stories very, very similar of where advanced intelligences were able to move between dimensional realities. And they would do it using a, a small device uh, that they were able to take and tune in a, a very precise way uh, to the material of the earth, to the rocks of the earth that would allow them to do this. So there are other stargates. Is it possible that, like the ancient mathematical language encoded in the Great Pyramid, these shortcuts to other dimensions were created by the gods as a means to not only travel, but empower human beings to see beyond the veil? They're beginning to, to discover that there are uh, many other dimensions, and that these dimensions are only separated from ours by an electromagnetic membrane. In fact, he equates it to a radio frequency. We, as creatures, right now are tuned into this radio frequency. If we could reach in and just turn the dial a little bit, you're going to tune into the next one. And how horrifying might that be, or how beautiful might that be? We don't know really what's existing on those dimensions. What we do know is in places like the Cairo Museum in Egypt, a number of artifacts have been found from sites such as Saqqara, for example. 
that scientists simply cannot explain. They're reluctant to even put them on view to the public. Some of them are in back rooms or they're boxed up in the lower levels. They're made of materials that are not from Earth. We don't know what this stuff is. Could these materials of unearthly origin be proof that these gateways did exist? Anything referred to as a gate of God or a navel of the earth is usually a sort of an energetic hotspot where the laws of physics are slightly different or just so that allows you to step through a portal into a, another level of existence. There is one interpretation that would say perhaps there was something going on connecting different planets, different civilizations. Uh, and remember, the Sumerian accounts are of jealous gods, essentially, gods who are vying for influence and power. Could mankind's ability to find these stargates be the next chapter in forwarding our understanding of the multidimensional universe we live in? There's a stargate uh, believed to be a, a similar doorway. It's in Turkey. There are others in Egypt. Uh, there are others in Iraq. Uh, and there are naturally occurring stargates uh, in the American desert southwest that the native people talk about. Places like Gebekli Tepe, or certainly the area around Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey, the area around Giza in Egypt, and other places like Stonehenge in uh, England, they form part of what might be described as an earth grid, and that there were reasons for establishing these places. They all have something in common with each other. And if you ask me what that is, I would probably say that it's geomagnetic anomalies, the appearance of strange light phenomena, what we would call UFOs today, the manifestation of supernatural forms, um, supernatural ent entities, and the idea that you can achieve altered states of consciousness more easily at these places than elsewhere. So there is an elaborate science that I've gone into for many years, which I was analyzing how it is possible that stone monuments can actually function as a portal generator. That in fact, it is a remnant of an advanced technology where even something as simple as a pure stone, if you understand the earth is naturally given off these bubbles, that will allow you to portal into other realities. Then you have to know where to build the stones, and the stones actually become like a focusing mechanism that capture those bubbles coming up from the Earth's core that are multidimensional and allow you to travel through these portals. The question is, you know, what are we dealing with? I think it's worth considering some extraordinary possibilities. Amongst them, that which actually quantum physicists would not find so extraordinary, that we live in a multidimensional universe, that we're occupying one particular dimension of this uh, of this universe, but there are many other dimensions which are normally inaccessible to us and inaccessible to our senses, but that, that, that can be reached in, in certain ways. And uh, perhaps the most direct gateway to the realm of the gods is found through the deliberate, targeted, well-thought-out alteration of consciousness. That seems to me perfectly plausible. One of the most famous portals, the Bermuda Triangle, is a good representation of how planes and boats simply disappear into another dimension, never to return. Research on this area is quite extensive. 
But what about other seemingly non-active portals? What kind of physical elements could these hot spots possess that could empower humans or gods to tap into simulated universes? And that frequency, what you need in order for that to really happen are quartz crystal deposits, very vast quartz crystal deposits. And it just so happens our planet has vast crystal deposits all around the globe. And that to us is showing us that this is an area with underlying quartz crystal deposits that are strong enough that they're causing uh, tears in this membrane. And that's the reason why you get such a wide array of phenomenon all occurring in a very small geographic area. I think the stargates kind of represent places where the veil thins and that we're able to enter into contact with spirit on an easier level. Now, you can look at these as places within your own soul. You can also look at them as specific places on the earth. I think a lot of cathedrals and ancient monuments and stuff were built on ley line nexus points. So the energy of the earth is very strong in these locations. And also you get people conducting ritual and ceremony and whatnot over a long period of time. The etheric field of the place almost becomes a well-worn pathway back into Eden or the Tree of Life. If indeed this is true, is there a physical place on earth that mixes the mythological and science to possibly be the perfect gateway to the gods? In Peru near Lake Titicaca is one of the most beautiful and profound examples of one of these stargates. The local people call it Hayomarca. Hayomarca is uh, a mysterious doorway. It is literally a doorway that goes nowhere, carved into the side of a saint. Let this sweet mineral melt in your mouth to rebuild your gums and teeth while you sleep and say goodbye to the dentist forever. People are fixing their bleeding and receding gums, loosening teeth and decay, infections and throb. Of a sandstone cliff. This particular spot that they're talking about is directly connected with Lord Aramumuru in the Monastery of the Seven Rays. Mm -hmm. And you go through this gate and you get there. What is that name? Oh, um, I forgot what, I uh, would have to back it up. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, near the Bolivian border, uh, just outside of, of Lake Titicaca in Peru, it is on the Peruvian side. In fact, the locals call it the gate of the gods. It's not something that opens. It's just a shape carved into solid rock. The fantasy is that the heroes at one time walked through this into the land of the gods. We don't see how it could open, but the idea of a stargate, that there is something that could step into some other dimension or a wormhole would have some kind of starting point and could enter. The idea of a doorway in general is something that we see a lot. We see these in Egyptian temple walls, for example, where the initiate walks up to the temple wall. There's a doorway uh, and then there's a solid wall. So the physical body can go no further. And the physical body is left behind in the Egyptian traditions. And it is the energy body or the soul that moves through the doorway. What sets Hayamarka apart from those stargates that we see in places like Egypt is that it is believed to be a stargate where the physical body moves in its entirety 
through the door, in and out of the door, and that it is active today. The Quechuan people are the the local native uh, indigenous people from this part of the world, and they tell the story of when the explorers, the Spanish conquerors, came into South America, and when they came into the high Andes, and they tried to convert the local people uh, to Catholicism and under Spanish rule, and the local indigenous people resisted. And they were chased across the Andes. And the last one, the last emperor, is said to have come to this place uh, near the edge of, of Lake Titicaca and stepped up onto this stargate. And with a device that he held in his hand, he placed it into a notch that is in the wall and when he turned it, he began walking and he walked right through the wall. Could this be the same device that the Sumerians are depicted using in earlier cuneiforms? If so, how did it work? What the local people say today, uh, they tell me, is that it is an active stargate. There are certain times of year uh, that their ancestors continue to pass in and out. They continue to pass through this, this gate. Now, as a geologist, the most striking thing about the geology of Hyomarca is that it is a high quartz sandstone, and it's a very special kind of quartz called piezoelectric quartz. Now, if you have a watch uh, that says it's a quartz watch, that is a piezoelectric crystal that is in the watch. By compressing that crystal with a spring just a little bit, it releases an electrical and magnetic charge that drives the watch on a small scale. That principle applies on larger scales as well. We're looking at an area, a geographic area, that is under pressure releasing electricity the way that that spring and the little quartz would in our watch. And if there were a place where such a phenomenon could happen, the time travel and the ability to move between dimensions is directly linked to magnetic fields and electrical fields. So. This place is already a high-stressed field uh, because of the piezoelectricity. Uh, and mathematically, it makes perfect sense that under, under certain conditions, certain planetary alignments, when the magnetic field combines with that electrical field to produce an effect, that we could see something like a stargate effect, just like we see in the laboratory. When we look at what has happened at Hyomarca, and the principles that are involved there and parallels in other civilizations begins to tell a bigger story. I would not be able to back this up with evidence if I were to say there were a physical portal that transported us physically into other dimensions. But is there a portal that can lead our consciousness into other dimensions and to, in, in a non-physical state, to interact with the inhabitants of those dimensions? The curiosity is that you can go into shamanistic cultures today, for example, amongst South American Indians in the Amazon basin, uh, who are using ayahuasca, and you can find that the shamans, after they have come back from the ayahuasca journey, recall the imagery that they experienced in the altered state of consciousness, and they paint that imagery. And lo and behold, the paintings contain the same elements to paintings that were done 33,000 years ago in Chauvet Cave in France. How do we explain this and what can we learn from this? What those uh, shamans uh, in, in the Amazon tell us very clearly is that in the ayahuasca journey, 
they encounter teachers who teach them how to live and how to function in the world. So the question is, where were those teachers? Uh, are they the inhabitants of, of other dimensions, of, of parallel dimensions that coexist? Are they perhaps aware of us when we're not aware of them? And were they finding some way to reach out to us and to teach us what we needed to, to know? That would be a true gateway of the gods that we're that we're, we're dealing with here. These are vehicles for crossing that space, physical vehicles for crossing the space between between dimensions. Maybe that's what's going on here. And the technology allows consciousness to cross that space much more easily and allows humanity to learn the lessons that those denizens of other dimensions have to teach us. We were able to locate the divine mountain of the Anuna gods along with their Garden of Eden. Thanks to the elements found with Google Earth, and Gary Zeitling from NASA. It took us straight to eastern Turkey, close to road 5651. What can be noted in the Sumerian tablets when they clearly speak of creating workers to serve the Anunas? The main geneticist is always Inky. Inky is very proud of what he is doing. However, he always has to do it in secret. And here something important occurs in the research that I've carried out. In order to be able to secretly teach values, besides from changing their genetic code, in which he probably injected things that we cannot comprehend nowadays, the gods were using a specific language in Eden, the Emion language, the language that comes from the skies, the language which comes from On. In my years of research, I understood that the Emesha, the matrix language, was mostly used by Sumerian priestesses. The so-called Emisha contained more particles than the languages used by the male gods. So Inki used the Emisha, the matrix language, to encode the ancient languages we find on Earth. I think that Inki had the desire to work for the benefit of the human race, to secretly bring them knowledge. And to be able to do that, they had to use a code. So they created a linguistic code for each tribe. And I think that regularly, maybe every generation, they had to change the code to prevent the Anunas from finding out about the hidden knowledge. It is interesting to note that according to Anton's research, the language that has been coded into the universe for the humans to speak is called the matrix language. In Sumerian, this means the language that the female life creators, like Tiamat, spoke. How has this coded language helped us survive against the wrath of the Demiurge? This is a crucial part of my work. I discovered that all common languages are coded from Sumerian. We can look for idioms from anywhere we want. African tribes, Native American tribes, all the way to China. When you get to the innermost part of primitive languages, you can always understand the words in Sumerian. For example, if you take the word tool in the language of an African tribe and you translate it into Sumerian, it will become the thing we use to chop wood. The idea is a code used in order to be able to communicate secretly with humans. In concrete terms, this idea of coding language and creating new ones with Sumerian syllables, this desire to be able to communicate secretly with the human race, is going to design the many different languages on Earth. Old Chinese, the Hopi, many of the ancient idioms we find in Africa or in Australia. We can find common roots with ancient German and ancient English. Inky knew for a fact that human beings would not be submissive to the gods on the whole planet. 
So he gifted them with the ability to make tools. And in my theory, he also wished to code human language so the gods could not understand. Anton Park suggests that once the humans had the knowledge to survive on Earth, they sought to build their own future and escape the gods. Could there be an actual builder of this new human settlement? In the Hebrew Bible, it suggests that the builder of the Tower of Babel was the king of Shinar, and his name was Nimrod. What an interesting name for someone who defies the laws of Yahweh to create his own connection to the creator. Nimrod was a space city right along the area of the Middle East where the Tigris-Euphrates River, Iraq, and Nimrod was a spaceport like in Star Wars. Could Nimrod have been the representation of the first group of humans to use the knowledge taught by Enki? Nimrod, interesting character. He was said... You're saying it was a city, but... Yes, it was a city, but there was also... This being named Nimrod too. Okay, I said that. To have built the Tower of Babel, he went up against God himself, tried to get closer than anybody else had ever done. As a result, God struck down the Tower of Babel and as a punishment to humanity for having attempted this act, confused the languages so that everybody couldn't understand everybody else. Is there anything more behind this story? Is there something of importance? Well, what is the Tower of Babel? The Babylonian civilization is focused around Babylon. And Babylon is in lower Iraq. They now see this area as the center of reality, the center of everything. This is the omphalos, the axis mundi, the, the axis of the earth. That gravitational shift from northern Mesopotamia to southern Mesopotamia was the result of the Babylonians. This is why the ancient city of Erech is in southern Iraq, when all the old accounts say that it was the ancient name for Urfa in southeast Turkey. This is why Nimrod is associated now with Babylon and not with southeast Turkey. Did you know that if you live in America for the next few days, you'll be able to get a complete solar system from our government at absolutely no cost? Okay. The biblical story of Nimrod and his area of proposed reign happened to be in the same area that a group of ancient astrologers once resided. This group was called the Chaldeans. Could this ancient group have been practicing some of the ancient teachings by Enki? Urfa was the stronghold of Nimrod. This was the traditional homeland of the Chaldeans. They were star worshippers. They recorded stars. They had knowledge of, of comets, knowledge of eclipses and everything like this. They were the scientists of their day. So what Abraham is trying to do is knock down their beliefs, their ideas, their mystery tradition, and install this new idea. So it is possible that... What he was trying to do is to um, essentially kill off the the wisdom tradition that had been that of the Chaldeans up to this point, and that Nimrod, 
somehow steps in, whoever, whatever he represents, to try and prevent this from happening. But unfortunately, according to the, the legends, uh, God intervenes, uh, saves Abraham, and that's essentially the story. So yes, there is something in this. I do accept that what Abraham was trying to do is, you know, bring in a, a new era that didn't need our connection with the stars. Uh, but what the implications of that is for Judaism or, or even Christianity, I don't know. Could this battle between Abraham and Nimrod really be representing a battle between Enki and Enlil for the control over the human race? What the Mesopotamian story tells us that Enki introduced contention into human speech. And there are biblical scholars who think that that was the basis then of the Tower of Babel story. Now, what's interesting though is earlier Enki was said to be the provider of wisdom. He was said to have been the one who wanted humanity to have the knowledge that would undo the gods or the control of the gods. So we have this kind of conflict now in the Mesopotamian stories. People who, who have really studied the Mesopotamian stories, uh, and, and we're talking very good biblical scholars and Mesopotamian scholars, they're so ambivalent about the Enki figure. They say, yeah, he was said to be this great guy. He sometimes is identified with the snake in the Garden of Eden, and then he later became identified with Prometheus in the Greek version of the story, where Prometheus tries to come down and give humanity the certain knowledge that would advance them. And then the other gods come in and say, no, no, you can't do that. And then there are all these repercussions to humanity in dividing them up. The people in the Tower of Babel story were really anarchists who were opposing the archons. And they were saying, the heck with the archons. We're leaving. We're going to establish our own little anarchy, and we're going to move over here and build our own city. And we're going to go do things on our own. And what was it that they were going to do their way? Just eight miles north of the ancient city of Urfa is another famous site known as Gobekli Tepe. All that is revealed is the top of what could have been a great tower of sorts. 95% of the site remains below ground to be uncovered. Could the ancient humans have gathered here to use their knowledge of the universe? Gobekli Tepe is the oldest stone circle complex in the world. If you can imagine Stonehenge in England and transpose it onto the top of a mountain top in southeast Turkey um, and then multiply it by at least 20 times and then cover the stones with beautiful carvings of animals and representations of, of abstract humans and give them T-shaped tops. The fact is that Gobekli Tepe is in northern Mesopotamia. This is clearly the cradle of civilization in this area. This is where the Neolithic Revolution began. This is where even the archaeologist Klaus Schmidt at Gobekli Tepe, who discovered the site, suggests that the Anunnaki had their power base. Um, it's clearly that a lot of things started here. A site only becomes sacred upon the foundations of many, many old temples. Uh, Golbekli Tepe is one great example. Uh, it's an entire artificial hill. The clue is actually the name, the original name. Uh, it means uh, Potbelly Hill or the Hill of the Navel in its true context, which to me uh, uh, tells me that it's a navel of the earth. And like so many other navels of the earth around the world, it's a place where the rules of physics 
work in a certain way that allows you communication with other levels of reality. The whole evolution of language in the human homo sapien sapien brain has been cultivated, manipulated, and managed by technologies that could influence the human brain's development of language. And that when we read about the Tower of Babel being a time when the human population had one language, had one thought system, if it's true that there have been competing geopolitical territorial forces of competing non-humans on this planet, and that there was a time when humans were unified, that would not have been a good step for the competing non-humans. And it could very well be the Tower of Babel story was one of those moments where humans had been homogenized and something did not want that homogeneity in human thought, humans together, humans working as a group. And that from the outside, there was a disruption in what for just a brief moment may have been a unification in thought without war or conflict of human beings. Unification, a dangerous thing to have if you plan to rule over a people. But could this unification have been an actual tower or just an ancient location where people gathered to exchange knowledge? A location in which they could communicate important information. Babylon is actually an old um, Sumerian word, which means gate of God, uh, which for me, in my understanding of the ancient mysteries, tells me everything I need to know. Uh, anything referred to as a gate of God or a navel of the earth is usually a sort of an energetic hotspot where the laws of physics are slightly different or just so that allows you to step through a portal into a, another level of existence. For me, that the Tower of Babel essentially represents the uh, levels of attainment of knowledge that gets you to rise slowly ever upwards towards the mind of God. Uh, the summit, of course, being the connection or the interchange between the physical and the non-physical. The way that they communicated in the old days was through metaphor. And the more we get into the historical era, the more we mistake the metaphor for reality. In one of the traditions, Enlil just gets really annoyed because of the noise humanity's making. And that just noise is, noise is too much. Let's just get rid of these horrible little things. But Enki doesn't want to go that route. Humanity are his creatures, and he his project is to bring wisdom and understanding to, to humanity. And I, I, again, I think there's a beautiful, uh, there's a beautiful message hidden, hidden beneath that symbolism. When it comes to exploring uh, Native American lore and in particular legends about the underworld, the Four Corners area is particularly important because we have a number of Native American groups that claim to have emerged there. And by that, I mean they have an emergence myth that they says that they came out of the earth. The Pueblo people believed that they had come out of the earth in that area and around the Grand Canyon area. We have the Hopi who claim they came out of uh, what they call the Sapapu, which is basically the name for the hole as part of their uh, uh, chimney system in, in Akiva. But they claim that they had to come out of something they call the Sipapu, and they had come out of the underworld where they had interacted with reptilian humanoids called the snake people and the lizard people. And they had also interacted with another group called the ant people. The ant people are described 
basically in a way that sounds very much like so-called descriptions of modern-day gray aliens. We have this this whole idea here that there's a series of worlds beneath, and they all have their own inhabitants, and that these Native American people said they had come up through these various regions to eventually emerge in our world. We have the Apache, who have a similar legend that says they came through a series of caverns to our world after they they lived in a place called the Old Fireland, which had which had been destroyed. In- the first thing I tell new clients worried about memory loss as they age, throw your popcorn in the trash. Here's why. I'm Dr. Sam Walters, a brain health and memory specialist. Destroyed in a cataclysm and had sunk beneath the ocean. And they claimed that they had come here through a series of caverns, just as the Aztecs said. We also have the Navajo and the Navajo believe that they came out of the underworld as well. So these are themes that all tie into the Four Corners area. And it's very interesting that the various people, some of them were even adversaries in previous centuries, uh, that they all have similar legends about worlds within our world. If the premise that modern mankind originated from caverns deep below the earth is true, then is it also possible that there are entire civilizations still living underground in the Four Corners region. I live near Taos, New Mexico, and there is a phenomenon that is called the hum, the Taos hum, H-U-M. It is a, a, a vibration that is felt selectively by some people. Other people don't seem to know it at all. It usually happens between 2 and 4 a.m. when a lot of people are sleeping. And the hum, it's right on the verge of where you feel it in your heart and where you can just below the the audible level. And no one knows where this hum is coming from. They brought in university researchers uh, back in the 1980s to try to triangulate where if they could find three locations where they found the hum and triangulate, they could find the source. And what they found was that it's coming from everywhere, suggesting that there is a vibration happening within the earth during those periods of time, 2, 3, 4 a.m., that is being carried through the bedrock into these other areas. What is the source of that vibration? This is where the speculation comes in, that uh, these natural tunnels and the the caves uh, and the caverns that our ancestors have talked about in the past uh, that already exist are being modified, perhaps, and used uh, in in modern ways uh, for storage, for earth sensing, geosensing applications, and, and things like that. So that is the where scientific community kind of uh, has arrived is that there is something that they think maybe it is the drilling, the constant drilling, uh, to modify these caverns that's creating the vibration. Since 1946, the U.S. government has been using Hopi land in the Four Corners region for explosive testing. Is it possible that, in fact, these tests are a cover-up? Could the military be using the ancient power of this area to run covert military programs? Or could their true agenda be to destroy something that was discovered underground, perhaps something from an ancient galaxy? Billy Carson entails his personal encounter at the Four Corners area. It appears that a lot of this activity and a lot of these tunnels congregate close to this Four Corners area. 
Now, there's well-known uh, stone-based stargates, is what the ancient Indians call them, and now the modern Indians are saying these are where pe- their relatives used to go and put their heads in and actually chant some words and disappear. And then some of them would return. Last summer, I went to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon. We actually hired a helicopter and a guide to go down there because I wanted to find out if I can see any of these ancient mysteries that people had been talking about. And we landed on this Indian reservation down inside the canyon. And there's a special area that was cordoned off. So I said to the guy, I said, why can't I come over here? I don't understand. I don't see anything dangerous. He said, because NASA has taken over this part of the canyon. The way the grid system runs across the earth, there are several places that are just like heavily, heavily energetic nodes. You'll find on many reservations and other holy areas held by natives, you will find that military groups have gone in and built facilities and made them off limits. A lot of the time, these are actual entrances into this cavern system that honeycombs the entire earth. A lot of these places are sacred to natives because they have stories going back many millennia of different types of beings taking them below the earth during before cataclysms to protect them. And these same beings after the cataclysm would bring them back to the surface of the earth and help them set up their civilizations again. A lot of these areas that the military will lock down also are very strong vortexes, which basically are nodes in this cosmic web stargate system. These are places that the military want locked down because they don't want you to see what's coming and going through these gates. A lockdown? If this is true, who or what could possibly be traveling through these gates or in these underground caverns? Perhaps we should consider one of the less conventional theories of evolution. If it is possible that the DNA of human beings was originally bioengineered by ancient terrestrials, could this be a link? William Bramley points out how this idea is explained in Hopi folklore. You have this possibility, at least within the lore, you don't necessarily exclude skyborne gods from gods that lived underground because people had both ideas, that that the gods had realms underground, underwater, and in the sky, and they interacted with all of them. We already know there are very large caverns here and there. It may be, for example, that the South American tribe, maybe the Hopi, maybe... They found some of these at one time, or at least they found caverns big enough where they believe that some of these things could transpire. So it's not necessarily a contradiction. It just means that the gods operated in these different realms. When we look at the creation stories of our past, as different as they are from one another, there are common themes that weave them all together. I find this fascinating because it is the local understanding of, uh, of a common heritage, I believe, that is preserved in the traditions of, of the, the modern indigenous peoples. One of the most, uh, the most obvious of these common threads is the theme of another world beneath this one, uh, a world, subterranean world, from which our ancestors emerged. A lot of these themes from Native American folklore have found their way into modern-day accounts of what I call modern folklore, which would be ufology, uh, cryptozoology, all these types of things, conspiracy literature. Really, all this stuff is just an update of folklore. 
Um, it's the same stuff that people have done for centuries. Sometimes it contains truth. Sometimes it contains uh, fabrications. Sometimes people elaborate on what they what they think something means. But we see these these ideas of underworlds uh, evolve with um, variety of peoples around the world now emerging in these same areas. All these things touch on the same type of material. With these subterranean creation stories of the world from which our ancestors emerged, is there perhaps a code or a treasure that could have been left for us to figure out the truth of humanity's connections to the four corners? New Mexico, Arizona, the whole area around the Four Corners, and Utah, of course, and southern Colorado, it's actually one of the most spiritually active parts of North America. And this is why that part of the uh, of America is so, it draws so many people. Some of them might know it, some of them don't, but they are drawn there nevertheless. I think it's because the land is worked with. The land is a living organism. If you work with it, uh, just like watering a plant, it gives you something back. It gives you back a certain pleasure, and that's what you're attracted to. Uh, so that's why that part of the country is so important, because it's still alive. It's worked with on a daily basis, and you can feel that uh, as you just drive through it. Um, there is uh, the Navajo sites. There is uh, uh, Mesa Verde as well. Uh, there is Bandelier. Uh, there's a kiva up on Bandelier that uh, if you happen to go there at the end of the day and time it so you don't get caught up inside the park, you have to climb up a 100-foot ladder. And that place is perfectly positioned inside the natural cave in a really awkward area of the park because that's the one spot where the Earth's telluric currents just happen to cross. They're everywhere. These currents are everywhere. But they built this sacred site exactly where those currents cross and you go inside the kiva and you have this out-of-body experience because this energy is made of the same stuff that we're made of. It's literally just giving you a, a meat. It's true. I've been there. Me too. It's a technology in which to escape the physical world and connect to another level of reality. Greg Braden takes us deep into another structure in the Four Corners area that may give us an insight into how this location connects to the sky and what may lie below. One of the greatest mysteries that we're finding of ancient civilization is right in our own backyard for those of us that live in the United States in the high deserts of northern New Mexico, Chaco Canyon. Something happened in Chaco Canyon 1,100 plus years ago that we have never seen in the history of the world before and we never saw duplicated since that time. We still do not know precisely who the people were that built Chaco Canyon, where they came from, why they had the advanced technology, why they had the mathematics, why they had the astronomy, the architecture, the ability to grow food in one of the most harshest environments. It's uh, 12 miles long, two miles wide in some places. Within the canyon itself, there are over 2,800 archeological sites that have been recognized. Of those 2,800, 32 have been excavated because they cannot be sustained, many of them were reburied to preserve them for later generations. Twelve are now restored, and it's those twelve that are telling the story that is opening the door to forbidden territory when it comes to archaeology, advanced civilizations of our past. One of the most notable places in Chaco Canyon is Pueblo Benito. Uh, it is uh, a, a very unique D-shaped architectural complex. Over 900 rooms were built into 
uh, this Pueblo Benito. Some of them are square. Some of them are the circular chambers, the kivas, that play such a significant role in the uh, traditions of the native peoples uh, throughout the desert southwest. And one of the reasons that the circular chamber is so important is because it ties directly into their creation story. In the circular chambers, in the kivas, there was a place at one end of the kiva called the sipapu. And the sipapu, in the native traditions, is where our ancestors from the past emerged from another world beneath this world. They emerge into this world time and time again. Uh, this ties in beautifully to some of the creation stories that we find everything everywhere from Sumeria to uh, to the Mesoamerican traditions in the Yucatan. Uh, there's a common theme that runs through all of these stories. And that common theme is that the people emerge from a world that is underneath and is below the world that we know now. Is this yet another reference to human creation beneath the surface? What might be Chaco Canyon's connection to the stars? When the Viking missions began sending back the images from Mars, over 19,000 images from the orbiters that was circling. Uh, and as those images now have been refined and we have a better sense of what they are, lo and behold, there is on the surface of Mars uh, a temple complex that looks precisely like an unexcavated Pueblo Benito in Chaco Canyon, the very unique D-shaped structure that we find nowhere else on this planet in the past. It's nothing that we find contemporary. The only other place we find an example of this structure is on the surface of Mars. Now, the people of Chaco Canyon, we don't know, as I mentioned, precisely who they are, but we know that they had an advanced understanding of physics, of astronomy and mathematics. There's a place in Chaco, a 400 foot tall butte called Fajara Butte. And at the top of Fajara Butte is a mysterious structure that scientists are now calling the North American Stonehenge. Now you wouldn't necessarily know that to look at it because there are three vertical slabs uh, made of the same material as the, the native earth. In the 1970s, uh, it was recognized that on the solstice and on the equinox, the way the sun comes and the light shines through these slabs against a spiral design on the wall at the back of the... These self-adjustable glasses are taking the world by storm. They let you achieve a perfect 2020 vision at any distance, which means you... The, the slabs... It actually pinpoints precisely the the uh, summer solstice uh, and the equinox, as well as lunar cycles. And this was something that has never been seen before. It's so rare that scientists were reluctant to even embrace the possibility that it was actually happening. And it was only when laser-guided imagery was used to mimic the solstices. Uh, and the, the equinoxes at different times of year, that science were able to pinpoint precisely that, yes, this is what was happening on Fajardo Butte. The all species tend to transcend into something else sooner, sooner or later. This is the process of, uh, of evolution and natural selection, which some people find very annoying. Um, but but I, I see no 
mileage in saying evolution doesn't happen. You need species to have the ability to bounce back from assaults. Uh, you know, for example, if you have a, 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 a giant asteroid or, or comet hit, hit the Earth and uh, make life on Earth extremely fragile and, 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 and tenuous, you need to be able to bounce back from that. In other words, you need to be able to duck and dive and, and evolve to, to adapt to the new situations and, and keep the, 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 the project of life going. The whole process of evolution is a process of unfolding. Could we become very different from what we are now? Yes, given enough time, given enough new situations to adapt to and develop with. Could these new situations have included taking refuge within the inner earth? We have the biblical texts about this notion of giants in the old days and certainly after the great floods and the great cataclysmic events that may have sunk Atlantis we can only speculate to say that there could be a breakaway civilization that went underground at the end of the last cataclysm. And these beings, some of whom could be giants, others could look just like us or some similar human to us, uh, could be living inside the earth. Do you get the Mayans who kind of disappeared? Like there's speculation they may have ascended, they may have gone to a deeper plane existence that we originally came out of. And same with the Tuatha, Dedanon, in Ireland. Like they're said to be gods or, or fairies or ancestral spirits, but they were originally people. I also see like a lot of legends where people coming out of the sea and coming out of the earth may explain, may tie into the Atlantis myth where we've come from deeper planes of ontology. Because a lot of time the underworld does represent a deeper plane of existence. Anton Park's research indicates that the underworld can also be linked to creation. In ancient texts, in Gnostic, Sumerian, even Egyptian texts, the abyss is always linked to the process of creation. So we find this recurrent theme of the abyss. And through the research that I have done, I found out that Enki is the master of the abyss, of the great deep, which also in some ways, corresponds to the underworld. If you go back to the Mesopotamian creation stories, they talked about gods from the sky basically bioengineering a form of humanity that was already here, creating that more modern form. But they don't necessarily say that the engineering was done in the sky. For example, Enki was also the god of the underwater realms. So there was a possibility that maybe there was some realm underwater or underground where some of this activity was being conducted. And so you have this possibility, at least within the lore, you don't necessarily exclude skyborne gods from gods that lived underground because people had both ideas, that the gods had realms underground, underwater, and in the sky, and they interacted with all of them. Indeed, the further back you go in history, the more you are faced with giants, just like prehistoric animals on Earth, for example, the dinosaurs. Roughly, I would say that if Inky is about six feet five inches, closer to human, On and the other Sumerian gods and goddesses, by the way they were portrayed, I would say are about 11 feet five inches, between 10 feet and 11 feet five inches, maybe even up to 14 feet. 
If some of the Sumerian gods were suggested to be giant in size, how would this relate to myths of an underworld in South America? Sonia Grace uses her alternative research to connect the dots on the underground mythology in Mesopotamia. When I first spirit traveled to the Ziggurat of Ur, I was really amazed because there was a very small structure, like a temple, made out of stone. And the ant people, who I call the Savrocks, were all over the land. They were everywhere. And one of them came up to me and These are ginormous ants. These are not, you know, little ants or people that look like they're ants. And they came up to me and they said, we created this place in the beginning. And this is what we built for the people of Atlantis. So that when Atlantis fell, they had a place to go to. We help them to safety. And they said, we want to take you and, and show you this place. So we went through this little opening and we started going down and down and further and further into this long tunnel. It went on forever. And then all of a sudden it opened out into this beautiful, huge cavern. There were all kinds of rocks and crystals and stones in the walls. There was a lake and it went on into further caverns. It was enormous. And they said, this is where we led the people who did survive and got out of Atlantis before it fell. And at the top of the cave were these roots from a big tree that was coming down. And they said that when the people were there, they referred to this place as Eden. It was the place that they had to, that was their refuge that saved them. So they referred to it and called it Eden. And when the when the world came back and life was happening on the surface again, in the roots of the tree that were coming down from the top of the cave, they could see greenery coming out and growing. So they knew it was okay to come back up to the surface. And when they came back up, they referred to this tree as the tree of life. If the underworld is not only a place of creation, might it also have been a place to hide? In the Hebrew Bible, the Nephilim were the sons of gods mingling with the daughters of Adam. They were also known as giants and considered to be the fallen ones. Michael Mott's research suggests that they might have retreated underground. Are these the giants described in ancient texts? Some people said these giants are pre-Adamites, which means they, they came about before Adam and Eve. Some say that they are Nephilim, which would mean they are part human and part fallen angel. And this is a theme that does find a reflection in some of the Native American lore, because the, the, the giants are described as having six fingers, six toes, double rows of teeth. Uh, occasionally they have horns. And this ties right in with the ancient description of the Nephilim. For instance, from the book of Enoch and, and other sources, and even from the Old Testament. So uh, this is something that we see again and again. They fled a cataclysm. They fled something they fear. Um, so they, they go beneath the earth and they claim that they live much longer uh, by, by living there. There's just plenty of water. Um, there are strange areas where there seems to be a lot of high pressure, which blow out a lot, a lot of breathable air. And that's not to say that you wouldn't have to have a, 
a really advanced level of, of not just civilization, but technology in order to carve out a space inside the crust of the planet and to make a sustainable environment there. What became of the gods? I'm not sure that I can give an answer to this question. Maybe that the survivors, the ones that could still be alive in our solar system, lived underground on Earth. There are many reports that these giants moved inside the Earth, into the inner Earth. According to my information, it is a honeycomb of caverns inside the Earth, and there are many groups living inside, groups that are non-terrestrial, groups that uh, left the surface of the Earth many, many millennia ago and just never came back out. Has any... Let this exotic mineral melt in your mouth while asleep and fully restore your teeth and gums. Anyone suffering with periodontal issues such as receding or bloody gums, gingivitis, gum infections, tooth pain or decay, fat... Has any evidence been discovered that can prove the existence of a lost underground civilization? Historians have been debating this for centuries. Perhaps the answer to this question lies deep in the Amazon jungle, two and a half thousand miles south of Belize. An indigenous tribe known as the Makushi have lived here with little contact from the outside world until the mid-18th century. And yet, their mythology is almost identical to beings who protect the hollow earth described by the Mayans. You have that South American tradition, which is very interesting, of the tribe that said that they were guarding the entrance to the inner earth. And they said it would take maybe a couple of weeks to finally get down far enough where they would meet the inhabitants, and they were just these gigantic people, anywhere between 10 and 11 and a half feet tall. So, of course, the, the common idea is that, oh, this is just a bunch of mythology by primitive people. But what's interesting is they talked about how when they got far enough down, one of the things they saw was basically molten rock. And that's exactly what modern science tells us you should find underneath the earth. And how would a primitive people know that? There are also areas where there's all this lush plants and food and the, and the people living down there. Can we take that seriously? We're left with this very interesting myth that has a few intriguing elements to it. It's, it's worth a look if we can get down there. The Mahoxi Indians of Guyana and also of, of the northern Amazon basin have a very interesting legend concerning an entrance to the inner earth. And according to their legend, there is an interest to the underworld there. And at one point, they were in charge of security over the entrance to this, to this location. And according to their legend, they could descend into this world and come into contact with the very tall men who were basically giants, 15 feet tall, 12 feet tall. And they had been given this, this task of guarding this location and the entrance and not letting anyone else enter. Traveling for 15 days down into this cavern until they literally put down their torches because there's these inner balls of light that will light you the rest of the way on steps that are 33 inches long, eventually making it into caverns where food was growing, lit by four large sun-like discs that they couldn't even stare at. They were so bright. And they describe the food as being uh, apples the size of a human head, grapes the size of a human fist. Um 
interacting with giant beings that they described as being three to four meters in height um, who would catch giant fish for them and give it to them as a gift. That kind of detail coming from a culture who didn't have any access to libraries, didn't have any access to television, satellite, internet. Um, how is it that they come across or, or begin to tell stories that are being duplicated in all these other cultures? There has to be some truth to it. Now, whether it's completely hollow inside or whether or not these vast caverns are just there, I believe that they're there. And a lot of people believe that they're inhabited by what we would describe as being an alien species, an ultra-terrestrial species rather than an extraterrestrial species. Could these strange species be linked to the Sumerian gods? Many of these stories about a lost civilization under the earth from indigenous cultures around the world have strong similarities. Is it possible that these giant creatures were the sages described in ancient Sumerian texts and others? And did these beings bring back humanity after a cataclysm? In uh, Sumerian tradition and in the surviving texts that have been passed down to us, there is uh, a very strong and intriguing reference to what are called the seven antediluvian sages. Go over to India uh, and we have the seven rishis. Uh, so this, this number keeps on cropping up. We can go further away to Easter Island and there we discover an ancient tradition that civilization was first brought to Easter Island by seven initiated men. Now how are we to take all of this? Uh, how can we put it into some kind of context? For me, what I think what I think we're looking at uh, is more evidence that there was uh, a, a high civilization that we have lost track of, that we truly are a species with amnesia, and that we have forgotten a very important part of our story. Uh, and, and fragments of that story crop up all around the world. What I think we're looking at is an outreach program, an outreach program reaching out to the hunter-gatherers in what we would call the Upper Paleolithic, and beginning to teach certain of them selected skills, giving them the gifts of gifts of civilization. But to find this theme again and again and again, the seven sages, the seven wise men, teaching the gifts of civilization, I would say we are looking at symbolic allusions towards the outreach of a lost civilization. But who are these beings we have lost touch with? I wish we could get into the minds and into the heads of the people who made these sites all over the world in, in megalithic structures, that they're all concerned with lining themselves up to the rising point of the sun at certain times of, at times of the year. They're telling us something about our connection to the cosmos and our, and our place on Earth. Could Gobekli Tepe, the oldest megalithic structure on the planet, be revealing a code that would connect us not only to this anomaly in the sky, but also to other ancient sites around the world. Translated into English, Gobekli Tepe means pot-bellied hill. In 1994, Klaus Schmidt, an archaeologist from Germany, began digging into this unnatural-looking bluff. A few feet below the surface, he discovered stone ruins. Further investigation revealed that this ancient formation in southern Turkey was 7,000 years older than Stonehenge, throwing into question much of what has been written in the history books. 
Klaus Schmidt dedicated his life's work to uncovering what might lie below the surface and continued to excavate until he, mysteriously, died in 2014. 95% of the ruins are still buried, and the true purpose of Gobekli Tepe and its relationship to the galaxy is still an unsolved mystery. Most archaeologists believe the site is about 13,000 years old, and they believe it existed for a couple of thousand years, and then it was deliberately buried. Now, as far as I'm concerned, it could date back much further than that, because there is evidence in Turkey that humans like us existed millions of years ago. Drake Braden points out that more evidence is being uncovered, pushing back the date of antiquity. Could Gobekli Tepe be even older? One of the consequences of global warming is that the ice on the poles has receded tremendously, including Antarctica. And the, the thickness of the ice as it is reduced allows greater visibility from uh, Earth-penetrating radar so we can see what's underneath the ice. One of the surprises is that the satellite images are sending back now what appear to be large-scale, complex archaeological sites. They're, they're not small hunting villages and pit houses. These look like advanced technological civilizations that we're seeing underneath the ice. So as a scientist, I have to say one of two things happened. Either some someone built these complex structures under the ice after it already formed, which is less likely, and the more likely scenario is that the structures existed and then the ice covered them. Right now, civilization, the date is being pushed back to 13,500 years. The last ice age ended 12,000 years ago. The historic context of civilizations going back 50, 60, 70,000 years along these 5,000-year cycles shows up in the mythology. Maybe the mythology uh, is based on much more facts than we've been led to believe in the past or we've been willing to embrace in the past. If indeed it could be older than mainstream scientists believe, then what could be its purpose? The Begley Tepai is the oldest stone circle complex in the world. If you can imagine Stonehenge in England and transpose it onto the top of a mountain top in southeast Turkey, um, and then multiply it by at least 20 times, and then cover the stones with beautiful carvings of animals and representations of, of abstract humans and give them T-shaped tops, because that's what the stones have there. This is what Gebekli is. It was constructed at the very end of the last ice age, uh, around 9,500 BC, and was in use for a period of around 1,500 years before it was abandoned, about 8,000 BC. What's so interesting is that the oldest and the most accomplished of the technologically uh, advanced stone enclosures, that alone gives us evidence of possibly a lost civilization. The fact is that Gebekli Tepe is in northern Mesopotamia. The area around Urfa and Haran and Gebekli Tepe 
This is clearly the cradle of civilization. This is where the Anunnaki had their power base. I am on a trip with geologist Robert Schock, who had had his PhD in Yale University, and we are standing down inside of the excavation of Gobekli Tepe, surrounded by these 19-foot-tall limestone pillars, each weighed up to 15 tons, and they're in rings. And in that process of standing there and talking about this is the most baffling place. It doesn't feel like anything that humans can understand. Robert Schock said, you know, I've been staring at these T-structures and thinking about the old past and what could this have been built for? And he said, all of these limestone pillars have T-tops. And he said, it reminds me of tuning forks. And he said, you know, Linda, when you stand up at the top of the hill and you realize that Gobekli Tepe was built in a bowl. You're always looking down at the top of these big T-pillars unless you climb down into and then you're among them. And he said, what if this whole place was built to resonate with certain frequencies by something above, resonating frequencies on big pillars put in ring? Yeah. Wake up to the new $5 Bell breakfast box, only at Taco Bell. When you look at Gobekli Tepe, and you see all of the constructions of, of the inscriptions of all of the animals of the earth on these, on these giant pillars, it's always um, been interesting to me that perhaps what these things were were a way of recording a standing wave pattern of a certain kind of a life form. For instance, a crocodile exists on a different standing wave pattern than a than a crane, than an elephant, than a monkey. And perhaps what they were trying to do was out of a state of preservation, trying to preserve these things. They were trying to preserve stones that actually had those frequencies recorded into them. Could Gobekli Tepe have been an ancient portal constructed to communicate with gods in faraway galaxies? Is it possible that Tabby Star could be a signal for humans to pay attention to this gateway? There is, for example, evidence of very, um, very, very clear, very precise astronomy at Gobekli Tepe. It contains, amongst other things, the world's first perfectly north-south aligned building. You can't do that without astronomy. Uh, there are alignments to specific star groups and specific moments of the year. It's a highly, it's a highly evolved site. Shamanic cultures right the way across the Eurasian continent saw the northern celestial pole as the point of exit from the physical world and the point of entry into the sky world. And it was seen as a hole, quite literally a hole connected the different universes, the middle world to the upper world, it would seem as if this stone is a signboard showing that journey and the actual course, the route that you would take to reach the sky world. I believe that one of the indicators to our earliest ancestors of a place of great power 
with the appearance of mysterious lights. It's known that a lot of strange light phenomena is seen in those very mountains where Quebec de Cape is, is, is sighted. We call them UFOs today. But these type of phenomena have been occurring for many, many thousands of years, arguably since the beginning. I think that our ancestors would have seen these as important signs that here were places where you could establish points of contact, portals, if you like, with the other world, and that by building your monuments here, that link with the stars would be stronger. The downloads of information that create civilization would be stronger. Pillar 43 at Quebec de Tepe is a signboard for the shaman who would be achieving altered states of consciousness within the enclosures and then journeying in an astral form to the upper world. Perhaps a deeper understanding of the relationship of these ancient monuments to Tabby Star and other galaxies is the key to understanding who built them and why. You know, I've not examined aerial views of Gobekli Tepe, but the fact that some people, some researchers are equating that with a star map that depicts our relationship would be a perfect match for not only the Egyptian culture, but for what we've discovered in the construction of the pyramids themselves and the fact that this harmonic relationship exists between this star. And it could very well be that what that cosmology was meant to encapsulate and describe is this idea that our star is interacting harmonically with these other stellar bodies. And it could be that this ancient extraterrestrial race that came to visit here not only understood that, but are following that as a sort of harmonic map around the universe. If it is indeed true that Gobekli Tepe is a gateway to other galaxies, then perhaps somehow its architects knew a global catastrophe was imminent and buried this ancient technology to protect it. As the excavations continued, a number of surprising things began to become clear. First off, this pot-bellied hill and this whole site had not been covered up by natural sedimentation. After being in use for about a thousand years, it was deliberately buried by whoever was involved with it. This was not some invading army who came in and smashed it up. This was a, in a kind of preservation. You, you must envisage teams of hundreds of people with sort of buckets filled with stone and rubble, and they're coming and they're pouring it in on top of the existing stone circles. And they just keep on pouring until every stone circle is covered. Could the knowledge that has been covered up preserved the mythology from almost every ancient culture? Quebec Tepe is a kind of a, uh, it's like a potpourri of cultures. You see a lot of uh, Sumerian influence. There's a lot of Egyptian symbol uh, symbolism in Quebec Tepe as well. There's uh, Hindu uh, influence in there as well, Japanese. And the fact is, this is where you start getting into this grey area. Uh, where does it come from? Was there a world's book, a central point where everybody got their ideas from? It seems to me that Quebec and Tepe is almost like a microcosm of so many cultures around the world that supposedly never shared 
information with each other. And now we begin to realize actually they got around much more than we gave them credit for. Could the big secret at Gobekli Tepe be the connection of every culture from around the world? And could it have been discovered at the right time to reveal information? There are many who believe uncovering the answers to these questions will transform how we understand ourselves. I would be lying if I said I knew what was exactly buried at Gobekli Tepe, but I think what you can do is draw a lot of similarities and parallels to some of these other megalithic sites and get some pretty decent scientific insight into what they were trying to accomplish. And what it looks like they were trying to accomplish is the preservation of the scientific knowledge. Um, uh, maybe at a time when there was just such global upheaval that the only way to preserve it was to bury it. Could very well be why they purposely buried the entire site. You're going to construct a megalithic site of that kind of grandeur and scale and put that kind of effort into it, and then you're going to turn around and just bury it. Why would any society do that? But whoever built Gobekli Tepe, the fact that they buried that very important 30 acres of these rings of all of these limestone columns meant somebody, something new, something potentially destructive to the whole planet, and they didn't want Gobekli Tepe destroyed. But Gobekli Tepe survived until 1990s. Although Gobekli Tepe's discovery in 1990 was groundbreaking, research has been problematic given the dangerous upheaval in the area and the knowledge that still stays buried. But perhaps the discovery of the Tabby Star has become a beacon for knowledge still preserved at Gobekli Tepe, pointing us in a direction to uncover some human truths. I think it is our responsibility to preserve those records that are being destroyed in this cradle of civilization, in the Tigris-Euphrates, in Iraq, uh, in Syria, uh, in Turkey, because they are very intentionally being destroyed in, in some cases to wipe out the memory of these past civilizations for a number of reasons. Uh, but once they're gone, they're gone forever. And uh, I, I think it's very sad to see what's happening. And I think it's a wake-up call. We've taken for granted for so long the fact that these records are here and that they exist. We never really considered that they could be destroyed so easily. When you're reading in a book and you see H-O-M-O-S-A-P-I-E-N-S, that's Homo sapien. It's my understanding Homo sapien is the word for the large group of standing up primates that have started an evolutionary trail from Lucy in Africa about two million years ago. But within Homo sapien, there are a whole bunch of models that have included a Neanderthalensis and now Cro-Magnon Homo sapien sapien. Andrew Collins has been monitoring the movement of this ancient giant human species and has a different theory. We can say almost certainly is that because our ancestors interbred with them, that there were hybrids of Denisovans and Homo sapiens that continued their traditions. 
for tens of thousands of years, evolving these ideas um, and then spreading them into other parts of the Eurasian continent and also into the Americas. If you go further south to the area around Sumeria, the area around the Black Sea and to a place where we have some information from, which is the Scythian culture, which not many people talk about, and they also were supposed to be claimed to have been older than the Egyptians, and part of their culture wasn't just humanoid, they were also a godly culture, and they were also described as being very tall, almost like giants, uh, again, sometimes with elongated skull, and they're supposed to be wisdom keepers. Here is what I think happened, possibly somewhere in the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia around 45,000 years ago. At this time, the area was occupied by the Denisovans. Let's assume that they were extremely tall, very well built. If you can imagine the biggest Russian wrestlers that you can think of and then cover them in furs and give them wisdom of 200,000 years. That's what we're talking about here. You can imagine that their race is probably dying out. In other words, their population may not have been so large as it once was. And yet they have this incredible knowledge, this incredible wisdom now. And they get to hear about these new people arriving out of the direction of the setting sun. They're much smaller. They look different. Their skin may be slightly different color. And they know that they're gradually moving eastwards, they're gradually taking over one territory and then the next. They would exploit the resources and just move on. And then one day, these people turn up and there's a first encounter between our own ancestors, Homo sapiens, and the Denisovans. I think if I was a Denisovan at this point, I would be saying, I think our time's up and we have to change our ways. And one of the possibilities is that there was a understanding between the new people and the Denisovans that this ancient wisdom, this ancient knowledge would now be carried into the new world through hybrid descendants. In other words, we would interbreed and it would be through our descendants, our hybrid descendants, that this ancient wisdom would now be disseminated. Could this be true? The Siberian fossil remains found in Altai have challenged scientists to re-examine the transformation of human DNA. There's been an explosion of new information uh, in this field, partly thanks to new genetic sequencing techniques and, and deep analysis of DNA. And it's clear that the story of the evolution of anatomically modern humans is much more complicated the DNA breakthrough is we now know that our anatomically modern human ancestors interbred with Neanderthals. So we're a mixture of Neanderthals and the creature that became anatomically modern humans. And then adding further complication to the picture, Denisovan DNA is also found in the anatomically modern human genome. Trace elements in some areas, quite large amounts in others. The Denisovans passed to us various genes which have been important in our own development. For instance, in the Tibetan plateau, the Sherpas and the indigenous peoples there, their ability to be able to spend long periods in extremely high altitudes comes from a gene which 
was inherited, we now know, from the Denisovans. There were other genes as well to do with our appearance, our intellect, our consciousness were also first developed through this idea of this hybridization. There are many modern populations around the world that have high levels of Denisovan DNA within their genes. We're talking about India, Southeast Asia, Java, Australia, Melanesia, Micronesia, various Native American peoples in Canada, in Mexico, also in the the northern part of, of South America, have all got Denisovan DNA. These are all the descendants of the Denisovans. If Denisovans roamed the Earth for thousands of years, crossbreeding with other sapiens, it could explain how traces of their DNA have been found thousands of miles from Siberia in North America. It is almost certain that the Denisovans and their hybrid descendants ended up coming into the Americas. Indeed, it's now been found that in several different Native American um, peoples, Denisovan DNA exists. And this proves that they were the giants of legend and that they are responsible for the human skeletons, the oversized human skeletons that are found in mound complexes all over North America. I think we're just at the beginning of the process of unraveling the mystery of what uh, all of this means. It's almost heretical to say so uh, in context of modern anthropology, but I think we're going to have to revisit the out-of-Africa model. It may be that the evolution that led to anatomically modern humans uh, didn't take place entirely in Africa. We're looking at actually a very complicated picture that ultimately results in us. No Denisovans live today. No Neanderthals live today. We are the sole survivors of that intermingling of slightly different and sometimes very different looking but genetically close human species. If DNA is only part of the puzzle, Freddie Silva suggests looking into the mythology of the giants. I'm very much of the opinion that ancient myth always holds a large kernel of truth. The myths are so concise, so well-developed, so beautifully illustrated. Native Americans talk about the giants roaming the face of the earth as easily as they talk about aliens. And for them, it's not a, not a big deal. It's like, well, of course they were, just like they were big lizards here at one point, so why not humans as well? That I believe they're telling us something. And that one thing that they keep telling us over and over again is the fact that the earth is an experimental waste station and it goes through cycles, long cycles. All over the world, we have accounts of human remains being found that are of giant stature. So are these Denisovans? Well, we don't know. And the reason why we don't know is because all those found in North America have been repatriated as part of the, the so-called NAPRA law that allowed all of the, the bones, the, the millions of them, in all of the different museums to be given back to the, um, the, the First Nations, the Native American peoples, and for them to rebury them in their own burial grounds. 
So we haven't got anything. There isn't any giant bones in North America that we can look at. So I'm afraid to say that we can't analyse them. What we can say is that some of the the first uh, peoples to arrive in the North American continent came from Siberia, the very same area where the Denisovan remains have been found. If this is true, could this species have come from a much older lineage? Linda Moulton Howe shares her theory on how Denisovan DNA could have been genetically manipulated by the Anunnaki. Why is it that the Denisovans went extinct and Neanderthalensis went extinct, leaving Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens sapien to dominate planet Earth? Was that the objective of an extraterrestrial experiment? So maybe there is an overlap of other intelligences using this planet that is responsible for our confusion today, looking back through time, trying to understand who are we. And maybe this whole huge story about all of these different bloodlines has to do with genetic manipulation that planet Earth has been used like a laboratory, but not by just one who knows how many. And that we humans today, trying to understand who we are, and going back and looking at all these civilizations. And remember that I started going out and doing searches, like going to look at the map, where is this in Siberia, and realizing that where this cave is and where this new brand of human was is a place where there have been UFO stories in and around this area in Siberia for a long time. And I started thinking, Wow, could this really truly be an example of one of these experiments that is being done by extraterrestrials and the discovery reinforces this idea. It is a branch of humans that has an antecedent with something completely unknown. This might explain how Homo sapiens have survived for as long as they have. Perhaps an ancient code has been embedded in our DNA. Andrew Collins suggests that the migration of the Denisovans also points to ancient areas considered as portals. The earliest hybrid descendants of the Denisovans spread out from a central area, which was probably southern Siberia, and reached various wayward points in the planet and uh, they set them up as markers they set them up as portals of contact and connection with the stars and with the other world and possibly even what we might call today parallel dimensions now where were these points places like Gebekli Tepe or certainly the area around Gebekli Tepe in southeast Turkey, the area around Giza in Egypt, and other places like Stonehenge in England, certain places in, obviously, China, in India, etc., etc. They become points of communication, points of contact that people would be able to return to again and again and again. 
not only did they build all of these megalithic structures, but they built them in areas that we call vortex zones. These are areas where ley lines um, on the earth uh, with the earth's natural energy grid cross one another. In ancient times, they were called dragon lines. Almost every one of these ancient structures is built on top of places where ley lines cross one another. That's important because where they cross one another, you have amazing electromagnetic waves being produced, hugely strong electromagnetic waves. And wherever you have electromagnetic waves that are that strong, you can basically have a tear, a rip in the electromagnetic membrane that separates this dimension from from the next. And this is something that's accepted in modern day science. The only thing that's separating our dimension that we're sitting here talking in is an electromagnetic membrane. These were creatures who understood that. And they understood that by building these structures right on top of these areas of which the Altai Mountains is one of them, um, they were able to to basically create a tear in that membrane and you can have momentary interaction between the dimensions. There's a really interesting thing I came across in my research, because as you know, I research sciences and I I research um, the work of intuitives, the whole spectrum. I'm looking for consistency. I'm looking for where there's validation from both sides. I was given the same story that some of the great beings who come and teach throughout the cosmos to lift consciousness anywhere, it's just a job. That's what they do. They're not to be worshipped or heralded in any other way anymore than you or I, but that's what they do. But there's a process they have to go through. There are other people who are those who come as masters and as teachers for planet Earth. And those people may be considered to be on the path to the sun. If you look at Sirius as what is considered the sun behind the sun, 20 times brighter, twice as large, this incredibly brilliant star as the sun behind the sun, it takes on other meanings. One of them is that Sirius is also associated with Isis. So if you start looking at the genuine meaning of what Isis is, you go beyond all of these common identities to something primal, almost primordial or prima materia, materia, material, mater, mother. You go back to the mother energy, which is the source of physical creation of the entire universe or universes. So if you take that look at it and you look at Sirius as the sun behind the sun, what gives birth to the sun? The mother of the sun. So it would make perfect sense that ISIS is associated with Sirius. The fact that that relationship exists at all between two stellar bodies that are 8.7 light years away is an indication to us that that same relationship exists over the entire universe. And because they were responsible for developing our biology, they knew that that same mechanism existed within the human body, that they literally built within us the ability to control our own reality through it. This knowledge became the knowledge of all the ancient mystery schools, the knowledge of how to actually attune yourself to these frequencies in such a way that you can cause change in conformity with will. That's the great secret of of magic practices. 
and what the, the Egyptian priesthood wanted forever uh, to try to preserve and have largely done so. The knowledge is still alive and well in a lot of different occult priesthoods uh, around the world. But why was this priesthood only preserving this knowledge for themselves? In 1353 BC, a pharaoh in the 18th dynasty named Akhenaten wanted to expose these secrets to his people. He wanted his people to only worship Aten, which was the disk of the sun. I think he was following a very long tradition, a very long bloodline. And because of that, he also followed a very long spiritual tradition. The priesthood had gotten onto the fact that they're onto a good job here. It's a job creation scheme of dividing a central god into many, 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 many gods, which allowed the people to worship all kinds of interesting things. But they had to talk to a central priesthood. Now, that's a great job creation scheme where you have someone inserting itself into the middle of a connection between you and the spiritual godhead. Arkhanathan takes over and he says, you know what, I want to hurry speed things along a little bit. Why don't we just begin to remove the worship of all of these myriads of gods because people don't know what they're worshipping anymore. Let's concentrate on one focal point, which is the Aten, the center of all creation. And it's not because he forbade people to worship other gods. He didn't do that. Um, what he did was saying, stop doing this, okay? I want you to focus on the important thing, the central issue, because if you can understand the central concept of the Aten, from there, you will empower yourself to understand the true nature of what the other gods are doing. We're going back to the drawing board here, and it also means we don't give them power to become intermediaries between us and the creative source, because you don't need an intermediary, let's face it. This is why he got into a lot of deep water and why there's a lot of public relations that were negatively aimed at him and why eventually there was a military coup that forced him out of power. He was trying to create monotheism for the sake of focusing people's spirituality back where it ought to be, not what it had to develop into, which essentially was a corrupted priesthood. This wasn't the first mention of Aten in Egypt. Thousands of years earlier in the 12th dynasty, the first known reference to Aten the Sun Disk as a deity is in the story of Sinue. This reference suggests that the deceased king is described as rising as God to the heavens and uniting with the Sun Disk, the divine body merging with its maker. Could Akhenaten have had passed down knowledge from an older lineage? When I spirit traveled to the 18th dynasty, my guides took me to the temple where Akhenaten and Nefertiti were, and we stood and listened to a conversation that they had. They were quite misshapen. Their heads were so elongated and their bodies were not of a normal human shape. And they seemed to be intent in their conversation about how important it was that they change the beliefs of the Egyptian people. Both Akhenaten and Nefertiti come from Sirius A. They are bringing their understanding, their lore to Egypt, basically as star beings. And to make that a bigger statement, we're all star beings. We all came in from different places. This is where they came in. They worshiped Aten, which was Sirius, the sun. And they wanted to bring that in because for him, he could see growing up in this environment that the Egyptian gods had much more power. I also was taken back to the Great Pyramid 
And when my guides and I entered the pyramid, Anubis was standing guard and he wasn't going to let us get by. And my guide spoke with him and he stepped aside and we went into the queen's chamber where Ra was standing there waiting for us. And he told me that this was the connection or the portal to Sirius and that it is the queen's chamber that was used for transport to and from Sirius. Ra told me that Anubis was actually adopted by Osiris and Isis. And the adoption was because Anubis was not from the same place all the Egyptian gods came from. They are all from Orion. Anubis came from the Southern Cross. And when he was adopted, he took on the head and the shape of a dog so that he would emulate the dog star and be a part of that group of demigods and be accepted. He really wanted the acceptance of Ra and Osiris and Isis. So he became a part of the group by adapting this dog-like head. I would argue in my research that there was a, a connection between these cultures that stems back way, way beyond what modern day historians have been able to uh, trace. And the reason for that is not only the similarity between their pantheon of gods, but the similarity in the structures that they built. And that it all goes back to a much earlier time when maybe the Mesoamericans came from a completely different part of the world. What's fascinating about Osiris and Horus and Quetzalcoatl is their connection to the star Sirius. What you have with Quetzalcoatl is a god that has a twin brother with a dog head. He becomes the star Sirius and he guards the sun through the underworld, much the same as Anubis was the guardian of the underworld. This is a time of, of a huge extinction of species are, are wiped out. The new evidence that is providing coherent sense to this is called the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. And it has been uh, put forward uh, by a, a group, a large group of mainstream credentialed scientists. And what they've said is that they have found evidence which suggests the Earth was hit by several fragments of a comet. For a long time, the comet was out there. It was probably a very spectacular visual presence, uh, but it wasn't hitting the Earth. But 12,800 years ago, by which time that comet had begun to fragment, and broken up into lots of fragments. And the estimates are that four of those fragments, four large fragments, hit the North American ice cap. It's literally beyond imagination. That instant of impact would have created so much heat um, that it would have melted large areas of the North American ice cap and sent the water flooding south. Then within a matter of, of days or weeks of that release of water, the freezing temperature has begun and there's no more release of water. The world, the world goes dry at that point and into a very deep, dark, frozen period accompanied by animal extinctions. The Younger Dryas lasts for 1,200 years. It lasts from 12,800 years ago to 11,600 years ago. And then something else really weird happens. 
the Earth's been in a deep freeze. Suddenly, 11,600 years ago, you get a second massive pulse of meltwater into the world ocean. One very strong suggestion is that um, the uh, Earth intersected again with the debris stream of the same comet. Uh, and that there were further impacts 11,600 years ago. But those impacts were not on us. Those impacts were entirely oceanic. You get big comet impacts in an ocean, and what you're going to get, as well as extraordinary tidal waves, what you're going to get is a massive amount of water vapor thrown up into the upper atmosphere. And that water vapor creates a greenhouse effect, which causes, uh, accounts for the very radical warming of the Earth. It has to be rather intriguing that that's the exact date, 11,600 years ago, that Gobekli Tepe is founded. And it has to be even more intriguing that 11,600 years ago is the exact date that Plato gives us for the destruction and disappearance beneath the flood of the ocean of the lost civilization of Atlantis. If what Graham Hancock is telling us is true about the Younger Dryas, where can we see evidence elsewhere on the planet? The flood also did sink many other areas of megalithic architecture, such as the gorgeous pyramid that we see in the Azores off the coast of Portugal, such as what we see around the coast of India, such as what we see in Japan, where you have sunken architecture down there, all kinds of stuff that's coming up that defies the conventional view. As a matter of fact, just a couple of years ago, uh, a, a, a little further away from Malta in the Sicily Channel, uh, was discovered uh, a, a giant, absolutely nobody's disputing, man-made megalith lying on the bottom of the ocean. And that bit of ocean was covered by the rising sea levels more than 9,000 years ago, which makes it already three to 4,000 years older than the established date for the monumental temples on the island of Malta itself. Some experts, like Jack Carey, have done some alternative research that might coincide with the science behind the Younger Dryas. Uh, as far as the sunken pyramids go um, in the oceans of the world, a lot of that uh, can be tied to uh, research being done by Dr. Courtney Brown and his group of uh, very skilled remote viewers. And they're beginning to not only target what they described as, as being Atlantis, but through their remote viewings, they're beginning to ascertain that it was this very science that caused the downfall of the society, that they used it in such a way that it literally caused a destruction of the landmass. Um, and that that may have actually been part of some sort of conflict or war that was going on. Uh, the fact that there's just so many of them all around the world is, is what's fascinating. You know, humanity has not come together in any way, shape, or form the way we would want or hope or expect or love for it to do ever since uh, the Tower of Babel, ever since we were spread all over the earth. A conflict? What kind of conflict could Dr. Courtney Brown and his researchers be picking up on? Ancient texts from the Greek philosopher Plato explain in great detail the destruction of Atlantis by Zeus as payback for human arrogance. The legend describes the founder of the great city to be half god and half human, 
and ruled by Poseidon. As punishment for their immoral bankruptcy, Zeus sent a ball of fire to destroy the aquatic cities. Oh boy. The curator of the Joseph Campbell collection draws some parallels from Plato's story and a similar tale between two warring Sumerian gods. It is very possible that the Greek story, the one we find in Plato about a lost continent, Atlantis, ruled over by Poseidon, the god of the oceans, that this has earlier roots. After all, storytellers in those times borrowed from other stories, and we can follow. It's called syncretic, the way information images and narratives move from one culture to another, particularly if they're relatively geographically close by, which in this case is, is true. Sure, Enki, the great god of the Sumerian traditions, could have been the Poseidon figure, and, and the uh, destroyer god could have come from the Sumerian tradition. This is not only possible, it is likely. Zeus is the name we are familiar with from the Greek tradition that comes and punishes the people of Atlantis who have achieved so much because, because they started taking it for granted. What could the people of Atlantis have taken for granted? How could they have become immorally bankrupt? Could this be another interpretation of a god figure striking down upon humans for knowing too much? What I can tell you is, is that there is a recollection in Sumerian myth and tradition of a time before the flood when a high civilization existed and when, and when cities existed and then the flood came and uh, everything was reset and, and started again. So what, what's of interest to me in that is the recollection of the memory of, 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 of something before the flood, something major, something important before the, before the flood. Could there be a connection between the Greek version of Atlantis and the Sumerian gods? Je m'intéresse vraiment, je, mes, mes travaux vraiment se, se focalisent euh, tout particulièrement. I think it is interesting because we thought for a long time that Plato had been taught by Egyptian priests. But thanks to the Edfu text, we wonder if he actually had the copies in hand. We will never know. But there are very similar elements between the Plato version of the Atlantis and the Egyptian Edfu text of Atlantis I translated. And we can understand, in a few words, that Osiris, who is considered to be the Sumerian god Inki, fled Mesopotamia to help start a new civilization, according to the doctrine of Enlil, and he flees to Atlantis and settles down on some islands in the Atlantic Ocean. This ancient territory is mentioned in some funerary texts, such as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They call it Lab Mata, which could be roughly translated by the water crown of Ta. Ta is one of Osiris's names. It is the Egyptian name for Inki. Like all the other gods, he had many different names. We understand that Ta settles on some islands, and we can identify similar data to that of Plato's writings. In the Edfu versions of the Atlantis, there are always attacks from the forces of Set. Set is, of course, Enlil. We understand that he went all the way to Egypt, even all the way to Morocco, Azores, and the Canary Islands. Set doesn't stop attacking Osiris' islands. Another interesting element to this story, there is a technology that Egyptians' gods used for protection, the Jed pillars. They place them around the city, 
Apparently, some are even on the water. The texts call them floaters. They can protect the city, and we can understand in parts of the texts that thanks to the energy coming from these Dijed pillars, Egyptians can control water and create water walls, very thick ones, in order to protect the city. Many mythologies and legends have similarities. We understand that Osiris could actually be Poseidon or Neptune, and Enlil, in some ways, could be Zeus. What is interesting to note is Poseidon is always pictured with a pitchfork that was later connected with the biblical pitchfork of Satan by the Catholic Church. If Anki is connected to this interpretation, could the destruction of Atlantis be the story of Yahweh's wrath on advanced humanity? Anton Parks suggests there is a connection between the scientific version of the cataclysm and the Egyptian texts. The Egyptian Atlantis must have lasted long enough in history that it is part of Egyptian culture. Funerary texts mention it quite often. Indeed, the Egyptian Atlantis, La Meta, corresponds to the West. It also means the West in Egyptian. And West is also where you bury the dead. We see that the idea remains that when you go towards the West, there were many deaths. In Egyptian history, Osiris's death happens at the same time as another very singular element, which takes place in the sky. It is the fall of the Eye of Sound found in the Edfu text. This is the destruction of a planet which was in between Mars and Jupiter. This is where we find the asteroid belt, and I believe that a planet used to be there. The death of Osiris is at this point in the story. In 1950, Emanuel Velikovsky published a book called Worlds in Collision. In this book, he discusses that Venus was ejected from Jupiter as a comet and this passed near Earth, causing catastrophes mentioned in mythologies around the world. Could Anton's translations of the Sumerian text explain this very moment in human history and how it relates to the Flood? Selon moi, euh, il s'agirait de... In the Edfu text that I translated, they mentioned the fall of the eye of sound. Let me explain. In my opinion, Venus was located close to Mulgay. It was one of its satellites. And when Mulgay exploded, its satellite, Venus, is ejected into the solar system. And at some point, it comes very close to Earth. Then there is Osiris' death. According to the text, this was the work of Enlil, who prepared his attack, both on Earth and in the sky. He really wanted to make history and impact significantly the gods' history. He was not going to be defeated by earthly technology. Venus was ejected into the solar system, turned inside it for thousands of years, before eventually placing itself where it is today. And Leo must have really wanted to finally put an end to the lengthy war he was waging against Inky Osiris. And he came close with the death of Osiris. When Osiris 
But then a second event, the story tells us. And luckily for history in general, Osiris comes back as Horus and the battle can start again. There are many elements that explain these events and that describe how Horus arrives to destroy the evil of the world in order to avenge his father's death. This explains a similar catastrophic event that happened at the same time, such as the destruction of Atlantis. This arrival is most likely a comet, who is actually Horus, according to Sumerian text. And this is also when the so-called flood happened, about 10,000 years ago. Could these ancient Sumerian texts be explaining a battle for the power over Earth and the destruction not only on the planet, but in the sky? Ancient texts suggest that whoever survived this cataclysm survived to tell the story in Egypt. Plato tells us where the story came from. It came from an ancestor in his family line, Solon, a famous Greek lawmaker who visited Egypt around 600 BC. And in that visit, he encountered Egyptian priests who told him the story that there had been a high civilization in remote antiquity that had been destroyed in a cataclysm and submerged beneath the sea, that there were survivors. Some of those survivors came to Egypt and founded what would become the great civilization of Egypt in, in, in due course. And with the great civilizations of Egypt came the Great Pyramid. Could this ancient knowledge that was now buried beneath the ocean floor have made a resurgence on the Earth's surface? Well, the Great Pyramid, I mean, is a monument. But it's, it's, it's a geometrical monster. But in fact, it's not a four-sided pyramid. It has a very slight concavity on each side making it an eight-sided pen. Now, the minute you do this, you not only complicate the design tremendously, but it produces rather bizarre geometry. This video is in association with Gaia.com. Go to Gaia.com forward slash fifth kind access to thousands of thought-provoking documentaries and original programs. Holy catfish. Mm. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah. We'll digest that over time, everyone, but it's time for us to take a break. <laughs> so we shall, mm. and we will be back with our brother Richard and a look at the stars. And our sister Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha and uh, music. Music. <laughs> Satnam for now, everybody. See you in a little while. Namaste. Hello. Richard? Wow. Sorry about the delay there. Greetings, Commander. Okay. 
Well, it's uh, it's the twenty third of July, and the sun is in two degrees of Leo, and the moon is in ten degrees Gemini, and the moon is still opposite Pluto, and Mercury is at ten Leo, and square Mars. And trying Jupiter. So that's actually kind of a well, Mercury trying Jupiter is is good, but Mercury square Mars is argument. Argument, yeah. argument. Who's arguing with whom? Yeah. Yeah, arguments everywhere. Um now Neptune is is at uh, 26, so it's still sextile Pluto at 28 over there in Capricorn. So we got Pluto sextile Neptune trying the sun opposite Pluto. That's not bad. Uh, actually, that's pretty good if you like if you like the way Pluto's working these days. Um, well, Saturn's still square Uranus. Um, Chiron is uh, seventeen in retrograde. And that's about anything. Oh, Mars is at 13, and Uranus is at 19, so they're officially conjunct now. And uh, being in Taurus, uh, Mercury's going to square those guys this week. When we look at next Saturday night, Mercury, yeah, Mercury will be square Mars and Uranus, it'll be up at 22, Leo, and it'll be opposite Saturn. So we're going to have a T-square building this week. Mm. Mars opposite Saturn with, that's wrong, Mercury opposite Saturn with Mars at the midpoint in Taurus. So a fixed T-square. That's going to bring some Tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what else for next? That's, oh, the sun is going to move into a trine with Jupiter. Next Saturday night, sun will be at 8. Jupiter will be at 9. Leo, so we're going to have sun's going to approach a trine to Jupiter. It'll be beginning to square Mars, but not this week. That'll be next week. And uh, uh, the moon will end up in in early Virgo next Saturday night. So that's your layout. You know, pretty much like last week, except that the conjunction with Mars and Uranus is more powerful. More be wary. Mm-hmm. Be wary and look at how Taurus uh, affects your chart this week. And 
like it could be good, you know. Mars, in its lower aspects, you know, is physical, biological energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and up, we got an outbreak, a, a new outbreak of uh, coronavirus, they're telling me this week. So, uh, that, uh, Mars, yeah. Mars hmm. conjunct Uranus on Earth. Yep, coronavirus. And hmm. that's about all that's worthwhile for right now. Venus, it's eight cancer. And so it's square Jupiter. And I think I've covered everything there. All right, let's go see what Kaipacha wants to say. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you, Richard. He looks like he's somewhere maybe in this area of the planet. Southwest, don't know. Oh, well. You know, well, again, people forget, people forget that the sun is always shining, even if it's cloudy, rainy, and humid like it is over here, you know? Yeah. 88, 88 and humid with afternoon showers, and, uh, you know, so everybody's, you know, power went out twice this week, you know, blah, 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 life goes on. Yeah. Yep. Here we go. Okay. Gotta hurry up. Yep. Hola, Kepache here with the weekly payment report for July 20th of the year 2022 which is very small in comparison to the origins of time here at Gobekli Tepe, the oldest megaliths on planet Earth, older than the pyramids, 9,500 B.C. Sacred temples built by the Sabians celebrating the masculine and the feminine, the duality. I could uh, go uh, at great length into the <laughs> what, what this is all about, but <clears throat> this is uh, for this week, we're going to say that the moon is right on the cusp of Aries going into Taurus. And then uh, she moves through Taurus, conjoins with Mars, Uranus, north node of the moon, then she moves into Gemini, Friday and Saturday, at the same time that the sun moves into Leo. Yes, indeed. She's going to try and Pluto on that day. We have some really great aspects. Um, by Saturday, you know, the sun and Mercury are just traveling together here. And uh, uh, the Mercury's going to try and Jupiter on Saturday. The moon is going to sextile Jupiter, Sun, and Mercury on Saturday. By Sunday, we have Venus coming into square Jupiter with the moon trining Saturn. This is an amazing week. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's phenomenal. And, and then uh, by Monday, uh, the moon goes into Cancer. Yeah. And um, 
Mercury on Tuesday comes into square Mars as the moon conjuncts Venus and squares Chiron. So I'm going to just take a look at the camera and talk to you about what all that means. All right, everybody. I don't exactly know what's going to happen here because uh, I did a little test. I mean, I know it's very windy out here and there's a lot of people have a hard time hearing me. And uh, so I do this little test and the sound came out all right. So I don't know. I'm going to try to go for it and uh, hope that uh, the wind is uh, not stopping it. I mean, I got this uh, sore throat. Uh, it's been very dry. It's been a lot of buses and airplanes and uh, buses. And <laughs> and it's been dry, man. We were out, go back to Atepi, which is, uh, you know, the, the sites here that I'm visiting in Turkey. The ancient, oldest megaliths in the world. And I'm visiting them with a group that contains a, a number of sensitives that have been, uh, you know, like really uh, sensitively picking in, picking up on the energy of these sites. And we started out in Mardin, went to Haran, uh, saw, you know, the both the Tigris and the Euphrates right along the Syrian border. It's been an amazing journey here, uh, back to the origins of time is what uh, is what I called it, but. It, uh, what they really picked up, you know, around this uh, 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 space here, this time. I mean, thank goodness now, uh, it was 55 degrees out in Mardin. Centigrade. Centigrade. <laughs> Whoa, man. So, yeah, I got a little dry throat going on here, but <clears throat> I'm hoping that I can make it through the Pele Report if not the rest of the workshop. So, um, yeah, to get back on, on track, we made it down to the sea here. This is, uh, we're right outside Ankara, well, uh, near Antalya, and uh, it is, it's still pretty doggone hot, but uh, the water is way different than the desert out there. And uh, if you uh, stay on until the end of the Paley Report, at the end of this, I'll... Uh, put on a bunch of uh, photos of the pictures of the different sites that we've seen. And, um, yeah, it's been a phenomenal journey. And if you have an opportunity to make it out here someday, I hope you do. Because the history of humanity, you know, uh, is our history. And it's her story, not just his story. Uh, it's been patriarchal for a long period of time. But this is what is so important about Gobekli Tepe. Not only was it the Sabians, the Sabians that inspired the Sabian symbols, but we were them. We are them. It's not they. It's us. We are the Sabians. We are the ancient astrologers. We have incarnated and incarnated through Atlantis and through Lemuria and through India and through Sumeria and through Egypt and through Greece. We are the Romans. <laughs> you know, I mean, we are uh, the chosen ones. We are the oppressed ones. We are. 
So we have come in and come in and come in. This is our soul history. So this isn't just like something that we can, you know, push off and, oh, yeah, oh, back then, or oh, those people, or oh, da, 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 da. As much as you can, I encourage you to really take in and, and, and to feel into the energy that is around this time period. And, and what do I say this time period? This time period is basically the end of the matriarchy and the beginning of the patriarchy. The end of 6,500 years of feminine water, earth, clouds, mist, vapor, subtle, psychic, spirit, soul, energy, undifferentiated, united, connected in oneness with the earth and with each other, and mushy-gushy, wushy-dushy. And then, boom, 7,500 to 6,500, it took a thousand years for the patriarchy, the masculine energy, the phallus energy of the sword to cut through the fabric, the tapestry, the ocean of oneness and unity, almost like the seed breaks through, yes, the soil in springtime, searching for the light of the sun, because it's time for that plant to emerge as a unique individual plant. Yes, maybe one of a whole species of roses or strawberries or peaches or olives, but unique in its own essence. And this is what is the patriarchy has been about. We have now had 6,500 years of this individuation, materialization, intellectualization, objectification, separation. This has been going on and growing and growing so that each one of us on a soul level over and over and over again Find yourself, find yourself, find yourself. You're amazing. You're unique. You're the one and only. You're special. You are divine. You are amazing. You, you, do, 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 do. Sun bursting into Leo. Yeah. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. Absolutely. And now here's the thing. It's gotten out of hand. <laughs> you know, and I get every once in a while I'll get a comment, would you stop bashing the patriarchy? Du, 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 du. You know what? Uh, no, I won't. <laughs> There's a time and a season for everything. Spring needs to give way to summer. Summer needs to give way to fall. Fall needs to give way to winter. So this is a type of a situation here where, you know, there's a, there's a schedule. Astrology is about time. Evolution is growing through cycles of time. And the time is up for the patriarchy. 
just like the time was up for the matriarchy. And the matriarchy gave way to the patriarchy. And now it's time for the patriarchy to give way, okay, to the new holarchy, <laughs> holoarchy, <laughs> onearchy, <laughs> whatever. But you get what I'm saying here. It's like, you know, you're going out to play tennis, you know, and you got, you know, or you're golf or something, you know, and it's tea time and, you know, and you're there and it's like, okay, you know, I'm here and what's going on? You know, they're not giving up the court. Call it basketball, call it tennis, call it golf, call it any game you want to call it. This game is supposed to happen on a court. And there's a time and a place. Yeah, and there's a people have their, you know, it's like we got our reservations. We got our reservations. We incarnated at this time to bring in a new reality, a new paradigm, a new earth. This is our time. And right now there's a group, yeah? There's, there's a group of these patriarchs that are out of sync with time. They're, they, they, they've grown so full of themselves. And their ego consciousness has, has eclipsed their soul consciousness. And they're messing up with the game. You see? So yeah, I will bash them. I'll bash them as much as I want to bash them because you know what? It's, 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 their turn is up. Their time is up. And so I want to talk about this. It's very interesting that Black Moon Lilith here, she has been in cancer going back and forth and back and forth. This is the powerful, powerful handmaiden of Inanna, the goddess of love and beauty in the ancient matriarchal times. Super powerful being. Understanding. She was a teacher. She was a very powerful goddess of the temple. She's been going back and forth in the sign of cancer since December 22nd of 2021. And she's going to remain there, right, until March of 2023. So she's, you know, she's, she's not even halfway through, but she swings around. She goes, you know, she's back into Gemini and then she goes up to 28 degrees cancer and then she goes, you know, this is the true black moon Lilith, not the mean average, but the true, the wild Amazon feminine, powerful energy of gushing water of the spring emerging out of Gaia. And this Lilith energy then was the first wife of Adam who refused to lay beneath Adam and left Adam. You see, this is this is the time period of Gobekli Tepe. This is the time period of the end of the matriarchy when the patriarchal religions. So the matriarchy was that spirit and soul resides within and without. The law of one. In la kesha la kin, I am another you. This is this matriarchal feminine energy that feels more than thinks about the situation. 
the relationship between things seen through the separation of the third dimension. Now, religion comes in, the patriarchs come in, ownership comes in, property comes in, this is mine comes in, this is yours, you know, and it's vitally necessary for our evolution, don't get me wrong. We needed, okay, we needed to get in touch with Mars. We needed to get in touch, okay, with Jupiter and Zeus and, you know, the whole expansion of consciousness and individualized identity. We needed to diversify. And that's what we've been doing. (laughs) Hip, hip, hooray. So we're all different, yeah. And now that we're all different, we're different enough. <laughs> we, we don't need to keep on diversifying for fucking ever, right? You know, we can come together and create a new paradigm, a new society, a new world, yeah, that honors and respects diversity. And it's, and it's super awesome. Rather than staying separate, separate, isolated, lonely, Becoming less human, less feeling, less one, and going off. Because when we lose our humanity, we go into despair. And we start taking them pharmaceuticals, or those non-pharmaceuticals, in order to recapture that sense of unity and oneness and love. In order to fill the void and the emptiness. That's what addiction is all about. We got a huge proportion of people that are addicted. And let's, let's not mistake it that, you know, the, the few patriarchs, you know, that are like really running around trying to control this thing, they know it, man. Right? You know, and they are exploiting the fact that everybody is lonely and isolated and separated and feels meaningless and purposeless because they're so like rockets in outer space. And that's what this whole, oh, let's all get together for, you know, this climate change. Or let's all get together for COVID. Or let's all get together for, you know, the, 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 the let's all get together on this and this and this and this with the, with the great reset. You know what I'm saying? Taking advantage of the situation that they actually themselves have created of separation. Now, Venus enters cancer. You know, for the first time in a year. And it's so funny because, like, Lilith is up at, like, 28 Cancer or something, you know. And she comes retrograde, 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 right back to the door of Cancer to say, Hello, Venus. Come on in, baby. And so Venus and Lilith are going to be traveling together within four degrees of each other, okay, right on through. Okay, I mean, this, you know, Venus came in on Sunday. And they're going to stay together, what, you know? Um, So Lilith goes back, she goes all the way back to like one degree or zero degrees. And then she swings up, okay, to, you know, to like 28 degrees and then comes back. And on, uh, what, July 28th, Venus has gone up and Lilith has gone down and back and they can join again. Okay. And that time it's at 12 degrees, 25 minutes. 
And then, so, you know, Lilith is going back and forth, high Venus, high Venus, by Venus, by Venus, <laughs> into Leo, back into Cancer, into Leo, back into Cancer. Oh, okay. In the meantime, you know, Venus is like cruising along and she'll be, she'll be scooting through Cancer in a month or so, right? You see what I'm saying? So this is very powerful feminine energy, and I talked about it last week with the water, you know, getting into our fears, getting into our traumas. The water holds and it contains energy, yeah? And it, and, and, and it holds the past. Cancer has to do with the past, with the womb, with the feminine, with the feelings, and they don't make sense and they're full of chaos and they come and they go and they're unpredictable and they're, you know, often unexplainable. And, you know, they're, they're, it, it just creates a lot of confusion in very many people's minds. And the sun has been there, too, and Mercury's been there, too. So we've all been kind of like, you know, going into needing to at this time of the year, connect with the past, feel into the past. And now what? Mercury went into Leo. The sun is going into Leo. Kaboom! Fire! The lion. The lioness emerges out of the womb. It's the birth time. Yeah, they cut the cord. It's like... It's power. It's fire. And it's very very funny because I was thinking about this because it's like... Fire is the bad guys. Fire is the bad one. You know? It's it's so funny because, you know, we're in water and like cancer is like, oh, you know, let's just stay home and, you know, cook and, you know, have some food and, you know, take a jacuzzi and get stay comfy and cozy by the fire and whatever, you know. But, you know, let's snuggle, 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 snuggle. And then, you know, like Leo comes along, bam, I got a show to put on. I got something, you know, I got something unique, something amazing, something, I got to get out of the house. (laughs) It's the teenagers got to leave home, man. It's like, bye, mom, dad. (laughs) I got a party. (laughs) Just think about then Scorpio is water. Scorpio's like, yeah, I want more of you and soul connection, soul mate, twin flame. I want to be you and you be me and, you know, we'll interpenetrate and alchemically transform ourselves into like, ah, you know, I can't get enough of you. I want to devour you. Along comes Sagittarius. Sagittarius. It's like, whoosh, you know, again, I need space. Foreign lands, foreign countries, I need to expand my consciousness, something new, something different. Something out of this, you know, out of this, this, you know, this, this box, this container, this relationship, this job, this, you know, you know, something that's just trying to, you know, suck all my life, blood and energy out of me. Sagittarius is like, boom, break out, break free. Pisces gives way to Aries. You think it's easy? Uh, 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 uh. Pisces is like anything is possible. Go with the flow. I've got my imagination, and I feel like this, and you know, and we could do that, and or it could be that, and uh, I got this fantasy, and I want to live in. Blah, blah, blah. And Aries is like, boom, do it, do it. 
The Pisces is like. Astrology is so freaking great, man. You know, and it's always the even signs and houses fulfill the odd signs and houses. So Taurus fulfills Aries. Yeah, Cancer fulfills Gemini. Virgo fulfills Leo. But there is the break between. That break between Cancer into Leo is okay. Yes, I've got these feelings and I've got this past and I've got this mom and dad and I've got these memories. But I am going to, you know, step up, step out, freaking go. And what happens now? So this happens every year. Okay. First, I talked about, you know, the, the matriarchy, patriarchy, thousands of years. You know, then we can talk about the age of Aquarius. Leo is the shadow of the age of Aquarius. We got 2,000 years of the individual getting shit on. <laughs> the good of the group, the good of the planet. You know, don't go on vacation. You know, it's your carbon. Uh, you're using too much gas. You know, it's... You know, and we're and we're going to keep track of that, and then you're going to have to pay for it, and then it's another way of us controlling you. So you know, you just you know do what we tell you, and uh, you'll be able to uh, you know be happy with nothing. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> so anyway, you know, this is if it ain't one thing, it's another. But the self-expression of Leo. I am the queen. I am the king of the jungle. I am powerful. I want to leave a legacy. I am creative. I am, you know, special, unique, divine. A ray of light from the sun. Don't mess with me. What do we got now? Saturn and Aquarius. Until next March. That's what this mantra is about, right? And, and what did we just come out of? Pluto in Capricorn, opposite late Cancer, right now. If you're listening to this, I mean, this is happening. This It's still active. It's like the dragon waiting for the birth of the child, you know? Uh, you know, it's like the big bad wolf, you know, blowing down the house of the three little pigs, you know? It is opposition. And I don't want to say nobody, but just about nobody really wants you to be as big as you are and as you can be and do all that you came in here to do. Who wants that? <laughs> you know, this, is a, this is the bizarre trip, you know. I could read the Sabian symbol today. I'm going to type out the Sabian symbol, because it's so powerful. It's the Sabian symbol for the, the first degree of Leo. And it really talks. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. I'm not going to, it's a real long one, you know, because you, you really went into it. But it is, blood rushes to a man's head as his vital energies are mobilized under the spur of ambition. An eruption of biopsychic energies into the ego-controlled field of consciousness. This is what this is about, and this is what I'm saying. It ain't easy. 
Nobody's handing you yourself on a platter saying, oh, yes, we've been waiting for you to come. You know, nobody's rolling out red carpets these days, blowing trumpets, going, oh, yes, be yourself, be true, be, you know, be true to yourself, do whatever you want to do here, 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 here. We support you. Here's a stage. Here's a microphone. We're going to record it. We're going to, you know, it's like, you no, no. The government, the banks, the religions, you know, the institutions, the global corporations, they're not looking for powerful individuals. They're looking for robots. That's why the school system sucks, because they've been trying to put out robots for many, many, many years. They don't want you to be your... Leo self. <laughs> Your big bad self. No way, baby. Come on. Don't kid yourself. Oh, you could be this, you know, you, you put on that suit and tie and you could do that and you could succeed at that. And then you'll be happy when you've got a bunch of money and nobody can stand you. Lucky <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. It's too ridiculous, man. So, yeah, and what else? So, I mean, the cool thing is we got Jupiter coming through Aries, okay? We've, we've got Chiron healing the wound of the wounded warrior in Aries. We've got Mars coming in through Taurus, you know, and what? And now what happens, you know? Yeah, we got Mercury square Mars. And let's not forget, I know you're going through an intense, challenging time right now. If you're not, you're pretending. Or lying to yourself. We've all got Mars conjunct Uranus, conjunct the North Node of the Moon. Uranus is intensely erratic, extreme, sudden events. Conjunct the North Node of the Moon and Mars coming along now for the next three weeks, four weeks. We have, this is like explosion time we are all feeling like powder kegs of gunpowder ready to freaking explode I know you are <laughs> yeah baby it's in the stars we're all like what the hell is happening now you know now that you know the, the COVID's like popping up all over the place again you know they're all like all the numbers are going and you know all the news is all this kind of BS you know going on about how bad 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 bad, 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 bad and everybody's like going down 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 and you can only go down so far before the human spirit just says I've had enough I ain't going down no more <laughs> Uranus is rebellion Mars, Uranus is rebellion. So we're also going to see, I don't know, man, we're going to see some fireworks. Some of it may not be pretty. Some of it may be painful and hard to look at. So what you want to be doing is you want to be doing this inside yourself. You want to be creating. You want to do your inner work so that you don't need to experience coming at you. Yeah? You know? It's just like talking to somebody here in the in the workshop, you know? Teacher, you're going to be taught. Create or it will be created for you. Okay? Write or it will be written for you. Uh, you know, you, you, it's, it's like, you know what? 
live or it will be lived for you. So if, if you if we don't do what we are here to do, somebody else is going to do it wrong. <laughs> How about that? And that's what Leo is really about. I often use the image of, you know, it's like it's the rabbit and the magician. Leo has to pull themselves out of a hat. You got to pull yourself out of a hat. You, you've got to be whatever you want to be. You, you, we create ourselves. This is creative self-expression. Yeah? I'm create. And if you don't create yourself, mom and dad, teachers, preachers, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, whoever, you know, bosses, somebody's going to create you. And it's not going to be you. It's going to be what they want you to be. And then you are going to be depressed. I mean, duh. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. This is so obvious. Now, here we go. Ready? As I come to find and express myself, I find there is opposition. Oh. <laughs> Rather than take it personally, I will become inspiration. This is the other thing now. Cancer and Leo are our personal signs. They're very sensitive and, and they're afraid. They're insecure. You know, Leo wants everybody to love them and accept them and, and, and clap for them and everything, you know. And Cancer wants everybody to just kind of, you know, snuggle with them and make them safe. And So, you know, here we've got these kind of things. It's like, you know, it's like that. It's the seed when it first breaks through the soil. It's like, ooh, 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 careful. Not too much sun, not too much water. I could get washed away. I could have it's this is a very sensitive time. You need to be easy on yourself. You need to really take, you know, like it's all right. Don't be pushed. Mars, Uranus, Saturn and Aquarius, you know, this big square, you know, going on, I mean, and it's going to even intensify. As the, as the sun and Mercury, you know, catches up and makes that big T-square with Saturn Uranus. Whoa! Frickin' August is gonna be kick butt. <laughs> Ow! So, yeah. I mean, it's... It's also... It's about play. You gotta play. Mm -hmm. And you gotta take it easy on yourself. You're gonna screw it up. And so just accept it's new. You've never been yourself before. <laughs> You're trying <laughs> yeah. to break out of, you know, what everybody else has told you to be. And you're you're kind of like, you know, Leo's like the teenager, like, it's this kind of time where, you know, no, we don't know ourselves, man. And as soon as you do know yourself, guess what? There's another you in there coming out. Because we're evolving. So we got to keep on. This is an ongoing process. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you go. Ready? Uh, as I come to find myself, you know, find and express myself, I find there is opposition. Rather than take it personally, 
right? You know, <clears throat> I will become inspiration. So this is this is the way out of victim, right? It's not victim perpetrator. You you run into opposition. That opposition is really there to help you discover your power. So just change the attitude. It's not opposition. Maybe it's a test. It's a challenge. You know, it's a you know, it's something that you. Know, it's like you bump up against somebody and you feel yourself. This is what opposition. Counterpoint awareness. This is what the third dimension is all about. Polarity and opposition. It's all right. Don't take it personally. Just become inspiration. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Richard. I just I just want to know if if we're going to have uh, some disclosure this summer. I think that there could be. Well, I don't know 100% because I you know they're going on break anytime now and then um got to deal with 9/11 when they get back. Yeah. And there's not going to Accountability comes first. Well, there's a whole lot of that needed. Yep. And, uh, you know, that one we call president ordered 9-11. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Neptune, oh, next Saturday, yeah, we got Neptune trying Venus. Kicks in. Kicks in next Saturday. Uh, Venus will be at 16, uh, approaching or trying to Neptune. So that'll, that'll be a, a countervailing helpfulness to that T-square that he is talking about, that Mercury opposite uh, Saturn square Uranus. All right. Well, I hope everybody has a good week. I'm getting a whole lot of tomatoes. 
the themes are kind of played out. They, I kind of, you know, they're kind of, you know, they did their thing, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to pull them up this week, put them in the compost pile, and uh, think about replanting, see if I can get another crop of beans in before fall. Anyway, everybody have a great week, and talk to you later. Okay, Richard. Let's do, Kay. Let's do, uh, Tanya Gabrielle here. Thank you, Richard, so much. It's Tanya Gabrielle here, wealth astrologist, and welcome back to Star Codes. This is the forecast where we look at a very important celestial event in the stars and numbers to get insights that help us navigate the energy in the best way possible. In this case, it's going to be the Leo New Moon. I'm actually really excited about this new moon because it happens during a time where there's a major celestial event, and we're going to go into that in a minute. First of all, the Leo new moon happens on July 28th at 6.55 p.m. Universal Time, which is 1.55 p.m. Eastern New York and 10.55 a.m. L.A. Pacific Time. And the two fives actually are important in this case. The numerology in the stars echoes the number five in that the sun and moon will be at five degrees Leo. And what's so stunning is that Leo also rules in astrology the fifth house. And later we're going to discover another number that is connected to the lion energy as well. So more on that in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the fact that the fifth house is all about romance. Leo is about having fun, standing up for yourself, being childlike, being creative. Leo is a royal sign, so it governs leaders as well. And it's the sign that governs your heart. So it is intimately connected to feeling love. So it's a very important time in general around the Leo new moon to awaken to the love that you naturally are and that you were created from. So what makes this Leo new moon so beautiful is a double trine from Jupiter in Aries to the new moon. Now Jupiter governs Sagittarius, which is a fire sign. Aries is a fire sign. That's what Jupiter is currently navigating through. And Leo is a fire sign. So in a sense, by virtue of this trine, which is a double trine because we have the sun and moon, because of that double trine from Jupiter and Aries to Leo and Jupiter being the ruler of Sagittarius, it's like a grand trine of fire. So there is a lot of passion here and forward momentum and new beginnings, Aries being the first sign. And this is really the main focal point of the lighting the fire internally so that you really connect to your true source, your, the source 
of your heart, which is love. Your heart is the connection to God, to Mother, Father, God. So what's going to help make this happen is a more tense aspect. And tense aspects are the oppositions and squares and occasionally also the conjunctions. So Mercury is opposite to Saturn and both create a T-square to a very rare event. And that is a conjunction with Mars and Uranus, which will actually be exact July 31st and August 1st, and the North Node. So the North Node will join with Mars and Uranus. And this has not happened in a long time. In fact, the last time was 300 BC, 325, 324 BC. So it's been almost 2400, 2500 years. So it's a very big event. The North Node represents our future. Mars and Uranus are very fast moving planets. When they get together, uh, surprises happen and breakthroughs happen and rockets take off fast. There's the unexpected nature of things and also new beginnings as well because the disruption is literally creating space for old paradigms to fall away and that's represented by the Mercury opposite Saturn part of the T-square, Saturn being the old paradigms and the old structures. So this is really big and because it hasn't happened, this actual connection between these three, North Node, Uranus and Mars in so long, and it coincides with a Leo new moon and with this opposition T-square between Mercury and Saturn, which create this T-square, which you can see Right here in the chart, you, you see this red triangle, and that represents the T-square. And at the apex of the triangle, you will see Mars, Uranus, and the North Node. So basically, you are emerging from a dream. And we're going to go into that dream in a moment. But initially, what you'll discover is that your powers of concentration are stronger This is a wonderful opportunity for serious analysis, serious conversations. And you may feel your energy more restricted because of the Saturn-Mercury opposition and T-square. And at the same time, you're yearning for so much independence and freedom because of Uranus and Mars. So prepare for surprising developments. Take a lot of deep breaths. And remember that we are in the 2020s, which amplified the 2000s, which we entered just, what, 22 years ago. And the number two literally is that connection. It's two sides, right, connecting to each other, which is why the Internet and and mobile phones really took off once we moved into the 2000s because we're connecting more than ever. And so the most important connection, of course, is the one to your heart, which is represented by Leo in the physiology of astrology. The connection to your heart is the number one line to love and laughter. And remember that double trying to Jupiter. Jupiter is a planet representing joy, happiness, and laughter. And Mercury is a planet of humor. Mercury's opposite Saturn. So Mercury is also breaking free in order to bring more laughter 
and not be so serious. So there's a little bit of a push and pull with his opposition to Saturn and Mercury saying it's time to humor what's going on because some of it is just, you know, very oppressive and we need to shed some light on it. And Leo helps with that, by the way, because Leo's ruled by the sun, the bringer of light, our star. So you are now fully engaging during this time. You really feel your full engagement to help cleanse this planet of those old cobwebs, those webs of corruption and dishonesty that have been an aspect of the whole illusion, the dream. And so now let's look at that illusion because it was created for a purpose as everything is created for a purpose. The reason the illusion was created is to experience a sense of freedom because it gives us the freedom to move away from our natural state of love. So for each person to live with little consideration or little compassion for others, which has been very noticeable in the last thousands of years, that's their choice. You know, sometimes individual survival was considered above all other human needs. And as this freedom then to explore in this dream state took hold, that natural sense that we are all one became like a dream. It it didn't seem real. So then, hence, a lot of the love and the compassion and kindness and joining together was taken out of our sacred ceremonies, our religions. It was not fostered in education through discovering our intuition and connecting through the heart, taken out of health, taking out of social constructs, obviously politics, and also the arts. So love then became a lot more hidden from our conscious reality, our conscious awareness, while survival and competition took center stage. And, you know, people tuned in more to, oh, we only have one life, we have to use it to the maximum, take advantage of the limited time we have on Earth, and the resources we have at our disposal. And that kind of perspective really fostered this self-centeredness and a lack of regard for others, because it was about me and my life, uh, and also a lack of consideration for planet Earth. So in the last decades, really since the harmonic conversions, so I would say since the 1980s or so, even starting in the 1970s, more and more people have considered being of service rather than uh, being in servitude or self-centered, which are paradoxically related. So being in service in some capacity has uh, slowly bubbled into the surface, which means not just taking a job and collecting your paycheck at the end of the month, the end of the week, but looking at the activities of the organization that they work for to see if that organization and the people who work for it and run it honor humanity, honor compassion, honor the planet. So in this way, the unthinking, unself-aware blindness, the blind acceptance has become progressively less, especially in 
since we entered the 2000s and in particular the 2020s. So people have become more curious about how their actions support or negate other people's lives. And that consideration of others has really blossomed. So this new moon in Leo coming with this very rare event that includes the North Node and breaking through really the rocket taking off, uh, the North Node being our future, we're really, really considering how our actions impact the future. And since Leo governs leaders, royalty, and there's a powerful T-square, there's a really a lot of tension now with leadership positions and who's at the helm and how they are leading and whether that is for the greater good. Now, at the helm of this T-square, of course, is that Uranus-Mars North Node in Taurus. And let's talk about Taurus for a minute because Taurus is the sign of our physical resources. Uh, the Taurus represents pleasure and it represents food and security. And it is literally our body and the pleasure we uh, experience. It is ruled by Venus. So it governs financial flow and beauty as well, what we value. And it's very physical. So our physical surroundings are now changing. And that could mean earth events. It can definitely mean your own surroundings, what you choose to have in your life. Are you paying more attention to, for example, the 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 kind of bedding you use? Just to throw something out there. Uh, the food you eat, of course. Um, the materials that are in your home. Are they emitting fumes or are they natural and create harmony in your life. So all of this, you know, is coming into the our, our awareness. So we're becoming a lot less unself-aware. Now, Mercury opposite Saturn, Mercury is square to Uranus and Mars in the North Node as well. And these planets are creating this tense connection at this juncture in time in order to help break through the corruption Right, So Uranus provides the electricity and Uranus square Mercury govern the airwaves. So breakthrough information, which will also be revealed in the media. It's already starting and there's going to be a lot more as Mars fires up the passion and courage to directly address the truth and the underlying cobwebs, expose them to the public domain. You know, Saturn represents the old structures that are being exposed and stripped away, but Saturn also represents time and Kronos. It's time. The timing is right. And Saturn in Aquarius is important as well. You know, that that square between Saturn and Aquarius began last year, and there were three meetings. There's one more nearly exact meeting. You could pretty much call it exact, and that happens in October. And this new moon in Leo activates it. So between now and the end of the year, there is really a almost like a celebration of the cleansing energy uh, that's happening on Earth. So Saturn in Aquarius, that's Uranus's sign. So it gives Uranus even more juice, and Uranus is in Taurus. So really what is what is most dear to us, what is most immediate in our life is going to be really, um, not really turned upside down, but 
looked at in a, in a new way that is healthy for the future. Remember, Aquarius rules the 11th house, which is the house of groups and the future. And Uranus and Aquarius are the breakthrough signs. They go beyond our present awareness into galactic awareness, looking at tangential subjects and considering things we hadn't thought of before. So they're really um, the politically incorrect part of the astrology wheel. And they also represent uh, the exciting breakthroughs you get from the divination arts, astrology and numerology, they govern those. So all the perspectives that we are receiving now by looking at these celestial events and the numerology behind them is really important. Now, speaking of the numerology, let's go back to the number five, because we have this new moon at five degrees and five is the number of freedom. And five represents a pivot point. It faces left and right. It sits on a rocker. It has straight lines and curves. And so it literally represents, I can take any path I want. I'm at the top of the mountain and I have a lot of choices and decisions to make. So that's the freedom part of it. Now, what's so exciting is the date, 7-28-2022, adds up to 23 So 23 is the universal date, and 23 in numerology is the royal star of the lion number. So we have a lot of lion-hearted energy here, which is so beautiful because it reminds us of love and how courage, which represents the lion-hearted energy, is a word derived from cur in French, love. So we have this reminder that you are love, you are one, it's how you were created, and this can't change ever. The separation from source never happened. It's an illusion. Remember that the 2020s and the 2000s and the 21st century are reminding us of this divine truth, this divine connection. So it's really important to now see that we're waking up to understand that we can choose to return to be awake and that all it takes is an intention to do so. Just by setting an intention to do so, you actually are fostering that connection. And that's how powerful you are because doing this is the great awakening, making the choice now to wake up to your eternal connection to love is the choice that you have at your disposal. That's the freedom now. It's come full circle. So awakening to the love that you are and sharing that love, which is the next step. So this is why you're here at this moment in human history. So take the time daily to go within your heart through whatever meditative practice you do. It can be walking, listening to music, talking to your guides, right? It is literally inviting love and appreciation, gratitude into your life to embrace you and allow energy to flow abundantly from you to all sentient life. Everything has a divine purpose. There are no accidents. And our purpose is to awaken and support others to do so as well. And not through persuasion, but by demonstrating love in action. 
So your divine purpose is simply being you, being love. And you have the most powerful support. It's represented by Leo. You have enthusiastic encouragement symbolized by Leo. You can call on your guides and other beings of light and love to assist you. And remember, the sun and moon are trying to Jupiter, and that infuses you with gratitude, happiness, kindness, expansion, and it creates this effortless bliss. So you feel free to share your heart with others. Now, there's a one more transit that's really lovely that happens during this Leo new moon, and that is Venus is sextile to Mars. And this also magnifies feelings for love, feelings for affection, uh, passion, be creatively engaged, on fire. Remember that Jupiter is in Aries, which is Mars's sign. So there's a real strong urge to feel that passion, to, to feel the connection to the royal star of the lion that you are. The strength of the lion, the strength of Leo are within you. The lion leads, the lion loves, Leo encourages. This is all about creativity and shining your light. And so you're being invited to be more spontaneous, more playful, more generous, more courageous, more loving, and appreciative of who you are, who you truly are. So I wish you a beautiful Leo new moon. And remember, your inner star is revealed in your star code. And your star code is revealed through your birthday, your day of birth, your life purpose, your destiny, your astrology numbers, your astrology connections between the, the planets and the sun, your houses, and we go into all of it for you in a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. It is designed for you to discover who you are and who others are so you can have more compassion for them and appreciate them at soul level. It includes a free handout. It's a really fun 90-minute free masterclass that I created for you. So head on over to starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful Leo New Moon. And I'll see you again next week for our next Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. All right, Rama, tell us that phone number. Conference calls. Uh, 7206 
of conference together. So, Satnam for now. See you in a little while. Namaste, everyone. Just a real quick run over. It's so exciting. This is an A8. Uh, Tanya Gabrielle, positive and powerful, Venus squared Jupiter. As the sun enters Leo, sign of enthusiasm. Today, this day of major change, Lionsgate. She who was here before the gods were this segment. Um, sign of enthusiasm, creativity, courage, and big dreams. There is more good news to share. Venus and Jupiter will be in the exact square with both at 8 degrees early Monday, July 25th. Happy birthday, Randy. Yeah. What an amazing day. A square is always a call to action. Eight is a call to lead. In combination, the celestial geometry of Venus, Jupiter, and eight degrees instills you with plenty of extra courage. In particular, as it comes to claiming happy moments. Happy hearts. Happy moments. Mm. Happy day. Randy. Anytime Venus and Jupiter meet up, there is more room for fun. If you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, this transit reminds you to switch gears in an instant and start laughing at life. After all, <coughs> yeah, I mean, there's no more left to cry about. So this is worse as bad as it can get. After all, whether you choose to laugh or get overwhelmed is in your hands. It's in your hands. Laughter can magically shake off lethargy, emotional burdens, mental chatter, other people's turmoil we take on, mostly unconsciously. Laughter just clears it all away. Do I hear rain? Kitties. No, I hear kitties. (laughs) All right. When you feel no care in the world, no matter what the situation you are a living miracle act on any inner prompt to see the humor in everything since the sun is now in Leo and it's the perfect time for lights, camera, action (coughs) the twinkle in your eye is worth its weight in gold of course you are drawn to others who have that fun free frequency this is such a low, lovely time to deepen your appreciation of all that delights, all you savor, everything that refreshes your soul and fills you with deep thankfulness, including your own journey and the sacred celestial design you embody and bring to life every day. One of the best ways to discover how you are naturally designed to attract Fortunate outcomes. Get this one, Roman. Let's do this one next. Yeah, I got it. Okay. We're going to have a treat here. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, when you feel no care in the world, no matter what the situation, you are a living mineral, a miracle. 
The twinkle in your eye is worth its weight in gold. Of course you are drawn to others who have that fun. Free frequency. This is such a lovely time to deepen your appreciation of all that delights. Of you, all you savor, savor, everything that refreshes your soul and fills you with deep thankfulness. What a wonderful time to have a birthday, Brandy. Including your own journey and the sacred celestial design you embody and bring to life every day. One of the best ways to discover how you are naturally designed to attract fortunate outcomes is revealed in your Jupiter wealth code. Joy is the domain of Jupiter. So this powerful Venus-Jupiter square is a wonderful time to unlock your three Jupiter wealth zones to discover how you easily attract joy, well-being, and fulfillment. Just go and click on there and Tanya will give you the lowdown on that. Love and joyful blessings, Tanya Gabrielle. All right, so we're going to do this now. This is called Megaliths of Ancient Giants. And Freddie Silva is Regina Merida's guest. Who were the giants of ancient times? And what clues from their civilization were left behind? Freddie Silva returns to open minds to discuss his his decades-long research into the historical signs of giants across the highlands of Scotland, Sardinia, Armenia, and elsewhere. From archaeological evidence of Nurag towers and and megalithic circles to DNA connections, Silva explores evidence, myths, and legends. Tracing the implications of the Book of Enoch and knowledge of the Anunnaki, Silva reveals what we can learn about humanity's history and origins. And we know Freddie Silva is a filmmaker of the documentaries The Missing Gods and the Path to Paradise, available on Gaia. His most recent book is Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. So here we go. This is 46 minutes. Here we go. percentages of DNA from over 8,000 years ago. People who are 8 feet tall, there's an actual measurement of them in the back of the Temple of Karnak, which is very handy. Exactly on the winter solstice of 5,300 BC, the belt of Orion rises for the first time over that hollow for 33 minutes. Yeah. Perfect alignment. You were talking about one of these stones that served as an interdimensional portal. Which stone circle was that? And tell us about that. What about the comet stone? I like this stone. It's not... <laughs> eternal meeting place for giants? If you fail to pay attention to the rhythm of the stone circle and what it's there for, then you lose track of the rhythm of the land and then everything falls apart. Then you end up like us today. Nefertiti is not a name, it's a phrase. So history changes if that is accurate. You have the Alba kings and queens buried there, kings and queens from Britain, you have some of the French. Yes, that was shocking. The British prime minister, and then you have as well Macbeth. 
Yes. So what Why? is it with this place? Last time Freddie and I adventured together, it was in Sardinia. Now he's going to take us on the road to ancient Scotland. In putting the pieces together, he's learned that there was a migratory path between Scotland and Armenia, connected by sacred buildings, language, and players better known in Mesopotamia. So here we go. Okay, Freddie, so first of all, welcome back. And secondly, it was really that trip to Sardinia that started tripping all these wires for you as you started digging down into what was happening there and it was crossing, it was showing up in Armenia mm. and that got this whole adventure going for you. It's all your fault. It's all my I'm fault. Blaming you. I'm happy to take responsibility for that. So now let's talk about, let's start with what happened in Sardinia just briefly that started showing you ties to Armenia and between Armenia and ancient Britain. Oh, is the fact that they have these beautiful conical towers, which are identical to the conical towers that we find in Scotland, in the northern Scotland and the islands, and nobody knows how they got there. They're a complete anomaly in Scotland. And the other thing was that uh, um, Sardinia is also full of these horn mounds, very unusual things. And they look like they have a, a horn forecourt with a big stellar in front with a hole in the center where yeah. nobody's buried. Right. They have these connections with giants, but the giants were never buried there. But we have the same thing a thousand years later in Scotland as well. We didn't know where they came from. But the thing that really nagged at me was the fact that nobody in Sardinia could explain why the whole culture is called the Nuragic culture. I was just going to bring Nuragic that up comes from. with that man. Yeah. So you talk to local people, you talk to academics, the archaeologists. I said, we don't know. And I figured, well, it's got to come from somewhere. There's got to be an etymological print here somewhere. And um, one thing led to the other, I began to look at how the culture moved from Sardinia around Sicily to Malta, which also has its own very original culture, and they had similar things there. And I began to look at the words, I thought, well, they've got Nuranag, which means a sort of a, a, a holy person, which is also a white, shining holy person. But that wasn't satisfying enough. And eventually, when I went back to Armenia, and started picking around their dictionary and all their etymology, they actually had the word Nurag in their, in their language. So a Nurag is a holy person or a holy representative. And suddenly the towers began to make a lot of sense as places that were used by a priesthood that was set aside from the local population because the same story was happening in the Scottish islands as well. There was a group of people there that did not belong to the local population. They behaved differently, spoke a completely different language, and then they had the same descriptions of the people in Sardinia and also the Caucasian yes. people in Armenia. And when we, and I encourage anybody to go ahead and take a look at our Sardinia series. Okay, it's in the Gaia archives. You can see some of what Freddie's talking about. And when we went into some of these structures, and I remember the one up north, you might remember the name of it. Ruju. Ruju, right. When we went up north, when we were in there, I was just dialing in and meditating and watching what that was used for. And it very much supported what you were finding in your uh, research which is there were there was a group of people that came to find the best and brightest of the local population and begin educating and training them. And I saw them training them in these structures yeah. so that they could take these gifts, such as remote viewing and healing and such, forward into their own culture. And these guys go bye-bye somewhere else, maybe to Scotland. Exactly. Yeah, and there's a genetic fingerprint now mm -hmm. uh, that's been found out where uh, Sardinia ha has one of the highest uh, percentages of DNA uh, that comes from the pre-Neolithic period anywhere in the whole of Europe. So mm. the genetic structure of people is still there from over 8,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the genetic lines trail all the way back to the Armenian highlands, 
Ukraine and Siberia. So that was the big connection. But from there, the DNA lines also traced to Scotland. So 24% of the people in Scotland today carry those, that genetic fingerprint that goes all the way back to Armenia. So I didn't see that one coming. No, no, all. that's interesting. Fred, let's just backtrack a little bit. I mean, everyone talks about the Great Deluge. It's in all the world's traditions, right? Absolutely. Great deluge. Okay, so here we have a flood. It sounds better when you said it in French as well. Yes, great deluge. deluge. <laughs> rather, yes, rather than flood. Okay, it was a big flood. Okay, so, I, you know, I, I never fully understood. After that great flood, you know, after the younger, driest period and the earth, the earth was covered in water, what percentage of the population was thought to have been lost at that time? And where were the remnants of civilization most prominent at that time? Because it would have to be in higher, I would think, in more mountainous regions for one. And I know that gets into all kinds of the Basque region and Mount Picos and such. Well, that's a different story. Yes. But so let's, so tell, tell us about what was left after that. So we, when we're looking at things in terms of 8,000 years ago, we understand what you're talking about, remnants of DNA. It goes back to the time of uh, when we had some articles left by the Book of Enoch mm-hmm. uh, that were written by somebody else that was written by somebody else that was copied by somebody else. Right. And then you match that with the Indian text and also the Egyptian text, mm-hmm. surviving texts of that period. Mm-hmm. And they're all pretty adamant about this. Uh, the Egyptians even more so because they said most of the holy inhabitants of those islands where the gods used to live perished. Not right. all of them. Right. But there were groups of them that were lucky enough. And I'm, I'm quoting this directly now. They were lucky enough to be caught at sea. When right. the big waves, because right. to them they were just being enormous waves. Right. Once you get close Huge to the uh, land shelf, you get tsunami. And uh, they're saying that most of the holy inhabitants of those islands perished. Uh, the few that survived was set up the uh, basis for the civilized points of civilization that humans would pick up from them. Post, but they also said that at least you know ninety percent of all humanity perished as well. Yeah, and ninety percent of at least all the giant, you know, giants covered with red hair, the yes. Nephilim yes. or their offspring, which is the whole purpose behind the flood anyway, to wipe out that lot. But they right. survived in little pockets here and there, right. uh, specifically actually in Ireland. Um, they were still living there as the Formorians. Yes. And also around the Scottish Islands as the Formorians. So 5,000 years later, when the uh, Caucasians moved there with the Neolithic people, they found them still living there. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, well, we didn't get enough. We didn't get well, we, also, we obviously lost a lot of DNA. A huge amount. And so but it persists. But some of it persists. Not yeah. all of it. I'm assuming not all of it. But as you just said, there were those who were uh, fortunate enough to be at sea. Now, often these people were also seers and viewers. They yeah. knew. And they knew that trouble was coming and they knew to go. And they knew also where to resituate. Oh, they when knew exactly They knew where to go yeah. um, to receive life and knowledge once, you know, the waters receded. So in that sense, I would think that there were probably, there probably was some higher level of, uh, preserve and knowledge of and an agenda toward preserving as much of the DNA of humanity as possible. Right. Which is start getting into the inbreeding. Well, yeah. uh, and that was the one thing that was very predominant in the studies is that the fact that these people were much taller than ordinary humans. They're right. about eight feet tall. Right. Uh, in fact, there's, na- there's an actual measurement of them in the back of the Temple of Karnak in Egypt, uh, which is very handy. And um, they, were, they didn't uh, were able to breed with human women successfully at first. Right. And the people of uh, the Wichita of Oklahoma had the same story. They said that, yeah, the gods were here. They were much taller than mm-hmm. us. They tried to take wives, mm-hmm. but they died true in childbirth because they gave birth well, to infants, of course. Yeah. And also their DNA wasn't the same as ours. But over the over time, they seem to have succeeded because the Egyptians talk about a time when there was a group of half-human, half-divine people governing right. certain places around the earth. So they obviously succeeded. 
because they couldn't keep interbreeding because it was basically um, breaking down. No, the, you had to have hybrids that then bred with each other. That exactly. would make sense till the bodies were more normal human size so exactly. that it could successfully be done. Okay, just wanted to lay that. So now we're talking about at this time, some you're finding Armenian DNA in Scotland. Yeah. Okay. And we're finding similar structures, the Nurage. So let's go to Orkney, okay? And I wanted to talk about some of the stories surrounding some of these stones. Uh, this was about, what, 5,000 B.C. circle of... About 5,300 B.C. How do you say it? Stennis? Stennis? Stennis. Okay, circle of Stennis. These stones, monolithic stones, and we're, we'll see it here. <laughs> so tell us about the circle of Stennis. Oh, I, I love that place. Um, originally, there was about 11 monolithic uh, stones, and they're about 19 and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. which incredibly is a measurement that keeps popping up over the Scottish stones again and again and again. And um, they're um, standing on their center of gravity, and they're only about this thick, about six yeah, to eight they're, inches. Yeah, they're slender Incredible, slabs. incredible mm-hmm. things. They, could, they, they, they chopped on the ground to about this deep, so mm-hmm. they obviously knew what they were doing. And it felt like a sort of a council or a meeting place. That was the first impression I was left with. This wasn't a place where they were measuring things, like in most stone circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one up the road is very different. And it turns out into, up until the historical era, there were stories that the, um, there was a council meeting that used to take place there. And it was also a place where very distinguished people who wore white robes or white tunics that spoke a completely different language to mm-hmm. either Scandinavian or, as I say, Glaswegian, but not uh, <laughs> the Scottish, yeah. uh, in which case they couldn't understand them. Um, but they were very, very different. They came from somewhere else and actually referred to them as strangers from afar. So they mm-hmm. obviously knew these people did not belong in this part of Europe. So they're associated intimately with these places. Uh, the one up the road is Brogan, mm-hmm. uh, retains the memory of a word which is actually both Armenian and Egyptian, which I found extraordinary. And that's where the story begins to sort of really uh, uh, come along. And then there's a third site at the top that nobody ever goes to because the stones have all been pilfered for fence posts or uh, making buildings. Mm-hmm. And that's Bukan, the Ring of Bukan. Yeah. And it's the most important one of them all because it has a light box in there in the middle of a mound. What do you mean a light box? It's a long orthostatic box made of, um, in this case, very thin pieces of sandstone. Mm-hmm. And no one's ever buried in it. They only ever found two pieces of, uh, I think, animal bone and one piece of a uh, skull in the actual mound itself, but nothing inside. And just like in Sardinia, they have a hole at the front as though you're meant to use the box to align something in the horizon. Mm-hmm. So that's what it meant by a light box. There was a light of something in the horizon, like a star, a planet, or some constellation that at a certain given time mm-hmm. would memorialize the time when the place was built. So this is the art of archaeoastronomy, where when all things fail, where you have no folklore, where you have no breadcrumbs of etymology, uh, where the stories disappear, now you have a time when all across the earth, people, when they built their temples and their mounds... Then you can go to cosmic universe. wisdom. And then you go to the alignment of the things in the home Exactly. Mind, okay, now... Which we can now do. What? When was that built in a similar time, roughly 7,000 years ago, as Stennis? They seem to have come at the same time. Okay. So when you're standing at the top of the ridge, you've got all the three circles in alignment. Right. Not one of them is ever so slightly off. Mm-hmm. Two big circles, one smaller one. And you're thinking, it can't possibly be that simple. The mm-hmm. belt of Orion. It can't be that simple. And sure enough, if you stand in front of the orthostatic box and look at the horizon, or the Orkney landscape forms a beautiful bowl right in front of it. As though something is meant to come out of it or, or descend. And you just basically do your calculations. And exactly on the winter solstice of 5,300 BC, the belt of Orion rises for the first time over that hollow for 33 minutes. Yeah. Only 33 minutes. It's yeah. perfect alignment. 
So for once, the box is not aligned to the sun or the moon, right. as we'd expect. But at the same time, that alignment also mimics what's on the ground. Those three circles actually mimic the belt stars on the ground. Well, so as, would reverse. this be similar to the uh, pyramids at Giza? Well, next step was to figure out, let's get a really good diagram of the Giza pyramids. Yeah. So I've got a really good survey from Harvard, highly accurate. Again, you just reverse the, uh, the, the blueprint, do it as a mirror image, and the peak of every pyramid of the Giza Plateau hits the center of the three circles, right down to within like two feet. Yeah. So whoever was in Egypt also had the same know-how to be in yeah. Scotland. Okay, now let me ask you a couple practical questions, because people listening to this right now, our audience are very proactive and adventurous. And there's some of them probably are already looking up on Travelocity or whatever, tickets to Scotland. So first of all, can you, we're going to be talking about more of these sacred sites. Can people still get to them? Like in Sardinia, we could go oh, right yeah. up to them. There were no guards, there were no fences. Can you get to these That's places? That's the one beautiful thing about Scotland. I was running a, up until the latest mishaps, I was running a very successful trip up there. Right. Just six people. Yeah. Uh, I think the record's 12 minutes. It yeah. sold out in 12 minutes. Yeah. Uh, we also drink heavily, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, total access. That's what I love about the Scottish landscape. Even the more um, commercial Ooh, ones, lovely. like okay. Calanish, yeah, yeah, yeah. one that everybody thinks about. Uh, and it's an incredible place. Uh, I've sometimes been the only person there. So we can go up and put our hands on these stones. Them, you, you anyone who's nice. learned to play a little bit with psychometry and such, it's amazing what these stones oh, yes. will tell you. And getting them out of there yes. is the really hard part. Yeah. <laughs> Once you glue to the stone... You, it's you'll speaking disappear. to you. Yes. You're, you're gone. Okay, so that's a practical thing. I want to know because people are already thinking, I want to go to Scotland. And okay. there's no selfie hunters either. Oh, thank God. So <laughs> tired of that culture. Okay, there was another one that I thought was interesting because it it um, seems to hark to a practice that's still used today, and that was the Odin Stone, where couples would oh, reach yeah. through a hole in the stone, and it sounds to me like a Scottish hand fasting ceremony. It is. So uh, tell us about that. It's very That's, romantic. Oh, my God, I would oh, love to do that. I was reading that. the accounts from the 1700s when people used to go there from all across the island, the archipelago, essentially. It's a drowned coastline, Orkney. And um, they used to go there, and they would uh, honor each other. And then the uh, man would put the, his hand through the, through the uh, hole. Through the hole in the stone. And, uh, you know, they used to do the hand fasting, and yeah. he would get on his knees and say, my love, I will be with you forever. I'll I pro- love it. provide pigs and uh, hay and everything. Everything you need. And then they'd go up to the <laughs> next stone circle, and then she would repeat the vows, and then they would come back and do it a third time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then uh, there came a time at the uh, end of the 18th century, sorry, the 19th century when there was a local guy uh, who, uh, he was called a ferry looper. In other words, a guy who came from the big city in Scotland and came in pretending to be a big wig. And he decided to look at the stone and go, hey, I can make um, some nice building material out of that. Yeah. And that was the end of it. And the uh, yeah. reading the account of people being so depressed about this, oh, because yeah. it's a very old tradition. I mean, it got to the point where vows were actually exchanged as legal documents. So uh, anybody who broke the agreement broke the o- the Odin Oath, and they right. were held accountable by law. Right. By well, Scottish still law. considered something very serious today. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, your I word is your bond. Your word the is stone your bond. is the intermediary. Divorce you. isn't so easy. I wonder what percentage of people get divorced that do a Scottish hand fast. Well, certainly not them. <laughs> Someone would have to be killed, obviously. Okay. So this is another one here. Um, this also, you were talking about one of these stones that served as an interdimensional portal where cer- the people there would circumnambulate and they were able to see an island that wasn't normally 
seen to to human view, so they were seen into another dimension. Which stone circle was that? And tell us about that. It was a lone stone. Uh, I think it was on the island of Ramsey. There's a lot of islands. And um, it had an old uh, story because it precedes the Scandinavian settlements. And uh, sometimes you've got to read the stories metaphorically as well as practically. There's Mm -hmm. an underlying sort of story behind the other story. Mm -hmm. And the first idea is that when people went up to the stone and they were ritually prepared, they were able to see beyond the physical Mm -hmm. world to an island where the gods came from, uh, sunken land. And I've heard this before all around the world. And it's almost like they're telling you where these things came from. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of places, a lot of seamounts around the Hebrides and around the Orkney, which would have been just above sea level, Mm -hmm. uh, which would have been the extreme portions of uh, what Atlantis would have been in the central Atlantic. So there were outposts. The sea level was rising. People were going where the warm water was, which ironically was Scotland. Um, Everyone else was freezing, but they had it well. So they're trying to tell you that when you connect with this stone in the right way, in the right ritual way, you are able to perceive the story of the people that brought these stones and the technology to the islands. So I see this as a metaphor, but also... If you do it practically because of the um, metallic compound of the stone and where the stone is placed according to the electromagnetic lines of the mm-hmm. Earth's energy which cross at those mm-hmm. stones, if you're in a certain way compelled and if you ritually prepare, you can actually go into that disappearing island. You're literally going into the other world. To right, meditate. another dimension. So yes. it's practical, yes. mythological mm-hmm. at the same time. Yes. Okay. And the whole uh, story of the human remains and DNA that's been found pre-flood Let's talk about that a little bit. Pre-deluge, right? Deluge. There's evidence. Well, I don't know why I say that. I like the word. It okay? sounds really good. Okay. So there's some evidence that that area was peopled beforehand. Oh, they found some um, working tools. Um, so and to paint a picture where we are, we're not just in Scotland. We're now above Scotland. Mm-hmm. We're halfway to Iceland mm-hmm. uh, and also on the way to Shetland Islands as well. Mm-hmm. And they were doing a deep sea dredging operation. And uh, they brought up all, all kinds of things from the seabed, and among them were a bunch of uh, artifacts which were made by human hands, mm-hmm. which had been there since 11,000 BC. Mm-hmm. So before the younger mm-hmm. dryers mm-hmm. began, people were already calling this place home, which I found extraordinary. Uh, so it must have been a lot warmer uh, before the Ice Age kicked in, right. and also the landmasses, of course, were much bigger and supporting a sizable, uh, sizable um, amount of people. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what about the comet stone? I like this stone. <laughs> this nocturnal meeting place for giants? Yes. Uh, uh, where, first of all, where's that located? Is that, we're still in Orkney. Yes, we're okay. still in Orkney. So there, is, there are three main circles, and you're going up this isthmus. So it's like a peninsula because it's now a drowned coastline. And uh, you have the watchstone, which is one of a pair of two, which form the gateway to the next ridge. And then you have the comet stone, which is like a preparatory stone before you... You literally prepare yourself before you walk into the temple. You've got to leave your garbage at the door. So you can't take your problems in there. You can't uh, worry about bills and someone's still in your chariot and all of mm-hmm. that. Because that's going to degrade the energy of the temple. Mm-hmm. The temple is perfect. It's, it's the embodiment of an invisible force or a god, as they called it back then. So that's a preparation place. And I have no idea why they call it the Comet Stone. It's just mm-hmm. one of those names that gets dished out by mm-hmm. archaeologists. We don't know why. Um, but it's a preparatory place, and it's also part of a ceremonial route that goes to Brogar, to the Ring of Brogar, which still has most of its stones upright. And it's one of the, um, I think it's the third largest stone circle in the British Isles after Avery. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. And mm-hmm. it, it precedes Avery by at least 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty big. That's a... 
well, it's got a village and a pub. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah I've useful. been there. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, Broncos is an incredible place, still very intact. You've got a beautiful 360-degree view of the entire landscape, mm-hmm. and hardly anyone's done any work on there in oh. terms of archaeology. In fact, the uh, British Army used it for tank maneuvers oh, and perhaps in going into the ditch. I know, that's always so sad. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, so what's the story about the fiddler and the giants? And that the giants turned to stone when the fiddler uh, yes. stopped. And what is that a metaphor for? What was that sharing with humanity at the time? The Can you find these stories linking giants and the stone circles and the giants get turned to stone all the way up from Brittany, all the way up to Scotland? So let's, let's hear this story. one. I like the story of the fiddler. So, yeah, the uh, place apparently was put together by giants or extremely tall people. It depends on your point of view. And um, they said that the giants loved going there to dance. And uh, one night, the fiddler decided to uh, strike up a, a tune that was very lusty. So the giants knew that they had to go back into their original places. Otherwise, they you know, had to go back home. Otherwise, they get turned to stone. But uh, the fiddler just kept going and going and going. The giants were cutting the rug really well. And before you know it, sun is up. And they go, oh, Uh-oh. shouldn't be here. Boom. And they get turned to stone. And the idea behind the story is, A, it tells you that the people who built the place was much taller than the local population. Um, and then also the fact that if you lose track of the connection between the stone circle and its relationship to the landscape and the sky, mm-hmm. you begin to lose track of what nature's supposed to be doing around you. Mm-hmm. You lose that connection to the natural world. Mm-hmm. And then the whole tribe also falls apart because the tribe is dependent to some degree on what happens inside the stone circle, which is like a, a mediating environment between worlds, mm-hmm. uh, across between you and the other world. So that's what the place is trying to tell you, that if you um, fail to pay attention to the rhythm of the stone circle and what it's there for, then you lose track of the rhythm of the land and then everything falls apart. Then you end up like us today. Totally disconnected, (laughs) coming home from the bar at dawn, totally lost, right? Exactly. (laughs) So, okay, thank you for that. I I love that story. And the Tuatha Te Danan start coming into the story, and I am more familiar with the Tuatha Te Danan from uh, a trajectory of Atlantis, and then into Scotland, and ultimately leading into the Druids. Yeah. So you're coming at it slightly differently. So let's talk about what the Tuatha Dé Danann and who they were. Ooh, a 12,000-year story in 10 seconds. Yes. Um, no, I'll give you the, a minute. Um, you've got to go back all the way to, uh, to the Armenian highlands. Uh, you've got to look at the trajectory of the word and the, and the name. Uh, the people of Anu, or the Anunnaki, mm-hmm. as they were back then, they originated in the Armenian highlands, and in fact, the description of the Book of Enoch and the area, uh, the geographical area, seems to match exactly what's going on in Armenia. And uh, I got hold of uh, some people in Armenia who are high-end scholars who are more than happy to tell me the story because they're saying, nobody ever asked us the story. We have the story from when it all began. And Wait a minute, is this like the dad in my big fat Greek wedding? Everything is a Greek. Everything that comes from Greece. Not this time. Uh, sorry, Greeks. Uh, so there, I traced the people from there, and they had exactly the same mannerisms that we find in Ireland and Scotland. They had the same genetic makeup, the same you know, very tall, light skin. They're blonde, blue, white, or red haired and, and uh, green eyed. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, we're talking about the same people here. Not the uh, the, the concept of the two other Danan that came, uh, were part of the tribe of Dan, is a complete invention, okay? Complete uh, invention by the church. And then it got, it snowballed out of the way for a lot of political reasons, which will take us forever to, to discuss. Mm-hmm. But the people of Anu literally were honoring the goddess of the sky. It's, an, uh, it's a kind of an androgynous god. Sometimes 
he's masculine, sometimes he's feminine. Mm-hmm. So as these people move uh, after the flood and they begin to meander around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea into Ukraine and Siberia, after about 3,000 years, they take on the form of the Scythian culture, which is a big, big area that goes all the way to Mongolia and all mm-hmm. the way to Bulgaria and takes over northern Greece and part of Asia Minor. So they're a huge culture. Well, here they've changed their name. They become part of the Tuat de Danu. Yeah. Same people, yeah. but they're still part of the royal house of Scythia. And they gave the name to the famous river that goes through that area, which mm-hmm. is the Danube. Danube. Now, here's where it gets very complicated because they split at this point. One group goes south into the Mediterranean. They're mostly red-haired, the red-haired people, still light-skinned, very tall. They eventually make their way to Malta, where we find a lot of them buried, and then to Sardinia, where they took their language. And in fact, uh, that's where we find the root of the word Nuraje and also the word Sardinia. Mm-hmm. So it comes from Sardi, which is the goddess of the, uh, the, the goddess of the moon in the um, Armenian pantheon. So mm-hmm. she's the bride of the god of the sun. So Sardi literally is an Armenian word. Mm-hmm. So and then eventually they go around the Portugal to Iberia. They became the Basque people, which the Armenians are very open about. Right. Sixty-five uh, percent right. of Basque language. And it's a language. Armenian. Yeah, exactly. They very hard Wales. language. Yeah. They form Kumri, mm-hmm. which is Wales. Still exists in Armenia to this very day, and eventually they end up in Ireland as a Tuatha de Danan. The other group goes north through Denmark, mm-hmm. all the way to Scandinavia, all the way to Norway, and then Orkney and pincers around to meet them in Ireland as well. Yes. So yeah. we had this heart-shaped movement of people. Yeah, and you have this in your 7, book. Years? Yeah, you have this migration, these migration paths in your book. And I, I said Scotland earlier means say Ireland, Tuatha de Danan, Ireland and the Druids. And so, okay, so now these are the same people. We keep talking about the same same people. people. Yeah, and they have the same mannerisms, the same construction techniques, the same mythology. Everything tracks very well, and that's how it connects also to the people of Atlanta. I was just going to say that because the ones who were in the temples were known uh, during certain stages of Atlantean history to be very, very tall. Yeah, and Um, we're also described by the same um, sort of eponym, which was uh, the shining people. The shining people. Because, A, they were much more intellectual, so they gave them a certain glow. It's a mm-hmm. metaphor. Mm-hmm. But because they also had to put a certain oil on their skin because they were sensitive to the sunlight, mm-hmm. it gave the skin a certain glow. And that's where the uh, the, tech, the terminology of the shining people comes from. So it's, it fulfills two functions. It's a physical description and it's a metaphor of what they represent, the wisdom they represent. And the Anu were the original people of the serpent in Armenia. And in Atlantis, it was the Ophuser who mm-hmm. ended up in Portugal. Uh, ironically, exactly, and I mean exactly at the base of the mountain where I was born, which is very strange. And I wasn't blonde when I was mm-hmm. young. Not that I'm saying I'm one of them, but any other group. Well, you're ends tall up, enough. Yes. And uh, when you sweat, you shine. <laughs> makeup. Um, and the other group end up in the Yucatan, uh-huh. the people of the serpent, mm-hmm. uh, the Kanul, so that they start that dynasty there. That's what connects the, all these people all together. So all they didn't die out. Off- yeah. offshoots from Atlantean culture. All and these the are thing. also known and in Hermetic and other terms as the followers of Horus. The Akushem Suhor, the shining ones follows of Horus. And that's where there's an uh, Armenian connection there because at one point the um, two cultures were intermarrying to continue that divine bloodline. Uh, and by the time you get to 1300 BC we have a very famous woman uh, who everybody knows, Nefertiti, mm-hmm. who people, uh, even uh, George Patriot, the archaeologist, he said, she doesn't look Egyptian, does she? I mean, look at the features. She looks very, very Caucasian. They're on the hunt for she her right came. now. Oh, goody. No, this is the big deal in archaeology right now. I've been reading about it in Egyptology, is they're on the hunt for her, and a whole different story is coming about, about the nature of her being that 
and you're going to validate this because yes. they're saying she was co-regent, co-ruler, co-pharaoh. She was not just a pretty face they carved, you know, that sat Absolutely. alongside her husband, Akhenaten, yeah. that she actually was co-ruling and some say even more than that. So what is it? You found a term that indicates that. So here's a story. If you look at the, there was a letter that Nefertiti wrote to her father once she got married to Akhenaten and he asked his father, uh, sorry, her father, to bring down the dowry because, you know, the, the thing has been done. The dowry has to come down. And her father rules the kingdom to the north. Now, at the time, the only kingdom that was connected to the north border of Egypt was actually Armenia. So there's a connection. But there's a, it goes more into this because I found out. Uh, I actually had to learn Armenian to write this book. It's uh, one of those things you have to do as a researcher. It was fascinating because Nefertiti is not a name. It turns out it's a phrase. So Nefertiti, literally in Armenian, means she who is the backbone of the pharaoh. Yeah, interesting. Back because this is what's just starting to come out even on, even in uh, kind of, uh, I think it was National Geographic, I read the last story. So mainstream stuff. Yeah. That kind of blows the whole story of half-brothers. And Anyway, we won't go there. Exactly. Uh, so ch- history changes if if that is accurate. So now if you're talking about... Um, followers of Horus, and we just mentioned Nefertiti Akhenaten, we're talking about these various sacred sites, you can't ignore the sun, the central theme of the sun as being a prime influence in deity. Okay, for the shining ones. And so you're saying in your book, almost all these sacred sites are focused on the rising sun, not the setting sun. There are only a few exceptions to that. And so why, why that? Well, it was weird because, for example, one of the main mounds on Orkney, which is Maze Howe, uh, it follows the trajectory of the setting sun. I thought, well, that's unusual mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people in the old world don't usually celebrate the setting of things because you want the energy to be up. You see, the mid-heaven or the rising when things are on there and the ascendant. Uh, it's like no one celebrates an empty glass of scotch. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Right. So I figured there's only two cultures I know that keep celebrating the, the center of celestial objects, and specifically Orion, which all of these sites are associated with. And one was the, the Egyptian culture, and the other was the Armenian culture. And that's what began to sort of open up the whole storyline of these, uh, a, a culture that eventually came from Armenia that settled in the islands of Scotland and completely avoided the rest of Britain. It's like there was something that was happening in Britain, maybe it was still full of ice or something about the living conditions weren't quite right, but they seemed to circumnavigate around Britain, started at the very top, and they slowly worked their way south mm-hmm. along the Hebrides, mm-hmm. which is also an Armenian name, by the way. And he eventually ended up in Ireland to hang out with the two other Didanon. Two other Didanon, yes. Okay. Oh, goodness. We've chatted quite a bit. And, of course, I haven't even done a third of the script. So um, <laughs> let's go to Kalanish, the Kalanish people. Same thing. Same story. Kalanish people. Same tall people, white tunics, you know, red hair, etc. So let's talk about a counterpart in Armenia. You said built in uh, almost 23,000 B.C. Let's talk about that. It, well, there's, um, I didn't write the name of the... Oh, Karahuj. Yes, yes. Yes. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Yeah. I don't offend anybody in Armenia. Um, Karahuj, there's a, a man I have to give credit to, Paris Haruni, the late Paris Haruni. He's got patents as long as my leg. Uh, he's a genius. Patents. Patents. As we say, just so people know yeah. what you're talking about. Patents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> French-American. Um, and uh, he took it upon himself to research one of the most famous sites in Armenia, which did quite a lot. And one of them is called Karahunj, which literally means the, the sounding stones. So Kara, uh, a stone, Hunj is sound. It's also the origin of the word henge. So when you talk about stone henge, that's also an Armenian phrase. 
And uh, he, uh, and when you look at it from the air, and I thought I was the first person to notice this until I began to research Paris's work, and uh, I, I was amazed to find that from the air, I was looking at the original sister of Kalanish that mm-hmm. was built much earlier. Mm-hmm. So I've pegged Kalanish around uh, about 3900 BC, 4000 BC uh, with the alignments. But Karahuj is something very different. And yeah, you said 23,000. 23,826 yes, uh, Tuesday, yes. I think it yeah. was. <laughs> uh, and uh, he was basically using the holes of which many, uh, which are found in many of the monoliths of Karahuj to literally align specific constellations and specific bright stars, nine of them specifically, and uh, at least five of them uh, would turns out to be in Orion as well. So these people are connected to the same constellation, undoubtedly. Okay. But it was the fact it was the same round shape with the uh, cruciform rose that lead into the center. There's a mound in the center, just like a Kalanish. And then uh, Paris also said that, uh, yeah, they were definitely here because the alignments match around about 25,000 B.C., but there's a recalibration around 5000 BC, which is just about the time when the, start, the stone circles started appearing in the Hebrides in, in Britain as well. So there is a time coordination here as well. So these cultures, all of this is oriented toward Orion, as you just said. Now, when we hear about Orion in a lot of different um, shows that are featured here and elsewhere, we automatically think reptilians. And we think what's going on with this orient- these shining ones having this orientation toward what are perceived as reptilians. You have a different take on this. Please share. Oh, it, it just goes back to what they were, uh, how they're describing the origin of the word reptilian. It's, it really is to do with a misperception of what was going on. So when you go back to the original Book of Enoch and you talk about the people at the Garden of Eden uh, and you have the woman Tava'et, who is married to Enki, his wife, uh, she's the gardener. She takes care of the garden and they address her as a serpent woman. And that's where it, the story went this way. They must have been reptilians because she was, she was a serpent woman. It just shows a lack of understanding of why these people were called the serpent people. Anyone at the time who understood the laws of nature and how to also move them within the restrictions of the law itself. Uh, we're talking about the laws which are electromagnetic. So these are the telluric currents that mm-hmm. flow around the earth like serpents. You are defined as a person of the serpent. So she was one of the people of the serpent, which was the nickname of the Anunnaki. But it was also the same nickname of the people of the same ilk in Central America, in in Polynesia, uh, in Central Europe, and so forth. So it was a badge of office. So, and they were intimately associated with Orion as a place of origin a long, long time ago. And I hear this from people all around the world. And I, I, I always go back to the source, which is the indigenous people. What do they know? You know, not a white guy from Europe like me. I want to know what the locals say about this. Well, and, and also in some cave arts and such, you do see reptilian sort of features on some of, even in some of the Sumerian art. So what is the nature of these people, regardless of what their anatomy may look like? And I think that What do you think they were once more? Well, they were very, um, it, humans were very comfortable with them. If they weren't comfortable with them, they would have said something like, we're afraid of them. We don't want to hang out with these people. They look weird compared to, uh, humans. So you but think they were, they were more human? They were very comfortable with mm-hmm. them, which tells me they were like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very, they seem to be very Nordic type mm-hmm. because when you go to Polynesia and they talk about, uh, you know, uh, light skinned people who are very tall with blonde hair, blue eyes. And, uh, that's why they mistook Captain Cook. As a, as a returning god, when he came to Hawaii, they welcomed him uh, with open arms. They thought they was one of the original gods that settled in Hawaii. So that tells me that these people were humanoid. They were just, in fact, there was one great phrase, and I can't remember which culture told me this. They said, they're human-like, but not quite human. So they were definitely much taller than we were. And they had this, again, this problem with their skin being very, very light that needed to be, have constant sort Sun, of sunblock. Sunblock, on, sunblock on them. 
Um, so it tells me that this was definitely a humanoid culture. Mm. Now, were there experiments that were done mixing things with reptiles and donkeys and humans? I, there is a, a sort of a, a hint in the Book of Enoch that there was a small group of troublemakers, uh, what they called the bastard watchers. Okay, not all of them, because mm. the watchers were the intermediaries. They were the messengers between the people of Anu and the human beings. Mm. Their charge was just to help people, give the humans a little bit of hint of knowledge, and then come back. Don't mix it with them. They need to have their own self-determination. And for a reason we don't know yet, there's a small group of them that defy the orders, and then they started doing some very stupid things with experimentation with hybrids. I think that's where the whole concept of the whole reptilian thing comes from. There are some really stupid experiments. And if you read the original book of Enoch, it's highly suggestive there that there were silly experiments that are going on that were taught to hunter-gatherers. Yes. Uh, including warfare, how to make uh, metallurgy and create swords and other things to kill each other with. Mm -hmm. That's where the whole story gets completely AWOL. And that's where the Lords of Anu and the Watchers get together and say, well, we need to help the humans because they're not going to survive. Right. Because the, the offspring mm -hmm. of these renegade Watchers, they're given birth to truly enormous people. Now, those are the giants. Not just right. they're at all. Now they're giant pets right, right. covered with red hair. And uh, they're running a mark, they're breeding like crazy. And unless we instigate a flood, mm -hmm. we have to wipe everything from scratch. Humans are not going to have a chance. Mm -hmm. And there's this wonderful, agonizing moment in the book of Enoch. All you have to do is read it, it's right there, uh, where they're agonizing about the fact they're going to have to kill everybody, including their own. They, even the gods drowned during this thing. And they engineer this thing, and then they said, right, the, the survivors of the Anu and the Watchers will be responsible for going in groups of seven around the world, wherever they happen to be, and when they alight on the shores of the continents, they'll restart civilization. Yes. They'll teach, teach human hunter-gatherers yes. how to do what we do. Right. And incredibly, right. in the half thousand BC, humans magically discovered right. animal husbandry right. and how to grow crops and so right. forth. So there is a pattern building here. And it was seeded all around. And it was seeded all around yes. the world, exactly. Thank you, thank you for sharing yeah. that, Freddie. I want, we don't have a lot I'm of time left. I'm rehabilitating the uh, Anunnaki and the Watchers. Okay, <laughs> thank you. The story is much grayer than we uh, imagine. Yeah. <laughs> grayer, no pun intended. No pun intended. Okay. So, Iona, <laughs> uh, let's go now to, because we've been mostly, you know, in Orkney, mm -hmm. but uh, let's go to Iona and I want to know because personally, because I'm going to Iona, oh. and so I want to check it out because I was very curious about some things there. And you talk about there's an abbey and then a smaller building next to the abbey but 50 50 now what's up with this 50 kings from britain were are buried in this abbey yeah so the island's what one uh, one On by three no, it's like three, but it's, I think it's, it's like tiny, four tiny by two. Rock. It's very yeah. small. So you have the Alba kings and queens buried there, kings and queens from Britain. You have some of the French. Yes, there. that was shocking. A British prime minister, yeah. who was actually a nice guy, yeah. uh, didn't last very long, unfortunately, died of natural causes. And then you have as well Macbeth. Yes. So what Why? is it with this place? Oh, and I can't I wait to know. So um, uh, Iona comes from an Armenian phrase. It's Hayona, and it means the circle of the people of Armenia. Ah. That's what it means. But because the people of Armenia, uh, high is also a contraction of the uh, word Orion. The people of Armenia identify themselves as being of Orion, mm -hmm. not physically, but uh, intimately connected with the constellation in some way I haven't quite understood. So Iona literally is a, a meeting place, a gathering place of distinguished people from Armenia. And there was a stone circle of 360 stones where the current abbey used to sit. Uh, right until the Middle Ages when the stones were discarded or recarved into the crosses that we see today. 
But the most important part is the little building next to it. And people kind of poke their head in there and they go, oh, nothing much in here. Take a picture, off they go. The most important building. Because it comes with a very long story of when um, uh, uh, a wonderful gentleman that re- uh, comes to the island and begins to kick out the druids and the women off the island. Lovely man. And uh, But his sidekick, Odran, he looked at the stories about this uh, building and he heard that there was a famous thing where the walls came down as quickly as they went up as though by evil intent and only when the person had themselves buried alive will the stones stay put. Now, I read the metaphor in this and I go, I know exactly what they're describing here. Well, he has himself buried alive. I'll give him credit for this. And three days later, they dug him up and he wakes up and he says, all that's been said about hell is yeah, a complete this is joke. Interesting. Yeah. So he actually experienced going into the other world and coming back three days later because that was the place of initiation for a group of monks called the Chaldee which mysteriously appear on Iona three years after the Essenes in Palestine vanished and went AWOL. Hmm. And they behaved like the Essenes. They mm-hmm. had the same mannerisms, same dress code in white tunics, just like the builders of the stone circles of Orkney. And they also are the same people who are associated with the Druids who actually were the people who were looking after the islands and taking care of it from a previous group of people who were dressing in white robes. That's why the original name of Iona was Inish Druidic. The mm-hmm. island of the magicians and the seers. That's where the Druids used to hang out. So it, it must have some Shaloric importance as well. Is it? Very much okay. so. Okay. So what's going on there? So we know what, what to look for or what to feel for. Yeah. So Odrin's chapel is where mm-hmm. the things cross. Mm-hmm. But even so, it's not the, the most important part. The most important part of the island is a place called the Hill of, of Angels or Shiamor, the Hill of the Fairy People. And of course, it goes back to the, the idea that these, uh, the Tuadidanan, mm-hmm. the Tuadidanu, and the Yanunaki were fair skins. They were called the fair folk because they were yes. fair. They were, uh, debonair, mm-hmm. uh, elegant and tall and slim, and they had this light skin, but elfin. And very elfin. elfin. Mm-hmm. So when the, uh, Catholic Church shows up in Ireland and finds the Tuadidanan there, they figured, ah, this is not good because they're still loved. We want them to love us. The people should love us. As the intermediaries between the, the people and God. Yeah. And back then, the Irish people were saying, no, no, we like the gods. They're great people. And they call them the fair people or mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the fair folk. Mm-hmm. Well, the church, in order to miniaturize the importance of the Tuatadananan, referred to them as fairy folk who are miniature people with little wings and they inhabit the little mounds. Well, that was great in terms of politics because you basically brought down the stature of a very important group of people in the divine bloodline, right. which is the whole purpose. You miniaturize them. You miniaturize them. Yeah. At the same time, though, you've just given away what the mounds were for, because those are the places where the fairy world does exist. Yes. Ask any Irish person. Yes. Uh, or any person around the world who's yeah. indigenous. And that's also what the Tuatadanan were working with. They were working with an occult sort of across the, the, into the other world kingdom. with the elemental mm-hmm. kingdom in mm-hmm. order to do what they did best, which was to live in two worlds at the same time. Yes. So there's a shamanic process. Yes. So in order to cover up the tracks, you just let the cat out of the bag. So the fairy folk are absolutely real. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, this has been a romp. Why don't you give us one, any kind of final thoughts on this connection you'd like before we sign off? I mean, the big story about Scotland is the fact that, A, the stone circles of Orkney and the Hebrides precede Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a huge surprise. Mm-hmm. Two, the names of the sites themselves have either an Armenian or an Egyptian origin, and they describe exactly what the place actually does. Mm-hmm. That was mind-blowing. And then the fact that you, you trace these cultures that seem to have come from Sardinia and Armenia by sheer force of climatic change, by the mm-hmm. way, because we're talking around 6,000 BC, conditions in Europe were awful, caused ironically by what was happening 
in North America, the collapse of the Laurentide ice shelf mm -hmm. had huge climatic repercussions for Neolithic people in Europe. And they were the ones by force ended up creating this incredible culture at the mm -hmm. very end of the world. Because so, you wonder, why would they go there? This is really quite a hideous place in terms of weather. What would drive people to go there? That was why. It was the weather. Okay. Sometimes it comes down to something that simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Mostly. Most of the time. Freddie, thank you again for all your research. My pleasure. Thank you for starting this in Sardinia, putting these pieces together. And I encourage anyone that hasn't seen our Sardinia romp to take a look at those three parts. Quite fascinating. And there, we didn't get to all of, the, all of this, but there are other structures that were very similar as well that okay. you discovered in Scotland. So thank you. Until next time. I'm going to check some of it out myself. <laughs> Again, Freddie's new book is titled Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. You can pick it up at major booksellers. Or better yet, you can visit Freddie's website, invisibletemple.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Oh, my goodness. We are getting a lot of treats this, this, this day. Okay. Um... Waves of Karma from Atlantis. Mm. How many of us are working off karma from past lives in Atlantis? Hypnotist and past life regressionist Sarah Brexman, Breskman, excuse me, Cosme, shares videos of her clients' sessions that expose connected stories and past life trauma between individuals who have never known each other. Explore a fascinating history emerging from the numerous hypnotherapy sessions, including an E.T. who crash-landed on Earth and started a new civilization in Atlantis. Details of Lemuria's destruction, Atlantean tech in the Bermuda Triangle, and a timely message for humanity. Sarah Breskman, Cosme is the author of the book A Hypnotist's Journey to the Secrets of the Sphinx. Watch her previous Gaia interviews Regression to Atlantis and Atlantean Secrets of the Sphinx. So again, George Nury is interviewing our sister Sarah Brexman Cosme and this is 44 minutes and let's do it. Here we go. something to this. A lot of people come to me if they have an illness or they just want to find out something about themselves. The whole aim of the session is to regress the client and bring them to the deepest level of trance and then access their higher consciousness. I'm told that I came from Atlantis as well. Most of the people walking the planet today are actually back again from these lifetimes in Lemuria and Atlantis. And we're really back again now so we can go through the same thing again and we can do it differently and finally release this trauma. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norrie, and we've got an incredible program for you. Sarah Breskman Cosme with us, a best-selling author, a master hypnotist, and her mission is to reveal hidden 
or undiscovered knowledge vital to the enlightenment of humanity, that's all of us. Sarah, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you so much for having me. How did you get involved in being a hypnotist? Well, I just started out with a lot of problems, so I wanted to fix myself, basically. Oh, really? <laughs> so you ended up going to one? I did, and I went through, like, a. at first I wanted to be a psychologist when I wanted to fix myself. And then through the years, I discovered hypnosis. And I realized that there was something to this and that people could make changes so much easier with hypnosis. Did you fix yourself? I did. Before I did hypnosis and before I got into any of this stuff, I was overweight. I had all kinds of fears and you phobias. You were overweight? Mm-hmm. I had all kinds of wow. issues. So basically, I got into this to fix myself. Were you a smoker, too, by any chance? No, I just had all kinds of problems. it works for that, too, doesn't it? It does. But essentially, I fixed myself not just through hypnosis, but understanding that my thoughts were creating my reality. And once I understood that, I could change my life. Now, how did the past life regression come into this? So I wanted to become a psychologist. That's what I wanted to do. But throughout my college training, I felt as if there was something missing when I went into the field and I tried to use what I had learned. Sure. I felt almost as if every single thing I had learned was a lie because none of the people ever seemed to get better. I was, um, you know, working as an intern at a halfway house for mentally ill people. And my job was to give them medication and counsel them. And there were no success stories. In fact, some people even got worse. Really? And I felt as if the people were even being tested upon by the pharmaceutical industry. So anyway, long story short, I got into hypnosis. And I at first started with past life regression, lose weight, and quit smoking. But right away, I could tell that past life regression worked. And so I delved deeper into that method. I first studied with Dr. Brian Weiss. And then He's I found the best. he is, and he really is that sweet. He's such a great teacher. And then after having studied with him, I found Dolores Cannon. She was one of the best. I miss her. Yeah, she's fantastic. And I worked my way up from a level one to a level three. And then as a level three practitioner, I traveled around the world with her daughter, Julia Cannon, sure. assisting her in the Absolutely. classes and teaching all over the world. Julia still puts on events after Dolores passed on a couple of years ago, and she keeps the memory of her mother out there for the public. She does. She does a very good job of that. Let's talk about your clients. I know we can't get into specifics about who they are, but let's use first names. Tell me about Jen. So... I needed a subject on the spot because I needed somebody I could regress to take this video submission to my level three class, which was going to be in Orlando. And I live in Florida, so I needed somebody right away. And I wanted to get somebody that wasn't a paying client, but somebody that would volunteer. And for some reason, I asked my friend, Jen, and I knew that she was not into any of this spiritual stuff because I had known her for 10 years and every day after school, we sat at the playground and we talked. Sometimes I would try to bring up some spiritual stuff and right. she was not into that. So when I asked her, I kind of regretted it right when I asked her because I thought, why did I just ask what her? What did I say? Yeah, huh? this is past life regression. What is she going to say? She's going to think I'm crazy. And I said, Jen, would you be my subject? I need a subject. It's really interesting. You know, you can find out about your past lives. You can even find out who you really are, your true purpose in this life. 
And if you have any physical issues, you can even heal your body. And she looked at me kind of funny and I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to think I'm crazy. Here I am talking about past lives and doing this with her. And she looked at me and she said, that's what you do. I have been looking for something like this because, Hmm. yeah, because she hadn't told anybody, but she had this brain condition called pseudotumor cerebri. What is that? It's this fluid that was wrecking havoc in her brain, and it was causing all kinds of swelling. She was working really closely with this team of specialists. Is that that, dangerous? Sounds like Yes. They told her that there was a huge risk of a stroke, and that if she wasn't going to stay on this really heavy-duty medication, that she didn't really have a chance at all. She was given about 20 years, and at, at the time, Jen was only 32, and so she was devastated. She said, Sarah, I will definitely be your subject. I've been so depressed. I haven't told anybody about this. And I'm on all these medications. And, of course, you videotape all your sessions, and she was one of your first. Let's see. It was a tidal wave. It was an atomic-type device that they set off in strategic places, in rifts, under the ocean. They do have devices that operated like submarines. Mm Mm-hmm. And they placed them, acting as they were our friends. And then the wave came. Tell me about this wave. At first, I was with many others on the beach, Mm -hmm. looking at where the water had gone. We couldn't understand where the water was pulling out from. And fish were flopping. And everyone was just standing around looking, wondering. And then I saw it out of the corner of my eye. I saw the wave. And it was massive. It was the size of... It was just... You've never seen anything so big in your life. Mm -hmm. And there was a rock cliff in front of me. And I begin to climb as fast as I can climb while everyone just stands there frozen. What about your daughter? She's not on the beach. She's back at the palace. Mm -hmm. What happens next? I make it to the top. I'm still running and running and running. Mm They want to keep me alive. They want me to see their power and how they could destroy everything mm-hmm. as they told me they would if I didn't do what they wanted. But I would not believe them. I believed our numbers were greater and we would win. I had no idea. My child was swept into something and the back of her head was impaled onto a something sharp and that's how I found her face down in the water with something lodged into the base of her skull. So you found her. When did you find her? That was the first place I ran. I knew where she was. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I was able to outrun it and nobody else. I feel like they almost put me in like a 
a bubble or something, something that made me witness it, mm-hmm. but not really even get my feet wet. Sarah, that's an actual session. That's not a reenactment. That's it? our very first session. And after this session, Jen went back to her team of specialists at the University of Miami and her tumor had completely gone away. She was completely healed after that session. Were you in shock? Well, yeah, <laughs> I was in shock. I mean, you know what you're doing, but mm-hmm. I mean, to really see and hear that these things work, it's got to be amazing. What we found out was this information that she had buried within her subconscious was so powerful that it could help people heal. And there have been people that have actually healed just from hearing this information. And you've done a great job doing that. You've got a similar client after Jen that really went through the same thing. Mm-hmm. You would call a tsunami. Mm-hmm. Right. And the water came in and it just pulled everything out. And there was really no warning. Mm-hmm. I was with my baby, but not my husband. But not your husband. What happened to your husband? I saw him. He drowned. Mm-hmm. I saw him pass me. Did you see that before you passed? I did. I did. I, I was struggling to, struggling to get my head above the water, but I looked and I saw him floating past me. Mm-hmm. And everybody and everything. Everything. There was so much water I knew that there was, I just had to relax and go with it. So you just had to allow yourself to just go with it? Yes. From your perspective now, after having left that body, can you see what happened to your island? It's just gone. It's just completely covered, enveloped it, and it's just gone. Sunken. It just sunk. Mm, I see. Where was it? Where was it originally? Yeah. Oh, I, looking at a map now, I would say in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that client. That client was just another client, just like Jen, who also had no previous knowledge of Atlantis or Lemuria. In fact, when I was uncovering all this stuff with Jen, neither one of us knew anything about Atlantis and Lemuria. We were both just as surprised as really? one another. Should be listening to Coast to Coast Radio. <laughs> Well, you know, to be honest, I had heard such different stories about these places. I had heard stories about Atlantis that sounded like Atlantis was this beautiful society where people were so advanced spiritually. Well, that could be the case, too. It could be. It seems like Atlantis lasted for thousands of years, but I was just supposed to report on the very end time. This interesting phenomenon started happening in my office as I was uncovering these memories with Jen so many people started coming to my office recounting deep under hypnosis. Similar things. These huh? same things. And I thought it was just a coincidence. So I would ask my other friends who also do Dolores Cannon's method of hypnosis if this was the case for them. And it was an over-resounding no. This is not a coincidence. And then I realized I was supposed to uncover this information and share it with the world. How did this heal Jen specifically? So the body is just a messenger That's really what, it's too bad we don't all understand this, but when we get an issue like an illness or a disease or any kind of pain, it's just the body's way of sending us a message. And it's very easy when you're going under hypnosis to understand what this message is. 
And once the message is heard, it can instantly be released and healed. This is something that I hope in the future we all understand. How long does it take, Sarah, to put somebody under via hypnosis? For Dolores Cannon's method, it takes about five hours. Five it's a hours? a very long session. That's intense. It is quite intense, but it's so thorough. You can find out anything about yourself, and most people use this to heal themselves. How long does it take to get them into the hypnotic stage? It's very, very easy. Not very long at all. Probably maybe 30 minutes tops. 30 minutes, and then mm-hmm. once they're in that mode, you go for five hours with them? Well, the whole process takes about five hours. In the beginning, in a QHHT session, you talk to the client for about two, two and a half hours. Then the actual hypnosis part takes about two hours. Do you notice a difference in the two people, personality-wise? Oh, definitely. And you know what's really fascinating is QHHT, Dolores Cannon's method, is different. What does that stand for? So it's quantum healing hypnosis technique. Dolores Cannon founded it after four to five years of research. Okay. But it's different than a regular past life regression because a regular past life regression is just regressing the client under hypnosis to recall a different lifetime. But QHHT, Dolores Cannon's method, is different in that the aim, the whole aim of the session is to regress the client and bring them to the deepest level of trance and then access their all-knowing, all-loving aspect of themselves, the higher consciousness. And in that way, you're actually communicating with universal knowledge, universal consciousness. She developed this technique, didn't she? She did. And she wrote 17 books after she developed it. And that's the method I used to write my books as well. I used to remember interviewing her on our radio shows, and she was just so calm and collected and really knew her stuff, didn't she? She really did. She's just such an amazing person. How did you get involved with her? Well, like I said, I was doing Dr. Brian Weiss's method first, and I felt like... But who found Dolores? One, she found you or you found her? No, I wanted to find something that I felt like was missing. I felt like there was something missing in my life. So I talked to this psychic, and she said, oh, my gosh, this is the easiest reading I've ever done. You're supposed to do Dolores Cannon's method. I had never heard of her. Aha. Uh-huh. And the psychic said, Bingo. yeah, this is the easiest reading you're going to work your way up and you're going to do really well in that method. You're even going to write books and you're going to speak about your information all over the world. And I thought, oh man, this psychic is terrible. She must have me confused with somebody else. But actually she was pretty good. Now, when Jen told you she was a commander on an ET craft, what did you think? There's something wrong here or or what? Oh my gosh. So when level with us here, (laughs) So after our very first session that you just saw, it was so surprising to the both of us and her higher consciousness that I access as part of a QHHT session, I asked them why they showed us this lifetime and they said, well, this is our mission to uncover this information that has been buried for thousands and thousands of years, to uncover it all from the very beginning and to share it with the world because the world needs it now. So, of course, Jen and I wanted to work together again and uncover this information. So I told her higher self or higher consciousness, let's start from the beginning, the very beginning of the story that you want to share with us. And here it comes. And I thought it was going to be the beginning of her lifetime in Lemuria where she was a child. I figured we're going to start. Wrong. Definitely wrong. We didn't go to that lifetime at all. Instead, The second session started out where Jen's remembering coming to Earth as an extraterrestrial 
crash landing on Earth for the very first time. Now, this is somebody, just so you know, who did not believe in extraterrestrials. She had a much different appreciation for them after this session. And when do you think this crash occurred, if you were to date it? So it's so fascinating because it seems as if this is, we have been told so many different things about our history, our origins. It seems as if there were many extraterrestrial crashes, all for the same purpose of helping to seed this earth. And like so they crashed on purpose? They crashed on purpose, but they didn't know it at, at the time. They like were intentional. Roswell, that kind of situation. They were intentional crashes from memories that my clients share when they're deep under hypnosis. They remember that what caused the crash were their breathing mechanisms, the breathing mechanisms on their crafts for failing. All clients expressed the same issue, and so they were forced to crash. They found out later after they had left their life that it was an intentional crash, and the reason was it was a one-way mission. They didn't know it at the time. On one of our Gaia programs, Matthias Stefano talked about Atlantis and past life experiences. His show is called Initiation. The Atlantean people, what we used to call Hef or Hefian, they were the sons of the first mixed between those people coming from the stars and those people from Earth. Humans and the Aesir that you may know, like Anunnaki, were the first ones to be engaged and to make a kind of civilization. So the first humans created as we know them today were sons and daughters of them in the Middle East. All the creation of Atlantis was around 16,000 BC in between four to 5,000 years before Atlantis began as a civilization. The Aesir were destined to see if their DNA from the stars was able to be readapted in in this planet. Sarah, why do you think Atlantis was so advanced? Oh, so glad you asked me that question. Um, Well, the founder of Atlantis was an extraterrestrial who crash-landed his ship in the Utah area in a quarry. In Utah? Mm Mm-hmm, in a quarry. You could probably still find it because of the technology that they use. And he took whatever technology he could salvage from his ship. It wasn't that much, and it wasn't enough for him to contact his home planet. But he took this technology and he went through one of the ancient transport devices, the stone circles that you see at Stonehenge or what they used to use those for. So he took his technology and he went through this ancient transport devices and went to where you would call Atlantis now. And when he arrived there, he luckily found some leftover technology from an earlier grouping of colonists. And so that's why Atlantis is so advanced. Because it was extraterrestrial technology. Was it mixed with ETs and humans? When the founder arrived, he took those humans that had been free for thousands and thousands of years and had a beautiful society, and he created human hybrid slaves with them. And he he used them to create Atlantis. He made Atlantis in the image of what he had on his home planet because he couldn't get back home. He couldn't contact his home planet and he wanted to get back what he had on his home planet. I have so many clients yeah. regress that go back to these other and they planets. Go right back to that point. Or that point, yes. And so some of my clients that go back to these other planets or a parallel life that they experience, 
they see that it's so advanced and it looks like Atlantis. So there was a reason why Atlantis looked the way it did. I had heard mermaids may have originated from Atlantis too. Is that true? Definitely. There were so many mermaids on near Atlantis during this time before the last founder arrived on Atlantis. The mer people and the humans used to do trades and it was a beautiful society on Atlantis before this um, founder came, this last founder. Did you ever have a past life there, Sarah? I did have a past life in Atlantis, which is really interesting because it's part of the classes that I help teach people practice on me and regress me. And one of the students there was practicing on me and I was regressed to a time period where I lived in Atlantis. I'm told by some hypnotherapists that I came from Atlantis as well. Is that possible? Well, most of the people, believe Did you it know or me not, then? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Maybe that's why we know each other. You never know. Most of the people walking the planet today are actually back again from these lifetimes in Lemuria and Atlantis. Because after those civilizations were destroyed, there was so much karma, so much trauma to be accounted for that we needed to figure out when we would come back again. And the time is right now. That's why so many people around us today are triggered by current events. That's true. Now, tell me the difference between Atlantis and Lemuria. So Lemuria was founded by another extraterrestrial who crash-landed. A different totally entity different. or whatever we call them, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't advanced with their technology because they didn't have the technology. Atlantis was only advanced with their technology because the founder was lucky enough to have found some ancient technology left from some other extraterrestrials. And he was able to use that to create Atlantis. But Lemuria was not advanced in their technology. They were, however, advanced spiritually. Did they get along with the Atlanteans? From what I've heard from multiple clients, the Atlanteans visited Lemuria. And the reason why they visited no Lemuria... No wars there or anything like there that? There was a war. That's what I heard. Yes, so what happened was the Atlantis was dealing with a very deadly virus. And this virus was wrecking havoc on their land. It was it sounds causing. familiar, doesn't it? There's a reason why it sounds familiar. Because so many of us are back again wanting to use these triggers so we can finally release this trauma after thousands and thousands of years. But the Atlanteans had this virus, and it was a deadly virus. And so many of my clients, when they're deep under hypnosis, they'll recount that Atlantis had this type of smog, that they couldn't really see the sun, not every day. Jeez. And the reason for that was because they were burning the bodies in Atlantis. Oh, my God. They had to. They had to. So the Atlanteans went to Lemuria because the Lemurians had a type of immunity. And they were close by to each other in proximity, weren't they? Well, not so much. Atlantis, from what I've learned from my clients, seemed to have spanned from Europe to North America, and then from North America to Western Africa. Atlantis was the bigger continent, right? It was humongous. Yeah. If you were to look at Atlantis from my clients' perspectives as they're, as they're leaving their bodies, they would say that the globe and the map looked so different back then because there was water and coastlines in different areas. The North Africa area was almost like a lone sandbar that would go from the Sphinx to Atlantis. The Sphinx was the outpost of Atlantis, but it wasn't created by the Atlanteans. It was actually created from an earlier group of colonists. It's much older than people think. Much older than people think. It's one of the most original things that we have on our planet. So, Sarah, tell us where exactly was Lemuria? 
Lemuria was located in the South Pacific. It encompassed Easter Island. Yeah. And it stretched all the way to South America. South Pacific, huh? And what was Valley interesting. High. Yeah, and what was interesting was that the Lemurians had a special type of immunity. They would have issues with childbirth and pain, but they wouldn't get viruses or get sick. And the Atlanteans had really high developed technology. So they were spying on the Lemurians because they noticed this. They noticed they had a specific mm. type of immunity, but the Lemurians couldn't give this immunity to anybody. It was a gift from the stars, from their star ancestors, from their star people. So they couldn't give it to anybody. But the Atlanteans demanded this technology, this immunity. And when they wouldn't agree, they took the princess as a prisoner and killed everyone by using oh atomic gosh. type devices. And they, they created this massive tidal wave that completely sunk Lemuria. And so many of my clients will come in and share stories about this horrific wave. Sarah, on Gaia's Open Minds with Regina Meredith, Tom T. Moore talked about many of his past lives in Atlantis. It's an amazing story. Did I ever have a life on Lemuria? And and Theo said, ah, Tom. <laughs> and when he says that, I'm, I'm going to hear something. He said, you helped uh, destroy the continent. So it turned out that I was a religious leader in one of the five countries. And we really were getting warlike. And we had developed the equivalent of it, hydrogen bombs. Okay. And so we didn't think these other two countries had developed hydrogen bombs. And so uh, I encouraged them, oh, yeah, let's go ahead and attack them. And uh, so we did. But they did have. And they retaliated with their own hydrogen bombs. So that's that's what broke that comment up. Well, and it took me 85 or 87 lives to balance that one. I, I consider it my worst life on on Earth. Uh-huh. Oh, we all have screw ups. <laughs> yeah. oh, that was so, a major one. So you're saying 7,500 years ago this would have occurred. Yes. And so if you're saying then, what would the implication have been with 170 foot? title essentially uh rise of sea level yes at that time again and, and this is why you know people say well why don't we have records of all this it's because we've had three times in our history 160 40, 41 and 170 feet where the oceans rose and drowned people all over the world wiped out cities all the cities towns villages that were on the coasts of the world and all their records and everything were all buried in mud, completely wiped, wiped away. Mm-hmm. Regina's looking at Tom T. Moore going, I don't know about this story. What do you think of him? Well, it's interesting when he talked about the bombs. That was really interesting because that's what the Atlanteans used when they blew up. or you, when You they got said, that cooperation. Mm-hmm. But and, and they knowledge. put it in rifts in the ocean to create that huge tidal wave. Tsunamis. The tsunami, yeah, exactly. Which is fascinating because I never research anything and I haven't seen Mateus either. All my information I get only from my hypnosis subjects. How many clients have you put under basically? Oh gosh. And they've talked about Atlantis and Lemuria. Many of them? 
multiple clients. I really don't know how many, but it was so many that I knew there was a reason why they were all coming. Is it conceivable, Sarah, that most of us originated from those areas years ago? And we're talking, what, 50,000 years ago, maybe? It seems as if Lemuria was about 25,000 years ago. And I'm not sure if we originated from these places, but most of us have had lifetimes in these places during these times, especially the end of times during these civilizations. Why can't we get technology and go find these continents at the bottom of the ocean? I'm sure you can because there is the Bermuda Triangle where the capital of Atlantis was and some of their technology is still located down underneath the ocean. But Lemuria was completely sunk. Is that why we have problems in Bermuda at the Bermuda Triangle? There's something there, some kind of energy force that is still affecting boats and planes? Definitely the energy can still be felt. Even if you go in the ocean near these places, the energy is still there. So when you were there, what was your role? So when I lived in Atlantis, my role was a judge. You were a judge? My role is a judge because during this time there was the deadly virus in Atlantis, but they had developed a vaccine. And at first it seemed like this vaccine was a huge success. It was like a slit in the arm. This is getting scary. I know. And animal DNA was placed in and then a putty-like substance would go over it. And it was such a huge success that everybody was able to come out of the quarantine. People stopped dying. There were no more bodies being burnt. And everybody was extremely happy until the first set of babies started being born with horrific side effects from these vaccine side effects. Oh, boy. And so the babies were born with different animal parts, like some people had um, animal DNA that looked like cat-like. They had cat-like features. Or they were what, chimeras? Were they they, half animal, half human, or something like that? Exactly. And they had all different kinds of issues. So human beings would be born with animal body parts? You can like still a pig snout or something like that? Not a pig snout per se, but like animal parts like cat-like features, gills, tails, extra nipples. You can still... On you can, humans. You can still see this running slightly through our genes even today. You That's can see scary. people born with gills and extra nipples. So science like that, that went awry at that time. The science went awry, unfortunately. And you were a judge. I was a judge and my job was to su- decide who would stay and who would go in Atlantis. Because When you say go, go where? So what I was told when I was working in Atlantis was that these people, these children that were born with these side effects, some of them would grow up and they would become violent. And they were taken to this other island where they were given food and, and different care. And my job was to decide who would stay in Atlantis or who would, or go, to who this would go to this island. I didn't wow. know. You played that the role of God, didn't you? I think I have some karma to account for. So here I am back again trying to help people. But I didn't know that they were being killed when they got to the island. Who was killing them? So unfortunately... And you didn't know this? Mm-mm, I didn't know this. I would send thousands of people to this island and they were it was actually a death camp. They were being killed. They were being slaughtered, oh my basically. God. And I can't tell you how many clients I've had that remember this island I don't even know if it was ever used for what it was supposed to be and used for. And how did you for. find this out? In hypnotherapy on yourself? So I found out that I was a judge because somebody was regressing me. 
And I thought it was so fascinating just to be in Atlantis. I had no idea why I even lived in the Florida Keys. But the reason I live in the Florida Keys is because I'm the closest point to where I actually died in that lifetime. Because the island was located die? so close. I died from a heart attack. My heart gave out because I couldn't handle the stress. what happened to these people. I was so upset when I found out and I tried to tell as many people as I could. But at that point, it was too late. I just died of a broken heart. How many of these people did you sentence to die not Probably knowing? thousands. Oh, my God. And children being taken away from their parents who had these horrible side effects. Is Sasquatch Bigfoot the remnants of some of those entities and beings? That's quite possible, but I've also heard that Sasquatch actually is more native to the earth than human beings. Human beings have been, according to my subjects under hypnosis, human beings have been brought here from other planets. We're directly... seated. Yeah, we are directly linked to extraterrestrials. So our origins are actually from the stars. How did they eradicate this virus? So they never did. They never eradicated it. At this point... These are lessons for us to learn today, aren't there? Well, at first it seemed like they could go back into trials and they tried again with the vaccine, but it still didn't work. It still created horrific side effects. Apparently, according to some of my clients, the third try was the charm. But see, what we really need to understand is that these children that were born with the side effects, they had major, major abilities. So what is considered a side effect, even now, if you think about what's going on in our life now, the side effects, they were were extremely gifted. If you look at our life now with like, say, ADHD or something like that, that might be considered a disability. But according to clients deep under hypnosis, This is not a disability at all. This is a huge ability that people with ADHD and different disabilities are often underlooked because a person with something like a disability like ADHD, not trying to belittle um, disabilities, but somebody with ADHD can, if a teacher is saying, look at this box, the child can see like outside the box, around the box. They have incredible memory. They They can can focus. Read the phone book. And yeah. remember phone numbers. Of course, do they make phone books anymore? I don't even know that. Just like the savants, they obviously have an ability and it's considered a disability. They've actually opened a channel in their mind. That's such a huge ability. So this was happening in Atlantis. They started to realize that the children that were born with the vaccine side effects had amazing ability. What percent of people were being born with side effects? Most of the people had some slight side so- effect. And so they really screwed up when they came up with that vaccine. It was unbelievable what happened in their society. They cured the virus. They cured the virus. They created a different issue. Exactly. But we were supposed to learn from this. Everything in this universe has a divine purpose. We were supposed to understand that not to be so judgmental and to understand that there's a divine presence in everything. So the abilities that these children had were actually that these children with the side effects could read crystals They could tap into ley lines and they could find out all this information that regular people that were untouched by these side effects couldn't. And I think it's really important to understand that there's so many things considered disabilities that are actually abilities even now. It's one of the lessons I think we need to learn from Atlantis. Have we learned them? I think we're learning. I think right now we're doing a great job. The fact that we've come so full circle to where we are now means that we're evolving. 
This is exciting because we're doing things so much different now than we did in Atlantis. Before in Atlantis, we just killed everybody. We just decided that if you're different, you don't belong here. But now we're learning. We're developing our compassion right alongside our technology. I think we're exactly where we're supposed to be. At least that's what my clients deep under hypnosis have said. Tell us about your latest book, Sarah. My latest book is called A Hypnotist's Journey to the Secrets of the Sphinx. The one I was just talking about is called A Hypnotist's Journey to Atlantis. Now, when you write these books, do you go into a different mode in order to get the information? So what's different about me is I don't research anything, and I also only use clients or subjects that don't know anything consciously about any of this information. That's really the only way I can keep this information valid. So I can't use somebody that already has previous knowledge of any of this stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to trust the information. Matthias talks about the possibility of Atlantis and how it just fell apart. Atlantis has this shift in their politics that was not connecting everyone as one, but to rule them all and be together. By this control that they tried to hell around the, the, the planet, they forgot how to be connected to the planet. So the planet start to protect themselves, itself, from the consciousness of civilization. So that, that made that every node as a flower start to close and go down to the inner world. So the inner world start to hold the energy of the planet and the outer world was not able to get that information anymore. And that made that all the books melted. It created a new heat era that the planet, the ice age ended. And then all this water that was held into the libraries start to go out from the Northern Sea, from the Baltic Sea, from the Bering Sea. All this water start to come down to the oceans and that's what you mostly remember and that brought a war a war in between colonies to to see which one would be the next one to rule the world so that's why atlantis made blew up the the pyramids of some other places so they couldn't have the control so by good politics Egypt was one of the only colonies that allows Atlantean people to come and not fight them. So that's why they recreated this civilization like Atlantis in the River Nile. What lessons can we learn, Sarah, from the Atlanteans and the Lemurians? I think that so many of us walking the planet right now have memories of this and we're not alone. But I think what we can learn is really to understand that we can develop our technology right along with our compassion and our ability to communicate with one another and to understand how to balance ourselves with the masculine and feminine energy. Even what he was talking about with Atlantis and the control, the domination, I think that's something that we're starting to understand and trying to move through where we're trying to rebalance our society right now and not just be one side or the other. Because in Atlantis, they thought they could control basically by keeping knowledge from the people. And people are really mm -hmm. so powerful. The true 
origins of humanity has really been suppressed for thousands of years. And people are so powerful and so creative. If they really understood who they really were, they would have a much different understanding of what they could do with their lives. Sarah, they say that history repeats itself. Are we going through the same things that they did back thousands of years ago? Luckily, it's not exactly the same, but we're going through a lot that's definitely triggering us. There's a lot of people that do remember having a past life in Atlantis that feel extremely triggered by what's going on now because there's a part of them that feels as if they've done this before and it didn't quite work out very well. But the fact is that we're do doing so much time, better. Another chance? Well, karma is not a punishment. Karma is just a chance to do things differently. It can be a punishment. It can be. You know, if, if, if you're an evil person, karma can bite you. But really, we have this second chance. We're all back again so we can do things differently. And we're really back again now so we can go through the same thing again and we can do it differently and finally release this trauma. Because this trauma was so great for all of us. We had to find a way to release it so that we could move past it. As you continue to see clients, are you shocked by some of the things they tell you under hypnosis? I wish I could be shocked. <laughs> But Not anymore? I think the biggest thing, the biggest message that I keep hearing from different higher consciousness is just that it's really time for us to understand who we are and why we're here and to understand the secrets of the universe. And the secrets of the universe really are that the truth of everything is that life is just a game and that this game has been going on for longer than human beings can fully understand in the aspect of time. We're all just as part of an ancient grouping of beings that have traveled from planet to planet to see what the next will bring so that we may never stop evolving and we never have to be alone. Life might be a dream but we want and a game, but we want to win it, don't we? Yeah, let's win this game, George. How do people get your book, Sarah? They can get it on Amazon. They can get it in Audible also. And what's your website? Um, TheHolisticHypnotist.com. And you enjoy doing what you're doing. I have a passion for doing what I'm doing. I really want to help people understand who they are and why they're here. And when clients come to you, what makes them come to you in the first place? A lot of people come to me if they have an issue like an illness or they just want to find out something about themselves. Because it's so easy when you go deep under hypnosis to really focus in on yourself and find out so many things about yourself and heal your body. If we had more time, I'd say, put me under and let's see what I say. How do you know I didn't already? Maybe you did. Sarah, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Thank you very much for having me. It's an amazing story of how people under hypnosis talk about their past lives. And in this particular case, they went back thousands of years. I'm George Nori. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. <laughs>
If entanglement dispels notions of space, then quantum entangled minds means that we really are all one. And Marley Martin, Marley Matlin, Elaine Hendricks, uh, Fred Allen Wolf, uh, Dean Radine, John Hagelin, Candace Pert, Joe Dispenza, Amit Goswami, Jeffrey Statinover, Daniel Monty, David, um, David Albert, William T- T- Tiller, Michael Ledwith, Masanu, Masaru Emoto, and Ramsa. Here we go. This is uh, 18 minutes. Here we go. for letting me stay here. Mm. I know I'm a bit much sometimes and that it's been tough after Bob and all. <laughs> and um, you've just been so wonderful. Mm. I mean, I make a mess and, well, I clean up afterwards, but not really your style. Sometimes I think you make me sane. Me? <laughs> the day I make someone sane, they're in trouble. <laughs> Anyway, um, I made you something as a thank you gift. Open it. I went through your pictures and picked my favorite ones. And it took me forever because there's so many good ones. <laughs> this. That's for all the wonderful photos you will be taking. Thank you. Mm. 
Why are we here? What is my why life? Am I doing? Why is your life at all? What's going on? Why, why, what happens when I die? Why is there anything at all? What is reality? What is reality? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? If thoughts can do that to water, imagine that our thoughts can do it to us. These are questions. Reality opens up down to our experience. I don't think anybody ever has had a successful answer. Our data, is there a substance? This is a dream that I dream. Just as in a dream, you dream different characters can emerge and come out to you and talk to you and meet you and so forth. It's possible to go to another level of dreaming where you can become each of the characters that you dream. Go back to what could you be if you weren't in your body? Well, would time matter at that point, or did we just solve it? Would time go backwards? Could we go backwards? We can go backwards and forwards. The fundamental equation is time is relative. Goes backwards in time. Backwards in time. And then forward in time. two possibilities, either up or down. 
let's say it goes up. Well, then it means that the other one must be down. And these particles can be three feet apart or two miles apart or in two different galaxies. And yet their states will be instantaneously correlated. So in that very specific sense, the question as to whether there's a kind of feedback between quantum events and matter itself, the uncertainty in, is that it's tighter than a feedback. It, it's, it's, that fact is, is simply woven into the fabric of the entire universe, every material bit of the universe. Anytime there's a superposition, and superpositions are happening all the time, those superpositions are correlated with untold other superpositions, and when a superposition collapses over there, it collapses simultaneously God knows where else. Does God know? He's probably the only one who really does. Spooky action at a distance. That was his term. And what he meant is that when we have our ordinary sense of the way that the, the fabric of reality is, it seems like these two places are absolutely in space. They're separate and, and never the twain shall meet. But in fact, it's not true. At some deeper level that we can't see with our eyes very clearly, two places in space are the same. They are, they are co-located, co-existing. So if we imagine that common sense, the way common sense literally meaning that the, what, what the, your senses tell you about the world, if that's the way the world is actually constructed, then things like psychic and mystical experience don't make any sense at all. Because the whole point about psychic and mystical experience that makes them strange is the sense that there's some kind of connection between what's going on inside your head and things elsewhere, elsewhere in space and in time. So what this view of quantum mechanics provides is a, a way of framing what these strange experiences are like. And it reframes it from somehow magically information is getting inside my head from signals or forces or something into a different view, which is that in a sense your head, yes, is here, but it's also spread out, spread out through space and time. What I think happens in near-death experiences and maybe in, in death also is that prior to that, while the brain's functioning, metabolism is occurring, quantum coherence and quantum computation is being driven by the metabolism. When that ends, when the blood stops flowing, the quantum information leaks out to the universe at large because it, because it exists in the Planck scale. It exists at the most fundamental level. Even during normal consciousness, it's occurring at the most basic level of the universe. But the Planck scale, the fundamental level, you know, between our ears in the brain. But when the coherence is lost, it kind of leaks out to the universe at large. But it doesn't dissipate entirely because of entanglement. And plus, the universe is probably holographic. So it remains with a phase relationship and can, pers can persist, at least in, in a subconscious dreamlike state outside the body. Spread out through space and time. And so when, I, when I'm able to get a telepathic impression from somebody at a distance, it's not because I somehow jumped out there and got it, but because at some deep level, my head and the other person's head are co-located. We become entitled all the time when we communicate telepathically. Those experiences are so striking. I literally can read your thoughts if I become entangled with you. And such things happen. There are distant viewing experiments. There are even experiments now that you are seeing light flashes and your brain potentials picks up 
the signature of those light flashes, what is called evoke potential, that can be measured in an EEG machine connected to your brain. And I am sitting over there, no light flashes, I cannot see you, and still my brain potential, because I am correlated with you in terms of intention, I intend to be directly communicative with your experiences. That intention produces me, gives me the capability of simultaneously having the similar brain potential in my brain. It was first done by Jacobo Greenberg at the University of Mexico and now repeated by Peter Fenwick uh, in London. So let's say you wanted to, you, you have interested in this notion of entangled minds, entangled bodies. How would you demonstrate that in the lab? The way that we do it is we take two people we simply ask them to keep each other in mind. We entangle their minds by asking them to do so. Just keep each other in mind. It's the mental equivalent of a physics experiment where you're entangling people. You wire them both up physiologically. You might measure the heart rate on both of them, brain waves, skin conductance. You measure what's happening physiologically. Then you separate them into two places so that no ordinary form of sensory leakage can pass between them. So they, they can't interact then any, anymore by conventional means, as is done in a physics experiment. And now you do the equivalent of poke one of them and see if the other one flinches. And if it turns out that you can poke that person and that person flinches as a result or at the right time, that's a way of demonstrating that they are still entangled even though they are no longer in the same place. What we're looking at is the brainwave. This is the raw brainwave electroencephalogram. This is skin conductance skin conductance level, and this is respiration. There we go. It's going to run all by itself now. They had wired me up and locked me in this room, a massive multi-ton Faraday cage used by the military to isolate sensitive defense computers. The shielded room was riding on springs to further eliminate all sonic, vibrational, and electromagnetic interference. Meanwhile, Mark sat in another room watching a monitor. When my picture flashed on, he was to focus on me. Computers collected our unconscious responses to see if somehow, some way, we were entangled. You see, when the sending occurs, there's a big arousal effect here. And this is the sending side, and this is the receiving side. So what we're looking for is on this side, a response. It's possible that that as a response. I'm pulling the data from these computers into this one where we'll be able to do the analysis. We ran a session with a sender and receiver. The sender is the red line, the receiver is the blue line. Beginning of the stimulus is here at 100, and the end is at 200. So what we're looking at is 10 seconds before the stimulus, the stimulus itself, and then 10 seconds after the stimulus in each case. So here we're finding the skin conductance relaxing and then meandering. The stimulus occurs and there's a big reaction in the sender, which is what we would expect. And what, interestingly, here's the receiver relaxing, the stimulus occurs and suddenly starts relaxing a lot quicker and gets to the end of the period and stops relaxing. So this is somewhat unusual in that you wouldn't expect skin conductance to suddenly drop 
But actually, I did an analysis to see whether this is a meaningful drop, and it turns out that it is. Significantly faster drop than you would expect by chance. So that's kind of unusual. So on average, I would say that looking at this one session with two people, it looks like the receiver is responding to what the sender was trying to, to do, to mentally connect. And in, in a large-scale experiment, we would do many sessions like this. We might be doing 30 or 40 sessions like this and then combine all of the data together to see whether uh, we're dealing with something which is true on average. Uh, but that's the result of this experiment. A colleague of mine, Alex Wentz, is a sociology professor at Ohio State University, and he's writing a book on the premise that quantum consciousness exists and there's subconscious quantum entanglement between people. And if that's the case, then it also exists among groups of uh, groups of people, societies, governments, politics, and and so forth. And the implications of that for the subconscious quantum entanglement interactions among uh, people and groups of people has profound implications on the, on the way the world runs, on the way society and governments and politics go on. If we claim, for example, based on research, that group meditation lowers crime, prevents terrorism, even stops open warfare in war-torn areas, which is absolutely true every time, that's such important research it needs to be done again and again, published again and again, presented again and again. So I'm a little bit more involved now with the application knowledge of unity, how that applies to life, how it can be accessed through meditation and harnessed and utilized through group meditation. At the end of Entangled Minds, I, I take five or six classes of experiments that I've created or, or that I've analyzed to come up with a single number of the odds against chance for telepathy and the conscious state and the dream state for entangled minds and bodies for mind-matter interaction for those classes of experiments, which is roughly 1,500 experiments. And the overall figure is 10 to the 104 to 1. So that's a big number. I mean, at some point, you have to say, well, the evidence from these experiments is so large against chance that chance as an explanation is simply not viable. The difference between ignorance and enlightenment is ignorance always uses reality. For a predictable outcome. So no one in our life is ever the love of our life. No one in our life is ever the angel in our life. No one in our life is ever the bad person in our life. No one. It's only how we react to predictable emotions that we are addicted to. And genius has none of them. Holy cow. Okay. Sacred Geometry, Spiritual Science with Robert Gilbert, J. Gilbert. How has modern materialism restricted our views of our larger reality? Lightening, no, highlighting over 40 years of research, former nuclear biological chemical defense marine corps instructor and founder of Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies, Robert J. Gilbert, Ph.D., shares the breakthrough knowledge of sacred geometry and biogeometry, exploring the history of the invisible energy matrix which materializes everything in the physical world. 
Gilbert converts ancient Egyptian wisdom into practical teachings for today. And this is 31 minutes, and here we go. success or failure. The hidden key to self-empowerment is the knowledge of these patterns which direct our lives. Sacred geometry teaches the master patterns which create our world and which are the true secret behind all manifestation. This series removes the veils of previously hidden knowledge. You will learn key subtle energy patterns which, when activated regularly in your own energy field, can change your life. Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert, founder of the Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies. For over 40 years, I have intensively researched the patterns behind human life. This includes scientific studies from my time as a U.S. Marine Corps instructor in the field of nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense, and studies of spiritual traditions around the world while completing my Ph.D. in international studies. I'm excited to share with you in this series some of the highlights of these 40 years of research. We will explore together the hidden patterns which manifest everything in physical existence. This is a journey of empowerment. By learning how to work with subtle energy patterns known to ancient traditions, you can initiate an alchemical transformation within yourself. This process can empower your individual evolution of consciousness and thereby assist the raising of consciousness on our planet. We begin with a hidden lineage of initiates known in ancient Egypt as the masters of the net. These initiates knew a great secret that behind everything in physical existence is an invisible matrix of energy which is the source of all physical manifestation. It is this invisible energy matrix which materializes everything in the physical world through the patterns we call sacred geometry. The term sacred geometry is comprised of geo, meaning earth, and metri, meaning measurement. Sacred geometry literally means the sacred measure of the earth. We can also think of this in a larger sense, of sacred geometry meaning the divine blueprints of consciousness and energy. In the ancient world, all of the temples, monuments, and political power centers were built on the larger power spots of the Earth's energy grid and were used for establishing the exact placement of the central axis of the building, the walls, the altars, and all the other features in sacred buildings. The ancients knew that many of these large-scale Earth grids are connected to the sacred geometry patterns we know today as the platonic solids. They're called platonic solids because they appeared in the writings of Plato 
2,500 years ago. However, these forms were known in ancient temple sciences long before the time of Plato. The Platonic solids are the geometric forms which correspond to the four elements of earth, water, air, and fire. Then there is the form of the fifth element, the universal life force, which the Greeks called ether and was known as chi, ki, prana, and other names in different traditions. This is the fifth and final platonic solid. This fifth element form is the twelve-sided dodecahedron, which was considered sacred and sometimes secret in the Greek tradition. Plato hints at it when he described the earth as looking from above like a twelve-sided ball. In ancient traditions, both the earth and the entire universe were considered to have the form of a dodecahedron. It's easy to see why, over the entrance to Plato's initiation school, there was said to be a sign which read, No one ignorant of geometry may enter. In the 1970s, Ivan Sanderson wrote an article showing the geometric locations of physical anomalies on the Earth. The most famous of these locations is the Devil's Triangle around Bermuda. However, Sanderson found that there was a geometric pattern of similar sites all around the globe. Sanderson found these locations were at the nodal points of the platonic solid known as the icosahedron. As we will see in a later episode of this series, the icosahedron is not only the sacred geometry shape for this part of the energy grid of the Earth, it is also known in science today as a key biological form which appears, for example, in the geometric form of viruses, the most basic form of life. Researchers discovered that to make these earth grid maps align properly to these sacred geometry patterns, point number one of the grid needed to be aligned to one of the world's great large-scale power spots, Giza Plateau in Egypt. And so it is here, in the civilization of ancient Egypt, built on this primary power spot of the earth grid, that we will find evidence of an ancient initiation system based on the invisible energy grids, which in ancient texts are often referred to as nets or the net. In India, for example, the jeweled net of Indra is described as a net extending infinitely in all directions, with jewels which glitter like stars at every nodal point of the net Every jewel reflects all the other jewels in itself. Other interpretations include that every bright jewel at the nodal points of the net is an Atman, which is the spirit core within human beings and all spiritual beings. Each Atman spirit core has the same divine essence as all others, but with their own unique qualities based on the karma they have generated through acting in the physical world. In the highest levels of modern physics, it is understood that physical matter is based on both physical particles in different states of vibration and on waves. Waves can collapse into particles. Particles can disintegrate back into waves. This is called wave-particle duality in modern physics. Similarly, ancient traditions based both their understanding of natural forces and their healing methods 
on dynamic vital energy, not on the physical matter itself, which is simply a lower, denser manifestation of the underlying energy patterns. Ancient traditions understood that energy in different states is the core of all existence. This brings us to an important secret of sacred geometry. Whenever you see a physical form, including the forms of sacred geometry we will explore in this series, don't think of it as a solid inert structure. Always keep in mind that what stands behind this physical structure is the net, the vibrational matrix of energy that this form crystallized out of. Remember that the physical form can change immediately when the background energy matrix changes. Everything is energy, so sacred geometry patterns are crystallized forms showing us the invisible vibrational matrix, which is the higher reality. This vibrational matrix is the net, which ancient traditions learn to master. Understanding that the solidity of physical matter is an illusion, that it can change based on changing the vibrational matrix behind matter, is the secret of all advanced energy healing and what we call today vibrational medicine. It is also the secret of all advanced spiritual activation of the human being. These nets or energy grids work on higher plane levels in addition to their work on the physical plane to create physical form. Modern physics has allowed materialism to restrict its understanding of this larger reality so that modern materialism only sees energy manifesting at two levels, the electromagnetic and the physical levels. One of the most popular models of these higher planes today is the seven planes model from the Theosophical Society. This image of the seven planes of nature is derived from the modern system of biogeometry developed by Dr. Ibrahim Karim in Cairo, Egypt. Dr. Karim found the geometric shapes which connect in resonance to each plane, which makes possible very advanced work in testing or directing energy to these planes. We will discuss biogeometry in more detail in the final episode of this season. Working with higher planes along with the net of the vibrational matrix is a key secret of spiritual initiation. This makes possible advanced applications in manifestation, prosperity work, and the materialization of energy and thought forms into physical reality. It is all about knowing how to work with the patterns of energy which move from the higher planes of consciousness into vibrational matrices and then crystallize into physical manifestation. Modern materialistic science doesn't allow itself to consider any planes above the physical plane. It bans any discussion of metaphysics just as dogmatically as any fundamentalist religion enforces the suppression of heretical ideas. Instead, modern science talks about dimensions rather than higher planes. Modern advanced physics is full of higher dimensions. In fact, modern physics requires the existence of many higher dimensions in order for the mathematics of quantum physics to work out. But despite these higher dimensions in physics equations, materialistic science continues to insist that this is simply a mathematical artifact 
and does not indicate the existence of any higher metaphysical realities. So let's take just a moment to understand the basics of what dimensions are, as these have taken the place in physics today of the classical ideas of the higher planes of existence. Physics today teaches that our physical reality is literally a three-dimensional geometric grid comprised of three axes, each at a 90-degree angle to the others. We start with zero dimensions, which is a point, an energy center. In physics, it is connected to the idea of the singularity as the source of all creation. In spiritual terms, the zero-dimensional point is the gateway to the divine unity from which all polarity and manifestation emerges, which ancient traditions would call the divine plane. The zero-dimensional point is literally the spiritual origin point from which physical space is created. To create the first dimension, the point moves parallel to itself to create a line. The point then moves on a new axis, creating lines between the new point and the two previous points, making the simplest two-dimensional straight line form, the triangle. The point then moves on a new 90-degree axis, which creates not only new lines between the now four points, but also creates planes on all sides of this now three-dimensional form. This makes the simplest straight line three-dimensional geometrical form, the tetrahedron. We have now moved from the point to the line, to the plane, to the solid, from zero dimensions to three dimensions. If we move the point into another new axis, away from the existing three dimensions of space, we then create a fourth dimensional object. We cannot see any aspect of fourth dimensional or higher forms because our human senses are based on perceiving our three dimensional world. However, it may be that our subtle organs of spiritual perception could perceive these higher dimensions or higher planes. This realization that beings with sense organs for only lower dimensions could only see fragments of higher dimensional objects was the basis for the concept of flatland by Edwin Abbott. The flatland concept shows how a two-dimensional being could only see simple two-dimensional or one-dimensional aspects of three-dimensional objects moving through the plane of the world that he perceives. The lesson, of course, is that the same is true for us as three-dimensional beings. We can only see 3D or lower dimensional sections of any fourth dimensional or higher dimensional objects moving through our world. This flatland concept of our only perceiving small fragments of higher dimensional objects moving through our world opens up new understandings of mysterious spiritual manifestations, of UFO sightings, etc. Fifth, sixth, and even higher dimensional forms are also possible and have already been identified in advanced scientific mathematics and geometric studies. When we see these higher dimensional geometric forms on a flat two-dimensional surface, they appear as a complex grid pattern, the net described in the ancient traditions. 
So if we add another point to the preceding series of dimensional images, a new point, which would now be in the fourth dimension along an axis shift, not perceivable by a three-dimensional person, this would create a fourth dimensional form of which we would only see a shadow of it in our dimension. Note that the fourth dimensional form at the end of this sequence, when shown in a lower dimensional projection as a flat 2D form, from a specific perspective, looks like a five-pointed star, a pentagram inside a five-sided enclosure, a pentagon. This opens up the possibility that forms and sacred geometry used in ancient spiritual traditions are actually lower dimensional projection views of higher dimensional objects. These 2D or 3D sacred geometry patterns may actually have the hidden power to energetically connect us to higher dimensional realities. As we will see in a later episode, the pentagram form we see here, created by higher dimensional projection, is a key sacred geometry pattern for the human energy body and has been used for spiritual and magical purposes throughout recorded human history. This pentagram within a pentagon is also related to the large dodecahedron of the earth grid we saw earlier in this episode. The dodecahedron is comprised of 12 pentagons, showing that the energy geometries of the human body also exist in a larger macro form in the energy grids of the earth itself. This is a profound aspect of sacred geometry, that geometric forms we see may just be shadows of higher dimensional forms which most human beings have not yet developed a sense organ to perceive directly. Now that we have explored some basics of energy grids, or what the ancients called the net, as patterns which create the physical world and which manifest on multiple planes and dimensions, we can now explore the hidden tradition of the masters of the net in ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptian tradition cultivated deep hidden knowledge and applications of the energetic net behind all physical manifestation, both in the human energy field and in the earth itself. In modern physics, it is understood that all physical matter is within an energy grid of space and time. Today, we see in physics books a representation of the net of space-time being distorted by physical mass. This net is often shown looking like a rubber sheet with a squared geometric grid on it, being distorted and stretched by an object such as a planet. This means that the net is malleable and it can be modified. Over 5,000 years before modern physics, this same energy grid, which is today called the net of space-time, was known and shown in the ancient Egyptian mysteries as the net which creates and sustains all physical existence. Learning to tap the power of this geometric energy grid was a key aspect of the Egyptian temple initiation. Those initiated into these mysteries were known as the masters of the net. Behind the illustrations on the Egyptian temple walls were geometric grids constructed first by the artist before creating the final illustrations we see on the completed temple walls in Egypt. These geometric grids used in ancient Egypt are known to modern Egyptologists. 
but with their materialistic viewpoint, many believe these grids to have only been a practical method to lay out the illustrations on the wall. They ignore the vast literature in ancient Egypt which describes this net and its magical power. There are specific terms used for different aspects of the geometric net of energy by the Egyptian initiates of the temple. Some of those terms are seen here from hieroglyphic text published by British researchers in the late 1800s. There were also direct representations of the net. For the public, the net was often represented metaphorically as a net used to catch fish or to catch birds. Initiates were shown learning to master the net and its powers. Deeper initiation teachings were also held within the net imagery. Ancient Egyptians did not refer to non-physical beings as gods or goddesses as they are translated into English today from ancient text, but rather they referred to these beings as netters, the conscious forces of nature which the initiate learns to directly communicate with and to direct their power. Many netters were shown with animal heads, not because ancient Egyptians worshiped animals as is sometimes falsely speculated today, but because they understood that higher divine powers manifested through specific animals. Just as today we say clever as a fox. The ibis-headed netter was known to the ancient Egyptians as Jehute, but today we know this netter from the later corrupted Greek name Thot or Thoth. Jehute was understood to be the being who created and taught the Egyptian temple science. The non-physical servants of Jehute were depicted as baboons casting nets into water to catch fish. Now the deeper initiation knowledge behind this was that these fish caught in the net were in actuality the souls of the dead who were unable to consciously navigate through the non-physical worlds and so became caught in the net. There's a specific teaching about this in the key Egyptian initiation text called the Book of Coming Forth into Light, which today we often call the Egyptian Book of the Dead. In this text, the initiate learns to navigate and master the net. In chapter 153, the initiate learns to consciously navigate through the net, as seen in this quote. O oh, you fishermen, you shall not catch me in your net. You shall not catch me in your nets in which you catch the unwary, for I know the net from its upper heights to its lower depths. This remarkable initiation text details all of the aspects of the net, from the earth out into cosmological bodies, and which aspects of the net connect to specific higher non-physical beings, the netters. The true master of the net is the initiate who has learned how to navigate through the net, and learn how to use the net of the living energy matrix behind everything on the physical plane to develop powers that the uninitiated consider to be magical. In ancient Egypt, the netter of death and rebirth was named Azra, a name later corrupted in Greek to become Osiris. The sacred geometry form known as the backbone of Azra in ancient Egypt was the Jed pillar which was erected each year in the raising of the Jed ceremony to connect heaven and earth 
Just as the Egyptian temples connected power spots on the earth on which they were built to power spots in the heavens, and just as the human spine stands erect for us to be held between earth and heaven to act on the physical plane. The raising of the Jed pillar was the culmination of the mysteries of Azra or Osiris. In the ancient Egyptian document, which is today known as the Westcar Papyrus, one of the highest masters of the net in ancient Egypt is described as the Jedi, based on the Jed pillar being the backbone of Azra connecting heaven and earth. The Jedi derives extraordinary powers from using the net to control natural forces. One story in the Westcar Papyrus describes a master of the net, a high priest for Pharaoh Snoferu, who parts the waters of a lake, making a part of the lake dry so that a valuable piece of jewelry can be reclaimed from its floor. Today, such miracles or magic are associated with the parting of the Red Sea by Moses, described in the Old Testament. However, these abilities to control natural forces were in fact a part of the masters of the net initiation lineage from which Moses derived his knowledge during his training in the Egyptian temples. Similarly, the use of the staff by Moses is directly derived from the training and the use of the staff in the Egyptian temples. The staff acts as an antenna for detecting and projecting higher forces based on the designs and shapes on the staff. In the Westcar Papyrus, after the story of the priest who parts the waters for the Pharaoh, the story of the Jedi is introduced. He is said in this ancient Egyptian text to specifically have the power to restore life to the dead and to know hidden secrets of the ancient temples. The term used in recent times in the Star Wars film series of a Jedi Knight who can direct the Force. Thus carries a powerful subconscious resonance and attraction for people today. This is because it comes from the Hekal system of words of power in ancient Egypt, specifically the terms Jed and Jedi. The lightsaber in Star Wars sometimes resembles the form of the Jed pillar as well. From ancient Egypt, the hidden knowledge of the net spread to other cultures in the Western tradition as well. The foundation of the Western monotheistic tradition is the Old Testament, whose first book, Genesis, describes the creation of the earth from higher spiritual realms through the use of specific sacred geometry patterns. The very first statement in Genesis, in Hebrew, is Bereshit. Note that in the Hebrew original text, there are no divisions of the letters into words, just an unbroken stream of letters which can be divided and interpreted in deeper ways within the Kabbalistic mysteries. Bereshit is usually translated into English as meaning in the beginning. But in the deeper Kabbalistic teachings, it also literally means the net or God creates the net as the beginning of creation. This means that the same geometric energy net we saw previously as the core of ancient Egyptian initiation, which appears as the matrix of space-time in modern physics, is also the very first statement of Genesis, which can be accurately translated 
as God creates the net as the very first act of creation. The Jewish tradition is well known for avoiding visual images of divine realities. However, in the Kabbalah, there's a powerful discussion of a specific net of creation manifested by the 22 flame letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each of which is a divine power. In the modern Jewish Kabbalah, this net pattern is referred to as the 231 gates. Perhaps the best known net pattern from the Jewish tradition in modern times is the Tree of Life, an energy matrix which is a map connecting multiple dimensions, which also microcosmically manifests as a powerful energy grid within the human energy body. Methods to activate this powerful energy grid within our human energy field require real knowledge about this pattern and its effects. Rather than the inaccurate speculation which has become so prevalent in recent times. This lost knowledge was restored in modern times by a Greek Christian healer and initiate known to the public as Daskalos, who referred to the pattern as the symbol of life from its ancient Egyptian roots. Activating each key part of this net grid pattern requires regular practice. We will show you a simplified method where you will activate this pattern one section at a time, so that by the end of this series, you will have learned how to activate the full pattern in your energy field. Please be aware that this can be an extremely powerful practice, which can accelerate your path of personal evolution and can even beneficially transform your spiritual destiny. We will in this series refer to this powerful sacred geometry grid in the human energy field as the grid of life design or referred to in short by the acronym GOLD. This will help to remind us that this pattern is indeed linked to activating the gold energy of the saints in our energy field. The same golden radiance which is shown above the heads or bodies of the great initiates of every spiritual tradition around the world. So let us begin our activation of the grid of life design, or gold, with the activation of the gold energy surrounding our head, the seat of our consciousness. If you'd like to do the practice now, please see the companion video for this episode. Otherwise, please set an intention to come back and do the practice at a later time. <laughs> That was real quick. Okay, we got one more, everyone. This is called Practice. Cubicle Cross Mind Activation. Robert J. Gilbert is the uh, narrator here as well. Sacred Geometry Spiritual Science. Connect vital circuits of energy within your body by mastering this practice. Using zero-point radiance techniques, you can activate the cave of Brahma, the third ventricle of the brain, referred to in Sanskrit texts as, quote, the seat of resonance with the one ocean of cosmic vibration. This center of the mind's eye can initiate the expansion of your consciousness Cubicle cross-mind activation practice is the companion exercise 
for the four secrets of sacred geometry, which we just learned. Teaching from Vesica Institute for Holistic Studies, founder Robert J. Gilbert. And here we go. 11 minutes. 11 minutes. teach you this practice straight through for time purposes. Then in the future, you can practice this exercise more slowly than we will here. We'll begin with our energy field awareness practice, which we introduced in episode one as the way to get a baseline reading on our energy field before beginning any energetic practice, so that you can then see more clearly the effects of the practice afterwards. Simply close your eyes and tune into the feeling of energy in and around your body. What does the energy feel like? Then keeping the eyes closed, observe what is currently in your thoughts and your emotions. So now you've been able to observe what you feel energetically and what's in your consciousness, in your thoughts and in your emotional life. Now we will begin the practice itself. Take three slow, deep breaths, relaxing any tension in your head, neck, and shoulders. Keep the muscles of the head relaxed during the practice. Do not allow the energy generated to create muscular tension. Focus your awareness between the eyebrows and become aware of any sensations that you feel there. Then follow that sensation that you feel between the eyebrows straight back along the third eye cylinder until you feel the location of the center of the cubical cross in the cave of Brahma. This location in the center of your head will feel like an area of increased vibration and light compared to the areas around it. It also feels like an open space in your head a very stable place where your attention can rest. Become aware that from this power center of the cave of Brahma, you can feel the three axes of the cubical cross streaming out. So become aware and feel the front back circuit from the third eye between the eyebrows back to the occiput at the back of the head. Then become aware of and feel the top-down circuit from the crown down the golden thread through the vertical center line of the body to the perineum at the base of the abdomen. And then become aware and feel the side-to-side circuit from the top of one ear through the two brain hemispheres to the top of the opposite ear. Then stabilize your awareness where all three lines of energy, all three circuits meet in the center of the cubical cross at the cave of Brahma. Tune into how the energy feels at this location of the cave of Brahma. It may feel like a vibration or a pressure. 
Don't think about this area abstractly. You must put your mind deep inside this location and feel its energy. Now with your attention in the cave of Brahma, pull all of your energy and awareness, which normally flows outwards, to instead move inwards into the absolute center of what you feel in the cave of Brahma, in the center of your head. Feel this inward movement like a sphere of energy and attention that is collapsing into its own center from all directions simultaneously. This movement is like a balloon collapsing into its own center as it deflates. This inward pull from all directions at once into the center is created by a particular energetic muscle which you may not have been aware of before, which needs to be exercised to become strong. Once you have activated the inward movement of the energy at the cave for Brahma, let go and allow the energy to continue to implode into the center with its own energetic momentum. Relax and allow your attention to be pulled into the very center as if being carried effortlessly by a vortex of energy. When your inward movement reaches the absolute center, you may feel a profound stability, a dynamic quiet and peace as you dwell deep inside this divine center at the cave of Brahma. Then experience that this awakened energy now floods outwards in all directions simultaneously, expanding out from the divine plane central point to create a dynamically expanding sphere of ecstatic light and energy pouring out from this epicenter. Allow this energy sphere to expand until it becomes a radiant golden sun around your entire head, effortlessly radiating light and energy in all directions. Allow the awakened energy from the divine center and the golden sun to clear out any stuck energy, any old toxic thought forms from your physical brain and your entire head. All blockages and darkness simply melt away like dew evaporating in sunlight. Allow your thoughts and awareness to now shift in quality to resonate with the golden sun sphere. Experience the clearing and expansion of your consciousness. You may even experience contact with packed thought forms from spiritual beings and higher realities. You can stay in this expanded radiant state with the golden sun around your entire head, anchored in the cave of Brahma in the center for as long as you like. When you are ready to end this activation practice, simply let go of the awareness of the golden sun around your head and shift your attention once again to the energy field awareness practice. Tune into the feeling of energy in and around your head and body. Become aware of any changes to your consciousness, the change to thoughts in your mind and to your emotional state. Ask yourself how your energy and awareness have transformed from doing this practice. Doing this simple energy field awareness practice at the end of any spiritual exercise allows you to directly know what effect any practice is having on your energy and your consciousness. 
This is much better than simply accepting what another person tells you about the effects a practice will have. You must know for yourself. This is a very significant practice. It is so fundamental that even if a person did only this method and applied it to activate multiple energy centers in their body, it could transform their consciousness and their spiritual destiny. You can apply the point in the circle sacred geometry pattern, which becomes the zero point centering and radiance technique to explore power centers of your own inner landscape. You could apply this practice to activating your heart, your solar plexus, organs, glands, acupuncture points, any energy centers in your body or energy field. Every energy center within you holds its own unique nectar, its own specific spiritual powers and energies. You will find that there is a vast world living inside of you. You will experience that your body is indeed a sacred temple, a microcosm which holds within it the keys to connect to every aspect of the macrocosm and higher spiritual realities. This is only a short introduction to what is just a first step to higher level activations. After opening the consciousness centers in the physical head, it is possible to go up the central column and open up the first chakra above the head using the same zero point centering and radiance technique. Then later you can activate even higher centers above the head. Be aware that any activations above the head must be balanced with activations of the centers below the body as well in more advanced methods. This is an application of the as above, so below principle. And for every movement upwards, you must equally connect downwards to the same extent in order to stay grounded and balanced. For more information and step-by-step -step training in these higher activations, I created an online course entitled Connecting to Spiritual Realities at my website, www.vesica.org. Once you effectively activate these higher centers, you can begin to directly experience packed thought forms from higher worlds. Over time, you will also be able to generate and transmit these packed thought forms as well. Then the four secrets of sacred geometry which you learned in this episode will become direct experience and can profoundly transform your life. <laughs> One more meditation for the night. The nightcap here, everybody. That was good. This is from our sister Caroline Oceana Lyon. And she dated this July 22nd, 2022. One, two, three, four, five. Twos in there. Divine Feminine. Uh, times five. And we've got uh, uh, new beginnings. Uh, with uh, starting at zero point module. Okay, today's message is a video. With an energy embedded visualization. The trans transcript is below. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, Galactics, Earth Elementals, Bay Elders, Angelic Legions, Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this time to speak with you again today. 
something that we have noticed and that you have also noticed lately is how powerful the energies are. Yes, we can and are flowing to the earth at present. So let's just work with those for a little bit. Breathing. Do you know anything about this, Rama? Mm -mm. No. Oops. Okay, there comes Springberg. Breathing in slowly through the nose with mouth closed. Then slowly breathing out with sort of a hot sound through the open mouth. Continue breathing this way. And, if you can, imagine a beautiful stream of divine golden light flowing down from the higher realms. Wonderful. It fills your entire being and all the space around you. It takes you, it takes in your aura and takes in your radiance. And, it flows deep into the earth as well, deep into inner, inner earth, so that you are perfectly anchored into earth, as well as being connected to the higher realms. Now, send your inner awareness up that stream of divine golden light, up into the higher realms. And now, let's all stand in that beautiful circle of light, that we created, that we create as needed. You can hear the chimes, perhaps, in the background, or the bird song. No, Birdman's doing his work. <laughs> know that the essence of Mother Gaia is always with you, even when your spirit or consciousness is in the higher realms, and this includes when you are in your sleep state and traveling a bit, doing your beautiful earth mission work. Just place everything troubling you about these powerful energies, including some days perhaps, your doubt that you can integrate them fully or integrate them peacefully. Place all of that in the circle of light. It doesn't negate the growth and expansion you are experiencing from this powerful light. It simply assures you that you are receiving assistance in the integration of that light. These are sentient light codes. They speak directly to your spirit, to every cell in the body, every particle of your being. It's a beautiful sunrise. That's the most perfect time at sunrise and sunset to do these little meditations. There's going to be a fear due to this process from the subconscious that you are being asked to give up portions of your spirit or psyche that are important to you and that you don't want to lose, that you don't want to forget. And so, put that into the circle of light as well. You don't have to figure everything out. You don't have to say, well, how's that going to work? You just 
put it into the circle of love, dear ones. And that includes your questions about things such as, what's becoming of our health care? What's becoming of our economy? What's going on with education in our schools? Are children safe in our schools? What's happening with our government? It seems to be sort of imploding. And one could say that for a number of governments, and one could say that for a number of governments on this earth, put all those questions into the circle of light, as well as anything that's troubling you right now. Because so much is in flux that it is easy to feel at times that things are a bit out of control and just too unpredictable for you to feel comfortable. So, as you've put all these items into the circle of light and anything else troubling you or a loved one whom you are concerned for and any other issue, know that we are working to assist you in moving all this up to a higher level vibrationally and to assist you in releasing that unconscious feeling that it's just not safe to be on the earth right now, that things are too uncertain, or there's too much change being required of you at once. Very easy to feel that. This can come across as a feeling of pressure, almost of a shock some days almost as if you'd sort of put your hand into the light socket accidentally and received a sharp jolt. And so you have your moments of wondering, am I going to be perpetually in shift? Or is there going to become or is there going to come a moment when things seem to calm down and even out? And I can be easygoing again? Really, you haven't had too many earth lives where you felt very sure of things. For the most part, you have had religious structures or spiritual rituals to carry you through moments of unsureness and to call forth from the quantum field, although you wouldn't have called it that then, probably in other lives, in past centuries or any rate, at any rate, to call forth from that endless quantum field the most beautiful outcome possible. So draw into your heart right now. We're producing the energy or calling forth the energy into the circle of light of the highest, most benevolent outcome of every single issue you have put into the circle of light. So just draw that energy into your heart right now. It's sparkling silver or sparkling gold or it might be sparkling emerald or rose or cobalt blue or bright yellow. You decide what feels right to you. If you have issues of the heart occurring, perhaps it will be the the rose-ray color. But draw 
that cloud or mist, mist of sparkling energy, tiny pinpoints of light. You're just drawing those into your being, into your spirit, into your consciousness. It's all in and all around, above and below. You know every bit of it. You don't have to think hard. You can know that your spirit team are going to relay to you ideas indeed to assist you on these issues in the coming hours or days or a week or so. Anytime you feel a bit insecure, you're going to go back to the image, to this image of drawing in the divine solution or resolution or the perfect upgrade. For many of you, that has to do with health, peace of mind, perhaps finances, your whole abundance vibration. An abundance, dear ones, encompasses many things, many, many things. Many of you have sent in questions recently about abundance, asking different questions. And we are more than happy to engage with you on that. And likewise, the gods and goddesses of prosperity, good fortune, gold, and all forms of health and well-being. So, that's what the new book will be. But for right now, you are just drawing in that beautiful light to assist you. Drawing in that beautiful light to comfort and support you. That is where you begin everything. Everything in this outer world always begins with an energy absorption, an energy draw, and formation of an outer form from pure, raw energy. So, you might just breathe in right now. Breathe it in right now. As you're breathing in, you're breathing in that energy of the solutions and new forms you want to create. If, if, as you can't imagine, image it very well, that's all right. Just breathe in and know that you're perfectly supported in all ways. Check in with your team occasionally. Is there anything I need to do to address any of these issues I brought forth to the circle of light? And if you don't hear them directly, just say, fill my thoughts with your wisdom. And I'll show it all comes from you. And I'll know it all comes from you. Wonderful, dear ones. So, when you're ready, come back down that beautiful pillar of light. Back to the earth. Down fully into your body. Into the room. Stretching a bit. Very joyful to have taken this journey. And you can do this anytime. At any time. We are happy to meet you there. Likewise, all of your beautiful guides, angels, and higher self. Wonderful, dear ones. We send you much love. Namaste. And I pass this talking stick with angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and crystals and uh, menahonies <laughs> and hobbits. 
and even those trolls under the bridge. We will send them good behavior energies. <laughs> like Tess is talking stick. to you, Rainbird. Here it comes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with those trolls. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to send them more love, right? Oh, oh God. All right. I'll do it. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Rama. Wow. What a day. There's lots of good stuff, lots of fun. And, yeah, and lots of reaching out for uh, more understanding. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, I know I speak for all of us. We enjoyed the day. And so I'm going to pass this talking stick over to you, Rama. Here it comes. So what do you have for us, Rob? This is Alan Watts. Reality is gorgeous. <laughs> what a day. And we are in the last day of the Mayan calendar today. Mm. As, except for, I think, in the Pacific time zone. <laughs> mm. We still have a half an hour to go. Uh, so, again, Sunday uh, is the last day of the Mayan calendar. And then, happy birthday, Randy, on that day out of time, Monday. And we'll keep our sister, Cheryl, in this circle for all the wellness and all the time she needs to rest here and recuperate and uh, renew and to all these ones that are being held accountable we send them more love as I was saying about those trolls under the bridge send them more love <laughs> Emerald Serpent Feathered One we call on you Quetzalcoatl that one to bring that which is needed Another name for this being is Sanaka Kumara, uh, along with our brother Sananda Kumara. And Inshallah and Satnam. Satnam deep. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper. And may we all continue to pass every test. Satnam. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. Mahalo Nui Loa. <laughs>